Thank you, thank you, thank you so much, Professor Mike Steinel. Welcome to the Mop Up for October 21st, 2021. I'm David Feldman. Fasten your airbags. We have an incredible program planned for you this evening. I'm David Feldman coming to you from an air shaft overlooking a parking garage somewhere in New York City where the temperature is 67 degrees and sunny. And we need to do a better job of starting the show on time. And by we, I mean me. I'm, uh, I'm disorganized today. Well, let's uh, remind everybody that this is the mop up for October 21st, 2021. And don't forget office hours every Friday night starting at 8 p.m. If you would like an invitation to office hours, please go to davidfeldmanshow.com. Hit office hours. It'll take you right to the portal. You just sign your name and you're in. You can get a pre-registration right now or show up at 7.30, 7.55, 8 o'clock on Friday night. We started 8 p.m. Friday night. I hold the fort down from 8 p.m. till about 9.30, and then we turn it over to all the brilliant participants. We have teachers, we have musicians, comedians. It's uh, really, fan really fantastic. Office hours every Friday night. Go to davidfeldmanshow.com to sign up. Hi. Well, according to Senator Bernie Sanders, he's chairman of the Senate. I'm going to get this right. He's chairman of the Senate Budget Committee. I always say Banking Committee. He's chairman of the Senate Budget Committee. According to Senator Bernie Sanders, one out of four Americans cannot afford to have their prescriptions filled. Diabetes, heart disease, certain cancers and mental health issues that have been diagnosed go untreated because Americans can't afford to get their pills. In an opinion piece last week for the Charleston Gazette Mail in West Virginia, Senator Bernie Sanders wrote that his version of Build Back Better, the $3.5 trillion companion legislation to the bipartisan infrastructure bill, he says that his iteration of Build Back Better would allow Medicare to negotiate with the pharmaceutical companies. Senator Sanders' decision to publish his opinion piece specifically in a West Virginia newspaper is consistent with what he promised to do had he been elected president, and that is isolate the obstructionists and go to their states, to their congressional districts, and either lure them onto your side or embarrass them politically. In this case, by writing a piece in the Gazette, the Charleston Gazette in West Virginia, he was taking his case to this guy, Senator Joe Manchin. Yes, the Democrat from West Virginia, who because of a 50-50 split in the Senate, where each vote counts, Senator Joe Manchin has accrued way too much power. By the way, Senator Joe Manchin today on Thursday said he wants to add a work requirement to the $300 a month child tax credit. He wants a work requirement for the $300 a month tax credit which means he wants three-year-olds to flip burgers. 
How can you have a work requirement for kids? Well, obviously, that's what the good senator from West Virginia, Joe Manchin, thinks we need to do. Put our kids to work. He certainly put his kid to work, his daughter, Heather, although she's in her 40s. Manchin, Senator Manchin, has a vested interest in not keeping drug prices down. One of his biggest contributors is his daughter, Heather, who has made tens of millions, if not a hundred million, as a pharmaceutical CEO price fixing the cost of EpiPens. You all know what EpiPens are. Now, forgive me, indulge me. I'm sleep deprived. Pardon my hubris, but this is for a larger point, partly to blow my own horn, but I'm making a larger point, but I'm blowing my own horn. I was the first one to go after Heather, Heather Manchin, his daughter, back on March 1st, 2021. That's where I dedicated the first half of episode 1217, season 12, episode 17 of season 12. I dedicated the first half of episode 1217 to his daughter, Heather. It's entitled Joe Manchin's Dirty Little Secret. I, I urge you to go back and listen to it. It's from March of this year. Now, some of you are just discovering Heather Bresch, who is Joe Manchin's daughter, Heather Bresch. Jacobin, everybody should read Jacobin. The Intercept, everybody should read The Intercept. They are now reporting on how Manchin's lovely daughter, the CEO of Mylan, the drug manufacturer, conspired with Pfizer to artificially inflate the price of EpiPens, which her company manufactured. They also report on how Manchin's lovely wife, meanwhile, lobbied to get EpiPens in every school in America. What a nice family business you got going there. Mylan, the drug manufacturer, under the leadership of Heather, the daughter, was fined half a billion dollars for defrauding Medicaid. Now, when Heather, Joe's daughter, walked away from Mylan recently, that's the pharmaceutical company, she pocketed $40 million in severance. That doesn't count all the other money she made killing people, killing people who couldn't afford to be price gouged. She is, and I say this emphatically, she is a criminal. In another time, with another Justice Department, with another attorney general and a better president, she would be hauled right now before a judge. That's a fact. Price fixing is against the law. Defrauding Medicaid out of half a billion dollars that we know of, that's against the law. In another time or another country, Heather, Senator Manchin's daughter, would be hauled before a judge and at the very least fined into poverty, at the very least. So when Senator Bernie Sanders dared to venture into Joe Manchin's fiefdom of West Virginia to alert Senator Manchin's vassals that something was rotten, Manchin got a little angry and he said, I don't need 
a socialist like Bernie Sanders meddling in my business. Manchin was angry because somebody was doing the unthinkable, educating West Virginians. West Virginians are, well, I want to be careful how I phrase this. They are, it is the poorest state in the union and it stays the poorest partly because of how uneducated these low information voters are. Joe Manchin cannot be the Democratic senator of West Virginia without the people of West Virginia being kept low information. Joe Manchin can only live on his $750,000 houseboat moored in the Potomac, collecting half a million dollars in dividends from his son's coal company. The only way he can do this is if West Virginia's are, if West Virginian voters are, for lack of a better word, incredibly low information voters. Uh, We're all stupid. We all are. I don't want to call the people of West Virginia stupid. They're uninformed and they're kept uninformed. That's why they're poor. That's why West Virginia is the poorest state in the union. They don't know that Joe Manchin doesn't represent his constituents. If they knew that he was living on a $750,000 houseboat in West Virginia, if they knew that his daughter Heather had at least $100 million from ripping off the sick, if they knew that his wife was lobbying to get her daughter's EpiPens in every school in West Virginia, if they knew what Joe Manchin was against, They would, uh, well, the guillotine was invented for this exact reason. He and his family, Manchins, use the voters of West Virginia as their own personal piggy bank. And that's why, like any politician we read about in the Pandora Papers, that's why West Virginia is the poorest state in America. And Joe Manchin... Democrat, Republican, he is not representing the people of West Virginia. Think about this for one second. If one out of five Americans can't get their prescriptions filled, that number is so much higher in West Virginia. Assuming West Virginians can even afford to see a doctor who will prescribe them the pills that they can't afford. Now, I reported on this back in March. Reported. I'm a a comedy writer. I'm not a reporter. I read and and interpret what I read. Uh, I reported on this back in March before anyone else, sort of. And I bring this up partly because I'm sleep deprived and I need to pump my ego up today. I'm bringing this up to blow my own horn, partly, partly. Go back and listen to episode 1217. Again, full disclosure, I need to blow my horn today and swallow it uh, because this is a tiny little show and I'm 
a human being and I'm pissed off. I'm just pissed off that we move so much information on this show. And then I, you know, I look at the other stuff that's out there and I just go, really, really, really? Okay. I mean, I'm not just talking, I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about the conversations, the guests, the topics on this show. They are designed to keep you ahead of the news cycle, as well as keep the current news cycle in perspective. Now, the great thing about this show, what, one of the miracles about this show is I'm not a celebrity. I had no built-in audience. I built this podcast. We built this podcast, you know, listener by listener. And we did it by bringing on people who you know are telling you the truth. They're not celebrities. I'm not a celebrity. My guests are celebrity, celebrities, celebrities, celebrities. Some of them eventually become famous and you know they're famous because they won't do my show anymore. If you go back into the archives, like there are a lot of people who were, anyway, I don't, I don't need famous people on my show, celebrities. They tend to be stupid. You spend so much time being famous, you're not reading, you're not doing your work. So I don't need celebrities. There is a morass of podcasts out there. And I'm telling you that if you listen to this show in its entirety, you will understand what is happening and what's going to happen and why it's happening. And that's because of my guests. Now, I know this show weighs in at about eight hours, seven hours. Sometimes I'm generous and only give you six hours. You're not supposed to listen to it in one sitting. We, we post it late Monday, or 3, 3 a.m. on Tuesday morning. That should get you through Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. That's only, you know, two hours a day. Uh, and everything in my show is important. Otherwise, I would cut it out. Every guest I have on today's show is important. You need to listen to them. They are, they are either scholars or just brilliant people. These guests are important. So you need to listen to my show in its entirety. There's a reason I book these guests. I'm not killing time. We're ahead of the curve on most issues. Did you hear Professor Adnan Hussein and uh, Claire Professor Claire talking about China on Tuesday's show, and then Tom Friedman that day publishes this horseshit about how we have to be afraid of China. Uh, I mean, it's you you will fall for Thomas Friedman's fertilizer if you don't listen to Professor Claire and Professor Hussein talking about China. You listen to my show and you develop critical thinking, not because of me, but because of the guests I have on this show. Every single one of my guests is important, more important than Thomas Friedman or Lawrence or O'Donnell or Rachel Maddow or Joe Rogan. Way more knowledgeable, way more important. So someone wrote to me wanting to know, how come you were the first one to talk about Joe Manchin's daughter? Well, first off, thank you, but I wasn't. And that's the reason I bring this up, partly to encourage you to 
pay attention to the people I book on this show. And also because uh, I want to discuss critical thinking, which I was never a big fan of. I didn't think I I didn't even know what critical thinking was on last week's show or Friday. I don't know when I said America is very critical but we don't know how to do critical thinking. So I want to talk briefly about critical thinking and how I was able using critical thinking to be one of the first people to talk about Joe Manchin's daughter. Uh, And hopefully the takeaway from this is you too can be citizen journalists, but you have to possess internet literacy and critical thinking. We lack, or many of us lack, the internet literacy to be critical thinkers. Indulge my hubris for a second. It's not that I'm smarter than most people, because I'm not. That's my strength, is knowing how stupid I am. But I also know that with age comes a certain degree of just baked-in critical thinking. You, If you get older, you learn how to separate to tease out the nonsense you do. I'm an old man, and and that is a crime in America, and it should be. It should be. I think if you're a baby boomer, you're automatically suspect. I think it's criminal to be a baby boomer. I really do. I'm a baby boomer, just barely, but I am a baby boomer, and we are the worst generation, and I love the pejorative. Okay, boomer, I love it because we're despicable. I'm barely a boomer, but the boomers came out of the 60s with a horrific, self-indulgent sense of intellectual and spiritual entitlement. There is a sense of intellectual and spiritual entitlement among all baby boomers, and it's undeserved. To wit, Bill Maher, or his writer's wit, to his writer's wit, Bill Maher, Bill Maher thinks you should automatically assume he's on the left. He thinks he's entitled to refer to himself as a leftist or, you know, center left. Why? Why? Because he smokes dope, isn't married and punches up his weak jokes with the F word. What that makes you a, a, a lefty because you say the F word because you can't write a good joke. I was always amazed at how people used to think Dennis Miller was a leftist until they they started listening to his lyrics. Listen to these performers lyrics. Don't get don't get blindsided by their artifice. Listen to John Stewart's lyrics. Just because John Stewart doesn't wear a suit and he too screams the F word at the top of his lungs, that doesn't mean he's on the left. John Stewart is a neoliberal bully. Listen to his lyrics. He was an early supporter of Biden. John Stewart supported Biden because he only believes, like Biden, in paying lip service to the downtrodden. Now, yes, he supports our troops. Good for him. So do I. He does more for our troops because he's got more power and money. Good for Jon Stewart for supporting the troops. But in the marketplace of ideas, how hard is that? 
How hard is it to be a celebrity who supports the troops? You really want to support the troops, John Stewart? Start reminding the American people with your platform that the Taliban didn't attack us on 9-11. You want to support the troops? Say that. Say that all our troops in Afghanistan and Iraq are wounded because of a lie. That's how you prevent more troops from being painted by George W. Bush. But boomers like Bill Maher, John Stewart, Dennis Miller, they treated the 60s like a pair of pants that you can just wear. And that would automatically make you anti-racist, anti-fascist, anti-corporate. They thought now a lot of baby boomers, most baby boomers, all baby boomers thought if they refused to trust authority, because that's what the 60s was all about, they were automatically hip and fighting the establishment. And that bred an entire generation of anti-establishment, money-grubbing creatures of the ruling class who thought they were anti-authoritarian because they didn't trust government, right? Bill Clinton, you know, the age of big government is over. But we thought he was, you know, a radical from the 60s. They never, Miller, Marr, Stewart, Clinton, Rahm Emanuel, they never, ever challenged their corporate paymasters. They were willing to challenge authority, except the real authority. You will never hear Bill Maher, Dennis Miller, John Stewart, Bill Clinton, Joe Biden attack the Fortune 500. That's why they will never give you a full-throated endorsement of Medicare for all, because that would challenge at least, at the very least, 100 components of the Fortune 500, right? But they'll be anti-authoritarian when it comes to the government. John Stewart can't wait to scream at Jerry Nadler's congressional committee about the plight of the first responders. That's really anti-authoritarian, standing up to Jerry Nadler showboating before Jerry Nadler's committee. That's not anti-authoritarian, taking on Jerry Nadler. But they think, because of their sense of intellectual and spiritual entitlement, they think railing against the government, our politicians, they think they're fighting fascism. But they're not going after our politicians' paymasters. That they wouldn't dare, because they have the same paymasters. That's why they don't do it. And because, of course, they're intellectually lazy and greedy. Greedy. They want money for themselves. These boomers, talking about all boomers, with their false sense of leftist bona fides, they all think, like Bill Maher thinks he can just call himself a lefty. They own property, stocks, and they have jobs that pay them, so what, what, nine figures? I, what, I seven, I don't know. I can't do the math. They don't want to pay taxes. They don't want to pay their employees. They don't want a labor department. 
protecting unions. They don't want an environmental protection agency telling the T-shirt company that makes their merch not to dump turpentine into the river. Boomers, for the most part, I would say every boomer is flopping into his or her dotage, gauzed in a haze far thicker than their senility. You watch Bill Maher. He's beyond senile. He's smug, self-satisfied, and comfortable. And here is a rule to live by. Think of everyone you know who is comfortable in either their thinking or lifestyle and afflict them, make them uncomfortable for no reason other than the fact that they are comfortable, either the way they live or the way they think. I am not free until all people are free. And I am not comfortable into, until all people are comfortable. If someone is comfortable in their thoughts, afflict them, even if you agree with them. That's why I loathe baby boomers. They're a little, or not a little, they're too comfortable. Look at this country that is a result of baby boomers, that is a result of the 60s. Look at America where unions and the planet are both on life support, where the financial sector, which people in the 60s, the baby boomers, railed against the financial sector. Under the watchful eyes of the baby boomers, the financial sector has quadrupled its share of the economy since the 60s. Whose fault is that? We are spending more on the Pentagon now as part of our GDP than any time since World War II. You were so busy protesting the war in uh, Vietnam, Boomer. And when you got in charge, Pentagon spending increased year after year. War or no war at first, but then about 20 years ago, it just became war after war. Our schools are an apartheid state. Pay attention to this. Black kids are just as likely to be attending a segregated school as they were before Brown v. Board of Education. Google that. Google that. We are more, our schools are more segregated now than they were before Brown v. Board of Education. Remember our vice president saying to Joe during the debate, that little girl was me. Remember when she said that, that great moment when she went after Joe Biden for fighting busing? And he said, when, she said, when you were fighting busing and talking, you know, there was a little girl who was boarding a bus to go to an all-white school, and that little girl was me. And it was like, wow, you, you go, girl. Good for you. And then you find out that our vice president got bust. But she's not for busing. 
We have an education system in America that is an apartheid state, and that's because of baby boomers. That's because of baby boomers who thought they were just entitled to call themselves anti-racist. But when it came to sending their idiot kids to a school with black people, that was a bridge too far. They, that they couldn't do. Our education system in America is an apartheid state. Google it. We live in a country now where homelessness and hunger are bigger problems today than they were in the 60s, where ordinary Americans can't afford college or health care. You could afford college, boomer, in the 60s. Can't anymore because boomer didn't want to pay his taxes can't afford health care. When you compare America today to the 1960s, this country is far, far worse by every yardstick. Because baby boomers either learned or just took the wrong lessons from the 60s and they decided that their comfort their individual comfort was more important than everybody else's. So we flatter ourselves. We sink into the comfortable blanket of, you know, comforting ourselves with our own narrative because nobody holds us account. There's newspapers are disappearing, magazines. Nobody reads magazines anymore. We're getting progressively ignorant. And that leads to comfort until it doesn't. Suicide, higher now than ever before, certainly higher than the 60s. Opiate addiction, higher now than it was in the, in the 60s. Obesity, cancers, heart disease. And it's all because boomers allowed themselves to become consumers. They went from boomers to consumers, and all that matters to a boomer is what they own. They judge themselves and others by what they own, by their labels, what kind of car you drive, what kind of school, what's the name of the school you went to. That's how the boomers who can affect change think. There, there are two separate rules for the powerful boomers the rules for me and the rules for others. And of course, endless wars. I am so tired of reading about how the Vietnam War changed everything back home and gave birth to the 60s and then these, these boomers who wanted to change the world. Yeah, like the Clintons, right? Th this country... The boomers are living the complete antithesis of the 60s. And they flatter themselves, clinging to this idea that they and the 60s changed everything. I am so sick and tired of hearing about how after the 60s, nothing was ever the same. Well, I just gave you a litany of complaints. Yeah, nothing was the same. It got worse. It got worse. I hear boomers 
say they stopped a war. They stopped a war. Really, they stopped a war. What, what war are we talking about? Vietnam? Really? You mean the Vietnam? You stopped the Vietnam War that lasted 20 years? You stopped that. We were in Vietnam for 20 years, Boomer. We finally pulled out in 1973. The 60s were over by the time America got out of Vietnam. We sent three million soldiers to Vietnam. You really stopped a war. Good for you. Three million soldiers, American, went, American soldiers went to Vietnam. And you think you stopped a war? 60,000 American soldiers died. The rest were left homeless, confused, in and out of VA facilities, and most importantly, forgotten, as are the millions of Vietnamese and Laotians and Cambodians, millions who died because of that war you stopped in the 60s, Boomer. Okay, Boomer. You have forgotten the history. And uh, you have also forgotten the right lessons from Vietnam. You didn't stop a war. You didn't stop anything. You have perpetrated, perpetuated and perpetrated. You have perpetuated everything that you were against in the 60s. Consumerism, love of money, trust in corporations, well, we stopped a war. Give me a break. We pulled out of Vietnam after dropping more bombs on that country than all the other bombs we dropped on every other war we engaged in combined. And that doesn't include the bombs we dropped on Cambodia, Cambodia and Laos. By the way, nobody talks about the 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 decades-long war that the CIA waged on Laos. We dropped more bombs on Laos than in all the wars this country has ever fought combined. Our CIA dropped more bombs on Laos than we did in Germany and Japan combined. We didn't pull out of Vietnam in 1973. We paused to reload. We paused to reload in 1973, because when you drop that much on, on Indochina, you got to take a breather. You got to reload. The war machine, and this is the truth, Boomer, the war machine during the 60s and early 70s was doing so incredibly well. The economy, because of the war machine, was on fire. Uh, it was almost as though the war machine dropped napalm on our economy. It was on fire. And that means the value of the dollar started to crumble and we had massive inflation. So here's the real lesson we learned from Vietnam. The lesson we learned from Vietnam was it was too much of a good thing. That's what we learned from Vietnam. And we ended up with inflation. So we had to turn the war machine down just a tad in 1973. That's why Nixon was instituting 
price controls. Inflation was out of control. And think of war the same way you look at Bernie's $3.5 trillion infrastructure bill. It's uh, think of it as a destroying infrastructure bill. When you build infrastructure, you're pumping money into the economy. And yes, there's the threat of inflation. And when you're pumping money into the economy to destroy infrastructure, dikes in North Vietnam, villages, you're pumping too much money into the economy and we get inflation. 1973, you know, we're approaching double digit inflation. Got to turn Got to turn the economy down a little. The anti-war movement didn't stop Vietnam boomer. Inflation did. The richest 1% needed war. They always do to juice the economy. But when the economy gets too juiced, there's inflation. And the one thing the richest 1% hate more than themselves and the people who work for them is inflation because inflation weakens their dollar. By the way, uh, Jerome Powell, he's the chairman of the Federal Reserve. He said today that he's going to institute checks to prevent people who serve on the Federal Reserve to stop trading stocks Based on insider trading, it turns out Jerome Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, got caught trading about $5 million in stocks back in October of 2020. It was a critical month. It was a month before the election, and Trump was fighting him on some economic move. So he sold his stocks, $5 million, based on inside information. But today, since it was exposed that he and other presidents of the Federal Reserve were trading on inside information, today, Jerome Powell said that they're going to stop that. Why the rush, Powell? Why why are you rushing into this? The Fed's only been with us for more than a century. What's the rush on stopping you guys from insider trading? When Nixon and Kissinger pulled out of Vietnam in 1973, that was the same thing as the Federal Reserve raising interest rates to cool the economy down. That was all it was. We needed to cool down the economy to protect, to stop the inflation. Whether you like it or not, whether or not you can get your head wrapped around this war is the transfer of wealth from our nation's treasury, where you know what we pay taxes into, war is transferring that wealth from the government into the bank accounts of the richest 1% who profit off war. And when you pump money into a war, when you pump too much, too fast, it defeats the entire purpose of the war. It creates inflation. So what was the lesson, Boomer, from Vietnam? It was the same lesson from World War II. Too much war 
too soon creates inflation. You want a Goldilocks war. You know, they always talk about the Goldilocks uh, economy, not too much inflation, not too much unemployment. You want the economy to be just right. So you need the lesson from World War II and Vietnam is you need a Goldilocks war. Like the war on Terra, that was a Goldilocks war where the soup is just right. You don't go in there with shock and awe and win overnight. You spread it out over 20 years. The war on Terra, and it's still going on, is a 20-year war. It's a Goldilocks war. Not too much too soon. Just enough. Be patient. You'll get your money without inflation. We'll keep the economy humming. Be patient. You'll get all your money. That is the lesson we learned from Vietnam. War should be a slow burn. It should be savored like a fine wine. Don't guzzle the war. Now, Colin Powell died, and uh, people always uh, like to chant the Powell Doctrine as though there was wisdom behind it and we, we should observe the Powell Doctrine. The Powell Doctrine was we will never send troops into combat without a clear mission. We will know what the end game was. So the criticism of Iraq is, in Afghanistan, we didn't obey the Powell Doctrine. Well, we did. You just don't know we did, but we obeyed the Powell Doctrine with this 20-year Goldilocks war on Terra. We sent troops into combat with a very clear mission to keep the war going. And we knew what the end game was. Infinity. Perpetual war. The war on terror is a perpetual war. We obeyed the Powell Doctrine when we went into Iraq and when we went into Afghanistan. We had a clear mission. Keep the war going because it's good for the richest 1%. And you know that's true. You know that this war has been fantastic for the richest 1%. Because it was a Goldilocks war, spread out of spread out over 20 years they were actually able to lower taxes during the war think about that for a second george bush declared war on iraq and afghanistan and said he was going to pay for it by lowering taxes and he did and the war was still going when trump lowered taxes nobody in the history of civilization no country except the united states has ever waged war and paid for it or thought they were paying for it or claimed they were paying for it by lowering taxes. If you can lie and say Saddam Hussein attacked us on 9-11, if Mary Cheney, if, if uh, Cheney's father can lie and say there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, if Colin Powell can go before the UN and say Saddam Hussein is linked to Al-Qaeda 
and he has weapons of mass destruction. If you can get the American people to still believe the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Milley, who two weeks ago said the Taliban attacked us on 9-11 and we still need to fear them. 20 years after 9-11, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and most politicians are still spreading the lie that the Taliban attacked us on 9-11. If you can get the American people to believe that Saddam Hussein and the Taliban attacked us on 9-11, you can get them to believe that we can pay for this war by lowering taxes on the richest 1%. And the baby boomers, they either bought into it or sold it. They either bought into this, these lies or they sold it. Trust me, we obeyed Colin Powell. We obeyed the Powell Doctrine. We learned our lesson from Vietnam. The lesson we learned from Vietnam was don't stop. The mistake we made in Vietnam is we left. Like the people who forced LBJ to escalate. There were people forces. You know, LBJ said to Everett Dirksen, a Republican, he's on tape going, you know, I know this is a mistake. I can't stop. He was the commander in chief. I can't stop this. Uh, the people who forced LBJ to escalate. So by 69, there were like, what, 600,000 troops in Vietnam. They didn't care about Vietnam. They didn't care about communism. And they most certainly didn't care about the Vietnamese or our troops or the security of America. The purpose of Vietnam was to keep that war going for as long as possible. And, and inflation is what stopped it because everyone was benefiting from the Vietnam War, except the people who had to fight it or got, got in the way of the bombs, the heroin trade, the weapons trade, just like Afghanistan, the heroin trade, the weapons trade, money laundering. Everyone could benefit from the Vietnam War, except the men and women who had to fight it and the innocent civilians who got in the way. Now, whether you believe this or not, and, and you know, I often have trouble understanding this. Uh, there are and always have been people who believe war is a permanent state of nature. They believe that's kill or be killed. Better you than I. That's what they think. Better you should die than I. Nature pours a vacuum. There's always going to be a superpower. Somebody has to do the killing. It should be us. And if you believe, as people do, that war is a permanent state of nature, then why not extract wealth from nature? If we can mine the earth for oil or minerals, why not make money off the mines we place in the soil of Laos? which are still going off and crippling kids who are just trying to play soccer. People who mine the earth have no problem with landmines. They don't care who lives and who dies as long as it's not them. Eric Prince from Blackwater, 
Dick Cheney, Rumsfeld, and even Colin Powell, who died with $60 million in the bank, they slept perfectly well at night on their satin sheets because in their heart of hearts, they believe war is a permanent state of nature. Somebody has to die. Better you dying than me. And as long as war is a permanent state of nature, why not mine nature? Why not make money off nature? The lesson they took from Vietnam is you can pour trillions into a nonstop war and you can keep it going for decades so long as you don't get too greedy. And people got too greedy in Vietnam. They didn't think it would last. So they went way too fast, too much too soon. And that overheated our economy. We had rampant inflation. We had to cool the economy down by turning off the war. And the military industrial complex learned to slow it down, to savor, to trust that if they put the right politicians in Washington, D.C., they will get a fine wine for a war that can be savored for decades. So instead of communism right now, you know, the problem with communism, it had borders countries, uh, that's a tough war to keep fighting because they have armies. We decided to go to war with a tactic, terrorism, which can be anything you decide it is. A war on terrorism, that's genius. That's what has given us this Goldilocks war that's been so good for the richest 1%, uh, percent, richest 1%. Uh, terrorism. It's genius. It's amorphous. You're literally fighting a war against war. So if there's an aggrieved group anywhere on the planet with this loosely defined definition, what constitutes terrorism, you get to fight an enemy wherever you decide to fight them, wherever you decide there's terrorism, wherever you decide who can benefit by my calling this band of soldiers, terrorists, will fight them. Somalia, we're not defending our natural gas, uranium or copper interests in Somalia. They would never say that. We're fighting the terrorists in Somalia. It's the Somalian terrorists who are fighting to keep their petroleum licenses all for themselves and not handing them over to Shell or Exxon. That makes them terrorists. So let's send in a few drones to kill these terrorists and then, of course, I'll be told it's more complicated than that. No, it isn't. Well, David, you like your way of life here in America. We're protecting the trade routes, our natural resources, the sea lanes in the South China Sea to protect your way of life. David, don't you like your way of life? No, I don't like my way of life. I'm miserable. Not only do I not like my way of life. I don't approve of my way of life, and I don't approve of your way of life. I don't want petroleum products in my life. I want wind, solar, and geothermal. And like most Americans, I'd be willing to live with less energy to save this planet. Less energy so we wouldn't have to spend money toppling governments and fighting wars. I, I, I'm willing to turn my thermostat down for that. One of the great lessons 
of this disruption of the supply chain that's going on right now is, believe it or not, you don't need that massage chair overnight. You can wait a couple of weeks for that massage chair. Or even better, why not fall in love with somebody and get those massages for free? Kamala Harris, the vice president, literally told parents last month, better stock up on Christmas presents now because we have supply chain problems. Yes, the war on Christmas. Yes, it's the supply chain. There'll be no Christmas because of the supply chain problem. Do you know how much better your kids would be if you could afford Christmas gifts for them and didn't give them? Do you know how much better a child you would have if you didn't give them Christmas presents, especially if you can afford them? If you're having a great year, withhold the gifts. Or better yet, find out who's not having a good year and give gifts to them. Or save your money. We don't need all this, especially if it means fighting wars and destroying the planet for, for Christmas. The Powell Doctrine, please. The lesson from Vietnam was get rid of the draft so nobody will even pay attention to these wars and fight smaller wars for longer periods of time. It's like the tale of the comet on the internet. And most importantly, don't allow the press to report the war. Lock up the whistleblowers. Daniel Ellsberg, who released the Pentagon Papers, he didn't go to prison. Chelsea Manning did. Solitary confinement, suicide watch, because solitary confinement, several times she tried to commit suicide. Julian Assange, our Justice Department, our Biden Justice Department right now is salivating over Julian Assange. We can't wait to extradite him and prosecute him for violating the Espionage Act. Jeffrey Sterling, African-American, former CIA lawyer, in solitary confinement right now. He was arrested for handing uh, James Risen, Reason, uh, journalist. He handed him documents about Operation Merlin. That was a Clinton era sting operation where undercover operatives try to sell to Iran phony nuclear secrets in order to prove that Iran was trying to develop an atomic bomb. That was just in case we needed to gin up a war against Iran. We had the CIA try to sell Iran uh, phony nuclear blueprints. And, and then if we needed to go to war with Iran, we could say, see, they, they bought these phony blueprints. They want to go to war. Daniel Hale is serving time right now. Hale is a former NSA analyst who turned over documents to The Intercept, which everybody should read. Those documents detail the international crimes our military commits engaging in drone warfare. He's accused of violating the Espionage Act. The drone operators, the, the lawyers who approved those drone strikes, the generals who ordered the drone strikes on innocent civilians, they don't go to prison. But if you leak any documents to the press to expose these war crimes, then you're the criminal. When it comes to war in America, it's not the crime, 
It's the not participating in the cover-up. If you don't participate in the cover-up of the crime, you've committed a crime. The lesson from Vietnam was get rid of the draft, keep the press in the dark, enforce the Espionage Act. If anyone in the government leaks the truth to the press, lock them up, and we are locking up whistleblowers at a far higher rate than any time in American history. Getting a note here. Uh, that's the lesson from Vietnam. The first casualty of war, they say, is the truth. And what we have witnessed since Vietnam is a war on the truth. When the government doesn't want you to know something, they give you a document dump. Way too much information to wade through. You don't have the manpower to sift through all that garbage to find the gold. And the war machine is the beneficiary of the Internet, which is a gigantic document dump. Americans are overwhelmed and we can't siphon off what the truth is. The lesson from Vietnam is destroy the people who sift through those document dumps. At the same time, you can claim that all the information is out there, but it's not out there if you don't have news organizations with the budget to sift through all that information. And because there are so many organizations claiming to be news, it all gets lost in the avalanche. There, in America, there's so much information, so much data. The growth industry on Wall Street is data management. We can't manage all this data, but we're told it's a golden age for journalism. It's not. Journalism is editing. Nobody's editing this stuff. And when you couple that with misinformation, lies, propaganda, passed off as news, when you couple all that, you now have an entire nation, not only of low information voters, you have low information politicians, low information news operations, and even low information oligarchs. Everybody in this country has gotten stupid, especially the baby boomers. And they get comfortable in their stupidity. You can find a website that will reassure you of anything you need to be reassured of. You want comfort? There's a new source that will keep you comfortable. But you're not supposed to be comfortable. Life is not comfortable. But they want you to smoke a joint, take a drink, swallow an antidepressant. We want you comfortable. Just comfortable enough so we can afflict you without you even knowing. So it gets back to Joe Manchin's daughter, Heather. Why was I able to get her story back in March? And now places like Jacobin and the mainstream media are just beginning to catch up. Again, I'm partly blowing my own horn, but I'm trying to teach younger people, not my fellow baby boomers, they're beyond redemption. You haven't lived until you try to explain to a boomer how to mute himself on a Zoom call. They're beyond redemption. The arrogance of boomers who say, I don't need to learn how to use Zoom. I have a secretary. Well, guess what? It's a new economy and we can no longer afford your secretary. We're streamlining and uh, we're getting rid of the secretary as well as you because you refuse to learn how to use Zoom. You're fired. It's the height of arrogance to be a boomer and insist that you can't figure out Zoom. It's your entitlement. Internet literacy. I'm going to wrap it up. 
let me teach you about internet literacy. Whether you like it or not, legacy media, while it is your enemy, legacy media provides breadcrumbs for you to arrive at a truth or a larger story. You need to read the Times, the Boston Globe, the Washington Post. You need to read articles from news organizations that employ hundreds and hundreds of reporters. You need to read the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times, CNBC, Business Insider, The Economist. You need to read papers from universities and think tanks, and that includes Brookings, Daniel Ellsberg's old joint, and even the far right wing Heritage Foundation embedded in all these evil institutions are actual scholars. Even the American Enterprise Institute has scholars. And when they write something, they provide citations with hyperlinks. And occasionally those hyperlinks are legitimate. Click on the hyperlinks. That's the great thing about reading online. It's the hyperlinks. When you read Paul Krugman in the New York Times online, when he writes that tax cuts for the richest 1% create income inequality and larger deficits, he has hyperlinks. Click on them. Reading is where you get your truth, not from podcasts, not from television. It's from reading. Substack. Subscribe to the Substack of my next guest, Michael Cohn. It's the written word. The written word. That's where you get facts checked. Tucker Carlson can't be fact checked. There's no time. That's where you get critical thinking by reading. Television, podcasts and radio, they blow by you. It gets to the point where it's impossible to fact check anybody. You can only do it by reading. And that's what's destroying critical thinking in America. Television, podcasts and radio shows like this. All right, I'm out of time. I'm being rude to my guest. Uh, let me take a quick break and get some water. When we come back, I'm going to bring back a great guest, a great journalist, Michael Cohen. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com, office hours this Friday, starting at 8 p.m. I'll be back with Michael Cohen. I need to get a glass of water. You're listening to The David Feldman Show. It's time right now for The David Feldman Show. He's talking politics, a comedy too. To tell a dirty joke if you want him to. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for writing. Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show to get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. Thank you. 
Welcome back. Uh, Michael Cohn isn't here. Well, then I'll continue. <laughs> All right. There you are. Oh, okay. Are you just arriving? Hang on. Did you just get here? Oh, I've been here for a few minutes, actually. Oh, oh sorry to keep you waiting. I was... No worries. No worries. That is... Uh, I apologize. I sometimes get caught up in my own nonsense. And uh, that's not fair to the people who are waiting to, uh, to to come on. How are you? Are you in Boston today? Where are you? No, I live in New York. I live in oh, Boston. you live in New York, but you wrote for the Boston Globe. Previously wrote for the Boston yeah. Globe, yeah. And what is the name of your Substack? How do we subscribe to your Substack? It is called Truth and Consequences. Uh, you can go to truthandcon.com. Uh, and uh, sign up there. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at speechboy71. Uh, you can get a link to, to there as well. Uh, and I certainly hope you, hope you sign up and check it out. Okay. Uh, I want to ask you about what's happening with Build Back Better and where you think we're standing and uh, whether or not you're optimistic. But let me ask you about critical thinking. Okay. Sure. Do you think we've lost the ability to think critically? In this country like never before and if well, so pretty, what's the that, cause that's a of pretty it? broad statement don't you think i mean i i guess i would say it depends who you're talking to i mean i think uh you know there's a lot more information out there there than there was when when you and i were kids certainly a lot more ability to um to do your own research and to look look i shouldn't use that expression uh to uh, investigate right. things and to and to read and, and to check things out on the web um I think, unfortunately, we do have um, a political party that is not too, too wedded to critical thinking, uh, led by a former president who is certainly doesn't know what those words mean. Uh, but, uh, you know, I mean, uh, I don't I wouldn't say it's, it's it's any worse than it was 20, 30, 40 years ago. I mean, I feel it's worse in the sense that you have one party that is so divorced from reality. Uh, and that is certainly something that's new and different. Right. Um, and but, the idea uh, they, they, they get we celebrate a type of rhetoric that gets passed off as debate. I don't know if you saw Matt Gates testifying before Jamie Raskin and the select committee. Um, Matt Gates is a troll. That's all he's trying to do is be a troll. That, that's his. That's his. That's why he's elected to Congress so he can be a troll. That's that's his whole. But objective. he's a good. You know, if you watch him, he's pretty good at what he does. He steamrolls sure. and and. A lot of people on our side, when Jamie Raskin went blah, 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 blah to him, uh, the other side thinks Gates won and that Jamie Raskin looked kind of foolish going blah, 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 blah. Well, but does it really matter all that much? I mean, this is all this is all sort of inside Beltway kind of stuff. And I mean, I think for Matt Gates, it's all about getting, you know, on TV and getting some clip of him getting in a fight with Jamie Raskin. Uh, I don't know that it matters, frankly, all that much. And I think. You know, one thing I think that is different about our news environment now is that we tend to get uh, we tend to tilt the windmills a lot more than we used to. You know, I remember when back when I used to 1992 when I was working on a, a, a Bill Clinton's campaign for president. Ironically enough, I you, know, you worked on his struck, campaign or you were reporting on his campaign. No, I, I was too, I was I was working as a I, I was working on his campaign as a college student actually, hmm. and you know, a youthful indiscretion. I'm sorry, a youthful indiscretion. 
I don't, I don't consider it indiscretion, but you know, I mean, we can just, we can have to argue about that later, I suppose, but uh, no, I was okay with it. I was happy to do it. I, I'm, I'm okay with it. Uh, no regrets, but I, I would say that, you know, back then we, every, at five 30, we would be sure to watch CNN so we could see, you know, what was the headlines on inside politics? You know, uh-huh. that was, that was the big thing back then. And now of course we live in this news cycle where everything's driven by Twitter, everything's driven by social media. I do think there's a tendency sometimes for us to get a little bit too, I don't know, uh, to go down these rabbit holes and stuff we see on Twitter and think it's real life. And it's not real life. Most people don't, don't pay attention to this stuff. Right. Um, so I think, you know, I think it's a very different kind of environment now than it was sort of back in my, when I started out working in politics. Great. We're talking with Michael, Michael Cohn. He publishes the newsletter Truth and Consequences, and I subscribe to it. He's also a columnist over at MSNBC as well. Let's talk about the the, bu- the budget package and... What do you think about introducing Bernie's if Pelosi, Schumer and Biden really wanted it to be three point five trillion dollars, which I guess they don't. Nothing would nothing prevents them from forcing the vote. Remember, force the vote on Medicare. Why don't they force the vote on this reconciliation bill, which is the most important bill of our generation and just hold a vote on it every week until the midterms. Because it won't pass. Right, but get people on record. Who cares? It won't pass. But it won't pass in the House, it won't pass in the Senate. Uh, and it'll be embarrassing to Democrats so they can't get their agenda passed. I mean, you know, this is the way things work in Congress. You have to negotiate. I mean, I look, I wrote a big piece about it today. I think the fact that, that this bill is being cut from three and a half trillion to one half trillion is a disgrace. I think it makes no policy sense, it makes no political sense, um, is being held up by two selfish senators, frankly. But this is the way Congress operates. We have a screwed up political system in this country. There's lots of choke points. And the fact of the matter is that there's really nothing that Joe Biden can do to force Cinema and Manchin to go along with what he wants to do, with, except negotiate with them until he gets a deal. That's all he can do. Yeah, I've been asking I've been focusing on this topic for about a month now, and I do ask my guests, especially the ones who didn't vote for Biden, the ones who who didn't who voted, you know, for who stayed home. They they wouldn't pick the lesser of two evils. Uh, what would you do right now? And their answer seems to be, it's too late. They should have thought about this when. Swearingen was primarying Mansion. They should have thought about this when uh, Cinema was running. It's Chuck. Sh- it's always you know they look backwards, and I say, okay, the patient's dying on the table right now. Uh, no time to say you shouldn't have smoked and ate all those fatty foods. What do you right. do right now? And nobody can tell me what. Nothing seems to work. Bernie writing that piece in uh, the, the the Charlotte's, was it Charlottesville? Where Charleston. Did, Charles, Charleston. West Virginia, I think, was that, or Charleston, was that, yeah. I mean, if you had to come up with a, a, a strategy for Biden to get this thing passed, if he said to you, what do I do? What is the answer? What he's doing right now. I mean, there really isn't any other option. I mean, I, I, this is not an endorsement. Right. I mean, I'm not saying that this is the ideal outcome. I mean, I think and I wrote about this today in my newsletter that uh, I think this is going to come back to Democrats as a, as, a, as a historic missed opportunity, a chance to pass really sweeping transformational 
legislation, um, and they're going to be, be nickel and diming it. Now, don't get me wrong. What they're going to pass is going to be a big deal. It's going to be the biggest expansion of safety net, you know, probably since the 60s uh, in, in its comprehensiveness. So it's a big deal, but it could be a bigger deal. Um, but unfortunately, we have a system, the way it's set up, that just, you know, allows, first of all, Republicans, and let's not leave them out of this equation, they made a political decision to block everything that Biden wants to do. They have forced uh, Democrats to basically get every single member to, to be on board. Um, that's not the way things used to be in American politics. That's the way things are now. Um, and that means you have to negotiate with people like Manchin and Cinema. And, you know, look, people don't like Joe Manchin on the left. And I get that. I do. I think his behavior is pretty selfish. But, you know, there's no other Democrat who could hold that seat in West Virginia. So what, what, do you, what, do you, what do you think we'll see? It's, we're coming up on the second deadline. Nancy Pelosi says by the end of October, they're going to vote on this. In Build Back Better, do you think we'll see universal pre-K? I mean, honestly, I have no idea. I mean, it, it, from what I understand and what I've seen, that does seem to be in the bill. There seems to be uh, uh, provisions for paid and family medical leave, although four weeks, not 12 weeks, um, and only for a year. So it has to be renewed. Or not for a year, I'm sorry, but not, not permanent. Uh, child tax credit extended for only a year, which makes no sense to me, but it's, it's cheaper. You can, you can save money by doing it only for a year and assume it's gonna be, gonna be extended and probably will be. Um, universal pre-K, honestly, I don't think is as essential as some other things in the bill. I mean, I love universal pre-K. I was big when my kids were- Yeah, we talked about that, yeah. Yeah, right, we did have it, exactly. But, but now you know, that your kids are older and you don't need universal preschool. <laughs> exactly, I don't care anymore, right? Screw them, right, exactly. Right. Uh, no, but it's, um, I think it matters a little less. Uh, it's, uh, you know, that's something that a lot of states are doing on their own right now. I don't know that it's as effective as some like the child tax credit or as effective as, as, as paid medical leave because that doesn't exist in most I states. Think, doesn't Manchin, is, doesn't West Virginia already have universal pre-K? I believe they do. Do not quote me on that, but I believe they right. do have universal pre-K. Right. And uh, a lot more states now have it than, than, than in the past. Right. Absolutely. Uh, I was going to make a joke about that also being <laughs> community college in West that's Virginia. Out, you know, it's funny, I've got to mention that. To, that's also going to be out two years of free community college, which was a big talking point for Joe Biden, the campaign trail. I think it's really a shame not going to be in there. You know, you know, what is going to be in there is expanding Medicare for dental and vision. For, for that Medicare. is going to be in there. It is going to be in there. But if you, you know, if I had my druthers, that would that's not I, that's not the most urgent thing that we need in this country. Uh, but all people vote. People like Medicare. Right. So it'll be in there. Right. So they're going to. They're going to have dental and vision. Vision is my understanding. Yeah, And I've noticed they've lowered the prices of hearing aids. They're not going to lower the age of Medicare. No. And they're not going to negotiate drug prices. Not going to negotiate drug prices. Another really stupid political move um, that is, a, you know, a byproduct of having a very thin majority. It's not just cinema who opposes it, by the way. Bob Menendez, New Jersey, opposes it. Uh, a bunch of, I mean, people who have big drug companies in their state, this is a, you know, an issue for them. So, you know, you have to navigate these waters. And if, you know, Democrats had more seats and if Republicans were willing to play ball, you could pass that. Well, so when I, San I Diego, there was a congressman, a Democratic congressperson from San Diego who was saying, I've got 60,000 employees working for the pharmaceutical industry in my district. I can't do this to them. Does that really have an effect on jobs if if drug companies have to negotiate prices? I mean, it, it seems if one out of 
five Americans get a prescription that they can't get filled, the pharmaceutical industry is leaving money on the table. I mean, if you're selling something that people can't afford, you're losing money. Why not make it affordable and sell more of it? Well, because I, I mean, I don't I, look. I'm not. I can't speak to the uh, profit motivations of drug companies, but I think that they obviously oppose this. And um, you know, if you were if you're a senator or a congressman in a district where drug up a lot of drug company jobs, then yeah, that is a concern for you. Look, there's another issue out there that that I've been sort of beating the drum about, which is the uh, the salt cap, which is state and local tax deduction. Um, you go slowly on that because most of my listeners. Uh, don't, including me, don't own a house and they don't understand. Of course. So explain that. So the SALT is the state and local tax deduction, which um, is basically allows people to deduct their state and local taxes, which includes property taxes, which is a big deal if you live in an affluent community, you own a home, uh, from their federal taxes. It's a huge deduction. It's not, it's a regressive deduction, but it's a huge one. And it affects people in affluent communities also known as swing districts. So in 2017, it was in the Trump tax cut. It was a cap deduction, which meant that a lot of people in wealthy communities in New Jersey and New York and California and Oregon and elsewhere paid higher taxes. Now of the Republicans who voted for the Trump tax cut uh, and voted for to cap the salt tax, a lot of them lost, a good number of them lost, even the ones who voted against the Trump tax cut. And there were a few who did lost as well. So this is a very powerful political issue. And you've had Democrats, uh, including progressive Democrats like Katie Porter, who's from an affluent district, say we have to lift the salt cap. Now, and again, a swing district in Orange County. And a swing district. Yeah. Exactly. Now, if I were the Democrats, this would be priority number one, would be to lift the salt cap. Not because it's the right policy, not because it's good for, necessarily good for the country. Oh, there's an argument to be made. There is, a, there is an affirmative argument to have the salt um, uh, deduction. But politically... It's extremely important for Democrats. It's extremely important for Democrats in districts that are swing districts that, you know, were cited by less than 10 points in the last election. So, you know, that's the kind of issue where it doesn't break down on the usual ideological lines. It breaks down along parochial lines, breaks down along the lines of whose constituents are affected by it. And look, if I'm a New Jersey congressman and half of my my uh, constituents pay the salt, uh, uh, can't use salt deduction, that's a big issue for me. Right. And it's one that can make a big difference in 2022. Uh, The problem with this is financial illiteracy on my part and not understanding all this. So we my eyes glaze over and then they're able to pass it. And you go, oh, what just do renters get to deduct their rent? They do not. And and nobody's asking for a deduction on your rent, a tax deduction on your rent. Nope. I mean, this is look, but here's the thing about this. You know, the fact that uh, that uh, these individuals get this deduction means they pay more in local taxes uh, and and they pay high property taxes. That goes to fund the uh, welfare states that we take for granted in places like New Jersey and California and New York. I mean, there is a reason why these these states have uh, better safety nets because they have higher taxes. Well, Uh, let's talk about something that seems to be flying under the radar, and that is uh, former Congresswoman Marsha Fudge, who is now running HUD. There seems to be a push to overturn or sneak around the Faircloth Amendment, which I just learned about. A Faircloth uh, Amendment is a Clinton-era amendment, which says that 
we cannot subsidize new federal or state housing unless we remove federal and state housing and turn it over to developers. We, we have to keep it at a certain level of federal housing. Uh, and then you have people like Jeffrey Katzenberg or, or Berg in L.A. saying, I'm going to look into what's causing homelessness. And what I'm saying in Build Back Better is they're planning to spend how much on low income housing? And when is the last time we even talked about building low income housing? Uh, probably not. 60s, I'm guessing. I'm sorry. Probably not since the 60s, I'm guessing. Right. Well, there's your homeless problem right there. Right. If you're not building, if you have a cap, if you have a cap on how much low income public housing you can build, you're going to have homeless people. I'm going to give you a, well, look, I think it's, I mean, I think you could, the homeless issue is, is there's, there's more to it, I think, you know, than that. But also, look, I mean, to be cynical, homeless people don't vote. Right. And if you're going to if you're going to come up with proposals that you, that you want in your agenda and you want to win the next election. And I think, you know, you and your listeners would all agree that winning, holding on to the House and Senate in 2022 is pretty important. You're going to pick the stuff that's most popular because it's going to help you get reelected. And that's what all politicians do. And right. I don't nothing wrong with that. It's, that's how it works in a, in, a, in a popular democracy. Right. We have six hundred thousand homeless in, in America, maybe a million. And. Uh, how do we bring the price of do you, do you think build back better would would solve that problem? I, I like to think I haven't it, looked closely at the yeah. housing provisions in the bill, but I don't think it's a big part of what, what, what's in the legislation. No. OK, I think it is. I think that it's flying under the radar. And yeah, it's okay. one of those things where if you don't read the and I haven't read it, I read that it's one of those things that they're kind of sneaking in. Uh, well, in my in the defense, there is no actual bill. Right. Right. Now. Right. How do you know what's saw, in the bill? How do you I know? Saw Bernie Sanders complain about the fact that he said journalists weren't covering what's in the bill. And one of the responses is like, there's no bill. There is no actual bill out there that we can we can you know comment on because it hasn't been written yet. But we do, um, we have chairman Democrats. We, we have chairman of committees suggesting what they're gonna leave in and we can look at what at what Joe Biden has has uh, right. proposed. Right. But but what is going to be the final bill? We don't know because we have not. It has not been decided yet. And I think this is a problem Democrats have walked themselves into by spending the last, I don't know, six weeks squabbling over trillions of dollars, not telling people, hey, guess what? Here's what we're going to do for you. Um, right. It's a big it's a big messaging problem, frankly. And this is happening because it, it's. It's. Bernie's fault that everything is being crammed into one bill because he's chairman. It can only be a reconciliation bill to get these things passed. In other words, you couldn't. I'm sorry. That's not Bernie's fault. No, I'm saying he was wise in saying we have one shot at a reconciliation bill. Let's try to cram as much as we can into a reconciliation bill because these things will not pass individual don't forget this is the second reconciliation bill the first one uh, actually was uh, i think it was rollover from last congress i think although don't quote me on that uh was how they passed the american rescue plan right in in february and the parliamentarian says you can only have two reconciliation bills a year but that's just a rule that is made up by the, well, the senate has yeah. 
more stupid rules than you shake a stick at. I mean, including that you need a supermajority in order to pass any bill, which right. that's how it's right now, because the two senators that are pictured on your screen refuse to get rid of the filibuster. Yeah. You're not a flamethrower. I've been reading you. You're, you're uh, you. This is the way th- there's a system in place and you have to negotiate the system. And I'm a pragmatist. I you're guess. a pragmatist. How much room in the conversation is there for demagoguery? The kind of thing that Bernie is teetering on when he goes into Joe Manchin's district, his state, and challenges him. Is there any virtue to kind of doing what the Republicans do, which is like, let's just break the whole thing and scare people? Well, no. Uh, and, and And the reason is that you have two parties with two very different governing philosophies, right? Mm-hmm. Democrats, they want to do things. Republicans, philosophy, they don't want to do anything. And so, you know, Democrats can hold up whatever Republicans want to accomplish, but, but that doesn't actually, goes against kind of their, their nature and their ideological beliefs. Um, the system is set up to prevent things from happening. The founders set up a system that was basically intended to prevent progress. And so that advantages Republicans right now. And that's what they do. They basically block everything and it works for them politically. Um, for Democrats, you know, they, they, they're in the difficult situation actually having to govern the country. Right? They actually right. have to do things. And I've always said, I mean, you know, Democrats lost their majority in the House in 2010 because of Obamacare. And to my mind, that's a, a fair price to pay. That's Maybe what you do. But, you know, the right. what, what, what's the flip side? You just stated uh, what's the flip side to that statement? Well, I mean, I mean, the flip side of it is that you end up losing control of the house. And no, no. Well, what is the the the, the 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 other statement that I happen to believe as a flamethrower is he lost the house because there was no public option? No, that's not why he lost the house. That's not why he lost the house. I mean, I, you know, the, the reality of it is that Republicans uh, picked up what forty seats. Fifty seats wasn't because of the public option. I mean, and, and frankly, most Americans don't know the public option even is. Uh, most of them don't even understand that. Uh, you know, there's a lot of reasons why Obamacare hurt. One of it was it didn't get implemented until three or four years after it passed. Uh, you know, the other reason is that it was demagogued by Republicans. But whatever the reason, you know, and of course, always, you know, parties tend to lose, the, the presidential party tends to lose power and they'll lose seats in a midterm election. It's sort of the way things usually right. go. Except but, when, you know, except when yeah. Roosevelt, except when Roosevelt came into office and his first 100 days were transformational. He won the midterms. I mean, don't he you? Had, he had 68, uh, well, how he had? I just looked at this the other day, actually. There were basic, I think uh, he had a 200 seat advantage in the House and a 20 or 30 seat advantage in the, in the Senate. I mean, it's a very different, you know, era it than it was. And by the way, you know, it, than it was in, in the 1930s, of course. And, and you know, it, it, look, I'm just saying, if you accept my premise right. that Obamacare cost Democrats the House, I would argue that's a, that's a worthwhile price to pay. Yeah, I don't because with, you, actually, you actually pass something worthwhile. You pass so, something important. You pass what you said you were going to do. If it costs you the house, fine. But that's why when you have two years, and that's all Democrats have to pass something, you got to pass something. Right. Pass something big. Pass something really big. Not this nickel and diamond that you're seeing now from the Senate. Right. That's a mistake. Look, I want you to keep coming back on the show and I'm not trying, but I have to be honest with you. I don't buy your, you know, your premise. I, I, I think that if the Democrats went big, 
uh, and the American people could see, could see quickly the fruits of their labor, of, of the Democratic Party's labor, you would not be able to elect a Republican for 50 more years. If you could. Well, I, I, I wouldn't go that far, but I'm actually agreeing with you. I actually think I think Democrats should go big and they should implement this stuff as quickly as possible so people actually feel it. I think right now, you know, it, what, 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 what I think, which is that they should, they should, they should spend three and a half trillion dollars and versus what I, my analysis tells me is going to happen are two very different things. I may personally think Democrats are being very foolish not to spend as much money as possible, as much as they possibly can. But the reality is that they can't because right. there are two senators who will stop it. And, and if I had some magic wand to change that, I would. It doesn't exist, unfortunately. Right. You, you have to build the system you have. Right, 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 right. Um, we don't have demagogues in the Democratic Party. We don't have Ish. we don't have we don't have any flamethrowers, firebrands. Most part. Can can you win without bringing out the heavy guns? You know, it used to be you would get you would hire a pit bull to be your vice president who would go out there and say the things that, you know, the, the president isn't allowed to say. Is Biden selling Build Back Better? He was in Scranton selling Build Back Better. I know there's COVID. I know holding rallies is freighted with health issues. But it seems to me, before he was killed, I watched Kennedy holding rallies for Medicare. It was going to be folded into Social Security under Kennedy. There's some beautiful speeches that Jack Kennedy gave selling Medicare to the... He, he took it on the road. Obama took Obamacare on the road. I know that that, you know, because of COVID, I don't think Biden has given the full-throated endorsement that he should to build back better, that he could do. And, and so does it reflect in the polls? What are the, what are the, I know this is a, a weird question, but what do the American people think about build back better? I think, I think you could argue that, I hate to say this, I hate to say this. It doesn't really matter. Right. It's a terrible thing to say, but it doesn't matter. Because we don't, I mean, unfortunately, the Senate doesn't work on what's the most popular piece of legislation. It works on who's getting a political advantage from something. Um, and that's the way it works in, you know, a lot of, you know, democracies, unfortunately. I mean, not unfortunately, that's the way it works. And, you know, his plan is very popular. Uh, I think there's a lot of support for it. I think he could make a, do a better job, frankly, of articulating, you know, what that plan is and, and, and why people should support it. He's going on CNN tonight, which I think is great. But at the end of the day, it all comes down to these two senators I'm looking at right next to you, Cinema yeah. and Manchin, what they're willing to accept. And, and here's the bottom line. Joe Biden has no leverage over Joe, over Joe Manchin. Zero. Zero. Because Joe Manchin doesn't need Joe Biden. I mean, I think Joe Manchin wants Biden to succeed. I think he wants to see this bill pass. But ultimately, Joe, Joe Biden can't tell Manchin what to do. And as far as cinema, apparently no one can tell her what to do because she just she acts in this way that no one seems to understand. But they build. So, I mean, is it against you know more about this than I do? Is it against the law for me to sit Joe down and say, you know, uh, we're putting in this bill a uh, we're going to fund a university in West Virginia that's going to create a lot of jobs. And we're thinking of calling it the Senator Joe Manchin. Is that against the law? 
<laughs> I mean, I think it's a great idea. Would but, you, you object know? to a, a university in West Virginia that is just a, a boondoggle and it's named Joe Manchin University? Would you object? Would you have a is that corruption? I don't I think if that's what it takes. I think it's uh, politically that would not sell. I would to, put to whom? To I mean, to the, to the American people. To I mean, I don't think Joe Manchin would want that. Cause it looks like he's, he's, his, his votes being bought. I don't think any, any, but isn't that how it works? Isn't is it who's buying? Not like, who? not like that. Not like that. Well, it's it, the whole playbook has been thrown out. It as as I understood it, there was a time when Lyndon Johnson would bring somebody in and say, you know, uh, I need your vote on the civil rights legislation. I know you're a racist, but we're going to build this power this dam here that will create a lot of jobs for your people. And how many, and how many Southern Democrats did he get to, to vote for civil rights bill? I don't know. Zero. They broke the filibuster. Uh, they, they basically forced them, a ta- they were forced a talking filibuster. But if you're Richard Russell from Georgia, if you're a Democratic Senator, there's nothing that, that Lindon's could have given them that would have gotten them to vote for civil rights bill. But if you nothing. can count votes, then you go to the Republicans and say, oh, well, you know, in, look, in, in the civil rights bill passed with, with more Republicans, I mean, uh, passed with what's the number? More Democrats vote against it than Republicans vote against it. You had Republicans back then who believed in civil rights. You can't do that now. But I, what no I don't rule. understand, you know more about this than I do. It was received wisdom that. The way you get a bill passed is through pork. You 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 get if if I will. How do I? So you have uh, cinema and mansion. They don't want this bill. Let's make them want the bill because it's going to mean we're going to pour money into West. The federal government is going to pour money into West Virginia. That's. I mean, that's just received wisdom on how bills that's get paid. That's not the way politics works anymore in America. It just hasn't. So it's, I mean, it, used to be, so it's the lobbyists who pour the money into. No, it's it's actually not that. I mean, to be honest with you, it's much more about polarization. I mean, it used to be that if you could get Republicans to support an infrastructure bill because they'd want to build something in their district. Now you can't really get that anymore because there's not really any incentive. Republicans are, have, are more incentivized to oppose Whatever Democrats want to do, then they already get money for new 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 roads or new airport in their district. Okay, the game has changed. It's not about parochialism anymore. I mean, some in some some narrow ways it is, but for Republicans it's not. It's about opposing Democrats. So there's nothing you could give to Lisa Murkowski or who's who's relatively moderate for Republican and, and Susan Collins. Nothing you could give them that would get them to support the legislation. Nothing. But but Joe McConnell has convinced them that that's way back in the majority is to oppose this bill. Right. I understand that. But I'm talking about mansion and cinema. You can't buy their vote legally. If I mean, you can't you can't legally buy their vote. That's against the law. Well, what I'm saying is here is I can hear Johnson's voice going, you know, these little kids with no shoes are going to be going to this university and and they're going to every day they walk through that doorframe, they're going to see your portrait and your name and that's not that's not what matters to joe manchin what matters what? to joe manchin is I, I i mean it's hard to tell i don't know what matters to cinema what matters to manchin appears to be looking as moderate as possible for uh voters in west virginia because he's he's literally in one of the reddest states in america he doesn't want to look like i mean when bernie Sanders writes, writes, a, writes an op-ed in a west virginia paper 
trying to pressure Joe Manchin. That's like a campaign contribution to Joe Manchin, right? The one thing Joe Manchin wants to do is differentiate himself from liberals in Washington. Bernie Sanders helped him do that. Right. Um, so, you know, if there was a way to, 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 to use pork to get Manchin along something, they would, but there isn't. And frankly, one thing that, that happened a couple of years ago that actually made it harder they got rid of earmarks in Congress. But aren't they bringing them back? Is, Haven't they brought them back? To bring, I think they're trying to bring them back. But but getting rid of earmarks was a huge problem because it meant that you couldn't pay. You couldn't basically give to some senator. And let, not, not even a bad thing. If you want to pass an infrastructure bill and you have a member who says, I need an airport in my district for my, for my constituents, then you say, OK, fine, we'll put that in there. And that, you know, that's how you get stuff passed. That's how actually legislation often used to get passed. Right, but it's not an earmark, Mark, if the president of the United States as a gift to the state for your vote, it's not in here. Well, where, how do you see this playing playing out? How do you see, uh, are, are they gonna hit the, so for, hang on, we did not commit, we were not, we did not horse race this. We talked about what is, only 10% of Americans know what is in Build Back Better. We did not do a disservice to the American people. We talked about what's Absolutely. in it. So we're entitled to a little, horse racing, because that is somewhat important. What do you see happening by November 1st? Oh, I don't ask me by November 1st, because that I can't answer. But what I have said from the beginning, what I've been saying since the spring, if you read my newsletter, is that something will pass. And I remain completely confident in that prediction. Something will pass, because it is in everybody's interest to pass something. Even Mansion Cinema. I mean, here's the thing. They only have so much leverage because they don't want this thing to fall apart. Uh, Cinema's already in political trouble. I don't think she wants to see this thing fail. Manchin, whenever, no matter what he says, ultimately is better off with a bill passed, especially if he can say, look, I did it. Mm -hmm. Okay. I want to be clear on this point. Both of them are acting like selfish narcissists. I mean, which is an oxymoron, but you know what I mean? Both of them are acting selfishly. Both of them are disrespecting their, 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 their caucus. But at the end of the day, they have their, their line they draw in the sand, and at some point they'll be met. And look, this entire bill is being rewritten, rewritten uh, to, to, to you know, satisfy these two members of the Senate. Right. It's crazy. It's, I don't remember voting for Joe Manchin in, in November 2020, 2020. I don't remember his name being on the ballot. Right. But somehow he gets to have a veto power with this bill. But here, that's where we are. Why can't they and do so, it? Why can't they do it the way they used to, where you just lie about what's in, like the Patriot Act? Nobody read the Patriot Act. You just lie about what's in it. I, I don't. <laughs> you find out. It's like a. It's like no, a, I mean, I don't think that's a good idea. I mean, I, I think that that's. Uh, it's like a Tom Clancy great. novel. Well, don't don't ruin it for me. Don't, don't tell me what's in it. I, I I'll find out. By myself, we're talking with uh, Michael Cohn. He publishes the newsletter Truth and Consequences, and he's a columnist for MSNBC. Please do the show a favor and subscribe to Truth and Consequences right now. That way we can get Michael Cohn to come back. It's always good if he sees a jump. In exactly. Yes. So, yeah, we have to make this worth his time. So subscribe to his newsletter Truth and Consequences. How do they do that? Uh, truthandcons.com. Yeah, just plug it into your into your web into your website, and that's uh, and you will uh, you can subscribe. Yeah, it's um, I, I, I've been subscribing to it all month. Last question, and then I'll let you go. And sure. thank you. Sorry to keep you waiting, and I hope you come back. Uh, what has to be in the bill for the Senate 
and the House to remain under the Democratic Party's control? What what has to be in there? Or it doesn't matter. That is a great question, actually. And I don't think it matters, to be honest. Um, I hate to say this. I'm not convinced that what is in this bill is going to affect what happens. Well, let me take it back. I think one thing I think is actually kind of important is the salt deduction, lifting the salt cap that I mentioned earlier. I think that actually is important. I think from a political perspective. But I think we've reached a point in American politics. I've been wanting to write this. I've written some sort of variation of this piece for a few months now. We sort of have reached an era of the end of politics. And what I mean by that is that outcomes do not matter. Uh, policy outcomes don't matter the way they used to. And I'll give you an example of this. You know, when Donald Trump was Usually president, this is the end of politics. It's like we're in a weird... Kind of like the end of history after the Cold I, War. No, no, no. End of history was, is a, is always misunderstood. So when I say in the politics, I, it's not the... It's, it's sort of a, we're in a weird political moment where politics doesn't matter all that much. And, and what I mean by that is that what matters is tribe. What matters is identity. So I'll give you an example of this. In 2000, when Donald Trump was president, uh, for the first three years, comedy was great, right, before the pandemic. His approval rating never reflected the fact that the comedy was doing well. That is unprecedented in you know, post-war history. Usually, as the economy goes, so goes the approval of the president. Right. And they usually travel together. It didn't happen in Trump's administration. It didn't happen in Obama's administration either. When the economy improved in uh, in the end of his end of his term, it didn't improve his significantly improves approval rating. There was a gap between his approval rating and people's views on the economy. And you're seeing a little bit now with Biden. And what I think is happening is that people simply you can't convince them if they are Republican, they think Biden is bad. If they're Democrat, they think he's good. And ultimately, that there's a very small number of people out there who are. Uh, persuadable. Right. And so I don't know the policy outcomes. Look, in some districts, some things will matter. You know, if you win, if you again, if you're in New Jersey or New York and the salt cap affects you, that might matter. But I'm not sure that this bill, look, it'll help Democrats. It'll give them boost. I don't know that you can say what's in the bill specifically is going to help uh, a member, you know, next year. I will say one thing. What would help Democrats in 2022 is passing a voting rights bill. That's what would help them. And if they were really smart, and I, you know, I'm still optimistic. You never know. Joe Manchin did negotiate this voting rights bill that Republicans blocked on Wednesday. That's the way you win in 2022. Also, you make Puerto Rico and, and, and D.C. a state. And so you add, you know, four senators and about seven, six, seven. Well, that's, that's actually how you do it. Because you're not going to do it through policy. You do it through brute political force. The Democrats are not, well, some are, but a minority not willing to do. And that could be done how quickly you could you could literally uh uh well first of all the house has already passed a dc statehood bill you could well filibuster and pass it in the in, in the senate with 50 votes the problem is mansion won't do that uh you know so it could be done very easily but it won't be it's not going to happen because you know democrats for whatever reason don't want to play hardball and i think it's a mistake now on voting rights yeah there's a possibility I, i'm not i'm not uh, you know mansion negotiated this bill uh, you know, he said you try to get Republicans to go along with it. They're not going along with it. They blocked it. Maybe, maybe this he, he, he sees the light on this issue. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying it's definitely going to happen. It's a possibility. Yeah. But on but that's the best hope Democrats have for 2022, frankly, is getting yeah. expanded voting access. Uh, that's the best thing we can do. Mike Nichols, the, the great director who we lost two years ago, one of the most brilliant minds 
who ever walked the earth, Mike Nichols. I read an interview with him and he said the secret to Hollywood, this was 20 years ago, it was an interview he gave in The New Yorker. He said the secret to Hollywood is never let anybody know what you really want. That way they know what to take away from you. So (laughs) never say to anybody in Hollywood, never confide in anybody what you really want to do or why you're doing this. Let them think you're making a movie just for the money. Don't tell them that your heart and soul is in this movie because they'll take it away from you. And I think cinema and mansion, that's what they're doing. We have no idea what they want. I think, I can't mention, I think it's a lot, it's political. I think it's misplaced, but I think it's political. With cinema, I think it's narcissism. I think she's a narcissist. I think, look at the way, I mean, the way she dresses, look at the way she says to everybody, stare at me, look at me, look at look at my, my pink hair and my unusual clothes, look at me. I mean, there's an element of narcissism in her personality. I think you see it in what she's doing right now. She wants to be the center of attention. She wants this to be about her. I also think, you know, I think Josh Marshall, Talking Points Memo, has, has sort of, has made this point, I think he's right, that there's some element here where she thinks she's the second, she's John McCain 2.0. And this is like she wants to maintain this independent, you know, uh, maverick. That dramatic thumbs down. Right. Yeah. But John McCain wasn't dumb enough to vote against things that actually his party supported. Yeah, she voted against the minimum wage, her dramatic. And she's and she's blocking this particular bill. Right. She's politically. I wrote a piece a couple days ago. The politicians, generally speaking, are not idiots. My point being that most politicians know what they're doing. And we may not agree with what they they do, may not like it, but there's usually some some rationale, some political rationale to it. With cinema, I have no clue what she is doing. And she has torpedoed her career in a way that is is, you know, absurd. I mean, this is a woman who realistically, I'm not making up, could have been a presidential candidate, a, a Democrat, a potential Democratic nominee. She had, you know, the right kind of, I think she's politics. a lawyer. She's, but she's you know, she's a, she's a, she's an interesting, certainly interesting personality. She was if she just kept her head down, support what Biden wanted to do. She's from a swing state. You know, she's a woman. I mean, these things could have really helped her. Instead, she has done this just ridiculous strategy that she's that she's that she's adopted here of basically sticking your finger in the eye of her own president, of her own party, of her own supporters. I don't get it. I don't get it at all. She's, I mean, and she, I think she's torpedoed her career, frankly. I think she is Scarlett O'Hara, who promised herself she would never be poor again. She she was poor, and I think she's she doesn't want to be senator anymore, and there's a big payoff waiting for oh, her. I, see, I, don't, I don't buy that at all. There are a lot easier ways to be rich than be a senator. A lot no, easier No, no, I'm saying she's, not, she's, running, she's up for re-election in 24, I believe. Yeah. She's not even going to run. There's a payoff. She's out there raising money right now for it. She's going to run. You she can think she's... She thinks this is the best political strategy for her. I or, think she's a fool. But Sarah Gideon has like $10 million. I mean, that war chest can be used. You don't have to You don't have to run for re-election. What do you do with the uh, war Sarah chest? Sarah Gideon can't, can't take those $10 million. But she, she, can, she can dole it out and accrue power. $10 million is not much anymore in American politics. Right. Raphael Warnock raised like, what, $7.5 million in the last quarter? I mean, it's... You know, right. you can go to Act Blue and you could raise that much money in a, in, a, in a couple of months if you wanted to. Right. I mean, that's the thing that's crazy. She's relying on lobbyist money, all these corporate donors. I mean, frankly, if she was a, if she was supporting Biden's agenda, she could just you know use Act Blue 
to raise money, you know, small, small donations. That's frankly how a lot of Democrats, have, that's how Bernie Sanders raised as much money as he yeah. did. I just don't think she wants, I don't think she wants to be a senator. I think she's looking at, you know, a big payoff. Again, if she wanted a big payoff, there's lots of better ways to do it. She's, I think she's going to run for reelection. She might get a primary challenge. I think that she thinks, look, Occam's razor. The simplest explanation is that she thinks this is the best way for her to get reelected in Arizona. That's what she thinks. Now, that makes no sense to me at all. None. But it seems to be what she thinks. And, and here's the thing. I will say this. I usually defer to politicians when it comes to stuff like this because they usually know the politics of their state better than I do. In this case, I think she has it wrong. I think Joe Manchin, much as I dis- dislike what he's doing, I think he knows the politics of West Virginia. I think he knows what he's doing. And there's a rationale for what he's doing. With her, it makes no sense at all. Great. Well, thank you. Michael Cohn is the author and publisher of Truth and Consequences. He's a columnist at MSNBC. You were really generous with your time, and I'm sorry I kept you waiting five minutes with my ranting and my raving. No worries. It was really a pleasure. I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you very much. Please come back. And everybody, the best way to ensure that he comes back is check out his (laughs) newsletter, Truth and Consequences. Thank you so much, Michael Cohen. Thank you. Absolutely. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. And we are, I guess, Professor Ben Burgess is... uh, missing in action. I hope something happened to him. I would hate to think that he just blew me off. I hope something really tra- tragic happened. And uh, we have eight minutes before the Hirschenfelds. I think they're here. Here's what I'm going to do. I didn't get to everything I wanted to talk about earlier. And I was talking about critical thinking. I'm just looking at my Notes, And I think I said everything I wanted to say. Let me just check my notes here. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Why don't we do this? Why don't we play an important song by Professor Mike Steinel? And there's there is uh, Dr. Hirschenfeld. Why don't we do this? Uh, Let's play a song by Professor Mike Steinel. I will get a glass of water. And we'll be back with the Hirschenfelds. What you here for? We heard about your song. We think it's seditious. I said, can we talk later? I'm doing the dishes. I said, what's the problem? What's the fuss? They said, we're the FBI. Don't you mess with us. We can lock you up. We can put you away. We can make it so you never see the light of day. I said, tell me, maybe do it. 
From a former student, it said we heard you on the show. You were not prudent. You said the F word, professor. Is that true? We really expected much better from you. I said, Femma made me do it. Femma made me do it. Femma made me do it. And that's all there is to it. Amazon called it was customer service. They said we need to cut it out. You're beginning to hurt us. You made fun of our boss. You better stop now. If you don't, he'll ship you off to Minden now. I said, Thelma made me do it. Thelma made me do it. Thelma made me do it. And that's all there is to it. I got a letter from the lawyer from No Evil Foods who said we don't like your song or your attitude. It's time now, Professor, to cease and desist. The folks I represent are really pissed. I said, Thelma made me do it. Thelma made me do it. Thelma made me do it. And that's all there is to it. That's right. I just wanna do it, I just wanna do it. What me, what me, what me, do it. Yes, baby, do it. It was a choice. Welcome back. Welcome back. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Office hours, Friday night at 8 p.m. Go to the David Feldman Show website and hit office hours, and it'll take you right in. It's time now for everyone's favorite, Ethan Hershenfeld and Dr. Philip Hershenfeld. Dr. Philip Hershenfeld is a Freudian psychoanalyst. And Ethan, I, I have to... I don't owe you an apology. I'm going to be totally honest with you. Well, um, listen, whether you owe it to me or not, I'm expecting one. Okay. I was afraid to watch Thug Thug Jew. Oh, because, because you thought all the, all the hype. I mean, what if it sucks? I, 
Yes. Or it was great. <laughs> I was worried that it was going to be. And the latter, it is, you are a great, great stand-up comedian. And and I, I mean this. And you, you're, what, here, I'm going to indulge me for, it's not, I have one more minute of filibustering b before, so you have to suffer my compliments. I'm, I love it. I love a good ass kissing. There are a lot of comedians who aren't as funny on stage as they are off stage. It's the Joe Ansis phenomenon. He, you know, every, Lenny Bruce and Rodney used to talk about Joe Ansis being the funniest person in the world, but he couldn't bring it up on stage. Hmm. And I was worried that you were, you oh, are uh, as funny on stage and that and man. that and thug thug Jew and all your arrows and your quiver, wordplay, jokes, acting and and it's edgy. It, and people should go to YouTube and watch thug thug Jew. I appreciate uh, that very much. Very much. Seriously. Yeah. No jokes. I appreciate it. I appreciate yeah. the, 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 the words. It means a lot coming from you. I appreciate the support. And, uh, you know, I appreciate uh, I appreciate uh, people watching it and uh, I appreciate comments. Apparently, they're good for the algorithm, even if they say things like die scum. <laughs> that that's good for the algorithm. It's just any comment. Apparently, that's how YouTube works. I'm not a data scientist, but apparently that's even that is good. So feel free to go there and write things like die scum. And that's great for the algorithm. So thank you. Let me ask Dr. Philip Hershenfeld about numbers, the way this culture now is there's the tyranny of numbers. Everything now is reduced to, to data. How many people watch this? How many people gave it a thumbs up? And by the way, go give Thug Thug Jew a thumbs up. And give this yes. show a thumbs up. It helps the algorithm. How dangerous! I don't even know what an honestly. I don't know what an algorithm is. I don't. When I say I want to help it, I want to feed it. You know, I, I I did well in math in high school, but that's where it ended. So I don't. We're trying to feed this dragon called an algorithm. Uh, but it's better to feed it. That's what I understand. They are Google, Google, and YouTube. They're owned by the same company. They monitor everything you're looking at and they come. There's an algorithm that measures what you like. And, and apparently, judging by the stuff that I'm being advertised to what they said, apparently I Google for some reason thinks I'm imminent and I need a diaper. That's just judging by what I. I, you know, I don't know where they got that idea. No. Those uh, are actuarial tables. That's really the the tyranny of numbers, the idea that something is better because it's got more thumbs up, more people are watching it. Ted Sarandos defended a special on Netflix that was being protested yesterday. And he said, you know, uh, you may not agree with this, but... The, the numbers don't lie. The the subscribers to Netflix, it's the number one show on Netflix, as though that's defending what was 
said during that special. Your comments. That was a little bit. That was a little bit reductionistic. Oh, doctor. No, 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 doctor. You go ahead. Well, why don't we go ahead? Yes. Okay. So first of all, I'm David. I'm still waiting for your apology to me, but we'll put that off for a while. For not watching. For anything. I mean, he he got apology. What am I, chopped liver? (laughs) By the way, what's wrong with chopped liver? That's a good point. You are chopped. You know what? Both of you, to me, are chopped liver. My grandmother's chopped liver. It's the heart attacks. Yes. Numbers are very powerful. They help. Could could you lean? I I don't mean to be. Let me speak to your colleague. Could you ask the doctor to lean in forward? Yeah, lean in like Sheryl Sandberg teaches us. Lean in. So we can, speaking of YouTube and and all those people. Oh, that's Facebook, I guess. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, doctor. (laughs) These numbers allow us to be much more precise in all sorts of important things, like like weather forecasting, like health forecasting. Shoe fit, the the fit of your shoe. Yes. So, So I would not... I would not dismiss the importance of numbers in our culture. Um, However, they're also used for crass commercial gain. And probably we we all suffer in that way. I'm very susceptible to it because the whole game in social media is the number of interactions. It's just the it's the quantity as opposed. So like if I get change in a store, I would much rather have five ones than a five. Those five bills, it just feels, I mean, you feel richer, even though you know, if you know any math, if you know very basic math, you know that it's the same. But those right. five ones, man, that bulge in the wallet, that right. feels great. Yeah. Right. Yeah. When I was a kid, I had a friend who was a Schwitzer. You know what a Schwitzer is? Yeah. Someone who uh, makes Sweats. makes make a pain in the ass. No, but he tries to make himself, he puffs himself up. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> So this guy, he came from a wealthy family, but his father would give him a $20 bill on a Saturday night, which was a lot of money in those days. So he would go make change and he'd get 10 ones and one 10. And then he would wrap them up with the 10 on the outside. So when he was taking a girl out, she thought this guy, you know, it was really flush, right. and I am very sorry to say that this worked for him. <laughs> How, is he still with us? Any news from this? I hope not. <laughs> I, I hope he is not. So big, big data and mm-hmm. constantly, you know, if you're not a scientist, you're not trying to save lives, you're using big data for your yeah. self-esteem. But big data does self save lives. For example, they look at big data and they see, just to make up an example, they see people who bought a lot of antacids for a period of 18 months. And then they came down with some kind of GI cancer. 
So they can be, begin to make correlations between symptoms and how early symptoms start and maybe get a jump on some disease. So big data has its positive side. Yes. Let me ask your colleague a question. When you hear the term GI, yes. what, what, what is the first thing that comes to your mind and what should be the what should be the first thing that comes to well, somebody's as mind? As a child of the 70s, I think of the, the doll, G.I. Joe, which right. was an action figure. He wasn't a gastroenterologist, G.I. Joe. <laughs> there was not. And okay. um, G. there was G.I. Joe, who was a World War II guy. And then there was Action Jackson. And I think Action Jackson was a Vietnam guy, if I'm not mistaken. They were both green, but I think one of them was white and one of them was African-American. Now that I'm thinking of the names. But, now, now, Dr. Hershenfeld, I'm being yeah. serious here. I'll, I'll ask your colleague here first. I was not allowed to have a G.I. Joe doll growing up. And look what happened to you. I know. Yeah. I'm afraid to but see a I... gastroenterologist. <laughs> but I, I wasn't my mother. And so... She said, <laughs> I'm not making this up. You can have your sister's Ken doll. Uh-huh. Right. This, and if your friends want to dress up Ken in camouflage at their house, that's fine. But Ken must come home in his original beach wear. This is the uh -huh. truth. That's I'm not being funny. Advising you to hide hide evidence. That was your mom's suggestion. What was my mother's motivation, and and did that make me a pacifist? Was that gonna, like does I, that I'm help? Gonna preempt, I'm going to preempt the anecdote that I know that my father is is queuing up. <laughs> I've heard it. <laughs> I hit it out of the park. It's the story of. Well, no, 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 no. We haven't heard it before. Don't. This is what kids do. Dr. Hershenfeld, you wouldn't believe the way my Yes, you would believe the way my kids treat me. And you would probably think I deserve it. OK, so I won't do that. I won't I won't poop on his anecdote. But instead, I will give a countervailing anecdote. Well, we haven't heard the anecdote first. Please, I'm saying preemptively, please. here it is. Preemptively, I will say, yes, your mom was right, and it is healthy, <laughs> given the world we live in, to dissuade and even, by whatever means possible, prevent the boys from playing war and playing with guns and, and playing cowboys and Indians and playing all of those things. It's a good idea in playing gangsters and all that stuff. I think it is a good idea to keep... to. You know, gun control starts at home. That's what I say. So no, you know, uh, no pea shooters, no uh, water pistols, no water cannons, no rubber bands, none of this where you do the rubber band thing. No punching, no hitting. Keep your hands to yourself. Keep your hands in your pockets. You know, that's a great rule that most, more, more parents need to. It's not just keep your hands to yourself. Don't, don't even keep them to yourself. Don't even touch yourself. Stick your hands <laughs> in your pockets. When you leave the house, and, and then when you get home at night, you can take them out of your pockets. I mean, the world would just be a way better, way better place. And if the teacher asks you a question, you just go, eh, None of the kids raising their hands, just a lot of shrugging. That's what I, 
Because nobody really knows the, I love this idea that if you think, nobody knows the answer, you should shrug if you think you know. Raising your hand, it's 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 too assertive. It's arrogance is assertive and nothing ever good comes from somebody raising their hand. No, never, never. The, I, the shrug sort of sounds like, I'm willing to take a crack at it. Right, I, I, right. Yeah, I don't know. No, the intellectual know. certitude is, yeah. every time I see somebody raising their hand, I think, yeah. bad cab ride. You're hailing yeah, a bad. So, Dr. Hirsch, that was, that was so great. Like, that was, so just, that was so brilliant, what you just said. That was so uh-huh. effing brilliant. That was like world class. I'm telling you, that oh, was world class. My and God, so, that was fun. And so off the mark. <laughs> <laughs> All right, go ahead. Let's no, I mean, I, I, I hate to belabor the point. I'm sleep deprived. But people, oh. if you think, if you're in class and you think you can answer the question, you should shrug. You should have your hands in your pocket. That's absolutely, and just shrug. That's so much better than raising your hand. It's ostentatious. Go ahead, Dr. Hershenfeld. Let's hear the anecdote that the kid wouldn't let. I don't even remember the anecdote. (laughs) However, my learned colleague, (laughs) who I don't like disagreeing with, he is missing the difference between play and non-play. Play is called play because it is play. And, okay, and it is not real action in the real world. Can it go overboard? Yeah, of course it can. That's where parents come in. And, um, but, but just to play at certain things is completely within the realm of normalcy. Um, Animals play, little animals play, little lions play attacking each other. They don't attack each other when they're grown up. But they don't have, but they don't have like toy chainsaws. (laughs) (laughs) So it's about the props. That's what I'm saying. It's fine if you play, if you want to play gangster, but just, you know, just like pretend strangle with you know do some strangle not with the guns. I'm saying I'm saying the toy the toy guns and toy weapons. Okay. I'm I'm not I'm not in favor of, of them. The, the, before, but I, but it be, is before, true. Play is play. Yeah. But before the uh, the anecdote, I've noticed even now with my kids, I I will play with them like verbally say things that I don't mean. I'm, I was telling a friend that like I called my son yesterday because I just I love him so much. I just wanted to call him. But I couldn't say, hey, I love you so much. I miss you so much. I wish you never grew up. I wish I had turned you into an emotional cripple. So you never left the house and you were living in the basement, peeing into a mason jar. And I could just go downstairs and see you whenever I want. That's what I really wanted to do. But I can't. So I just call him up and tease him and tell him I just I called him up. and said, I just want to remind you, I can't stand you. That 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 is because that's more acceptable than my crying. That's because it's more acceptable to you 
and you were you are personally uncomfortable with calling them up and saying, you know, I was thinking of you. I really miss you. You were such a great kid. You're such a great adult. However, but you know who else would would be uncomfortable with the call you're describing? His kid. Exactly. Uh, that's yes, right. right. Yes. I mean, yes, the teasing in the right, yeah, with the right history and the right the right approach. Absolutely. It conveys the same message. Right. Oh, I called him up to say, I don't miss you. I just want you to know I'm fine without you. Instead of you ruined my life by... I'd call this affectionate abuse. <laughs> wow. It's I call it ribbing. Ribbing is another word. Right. It's affectionate abuse. That's correct. Right. Wow. And I never know when to stop. Like, I, it's not That's the other problem with me is I'll say it's not good enough for me to say to my child, I love you and I miss you, period. It's like ever since you left, <laughs> my life has been spiraling downhill. You've left a gigantic hole. And that, that's not, you know. There is, there is an actual message hidden in all that pseudo-aggression. And the actual message is, I miss you. And you're afraid of saying that. Whether the kid can handle it or not, that's his problem. Right. You're getting, you're getting, let me put it this way. You're getting like world class free. I'm getting free. You're treat getting I Fifth Avenue treatment at Essex Street. <laughs> I mean, I, I know, I know. I'm so like, even, he's should. even in that. He's in the Eames chair. There's the I know the credentials, and you're getting the full treatment for for bupkin. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> All right. So what what is the anecdote that 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 your colleague? No, but, I think that he was, I was just thinking he was going to tell an anecdote about, I believe it's a photo of my brother as a little kid asleep. It's a very cute photo of him. He's asleep as a toddler. He's got a gun in his hand, a toy gun. A blue so, gun. Yeah, a blue gun, which he apparently loved to go up to people and say, bang, bang. But without casting aspersions on, on, on blood relatives, I will say he's got some aggression problems, this guy. <laughs> well, I want to yeah. ask you, this is, this is really great, because I was going to ask you about what I noticed about my son and my daughter and gender and guns. So this is, this is what little time we have left. This is, mm -hmm. and this is going to bleed into the Dave Chappelle controversy. Are you are you trying to decide whether to get her the pink AR-15 or the yellow <laughs> AR-15? It's that gender gun because I've seen those both in the catalog. Go with the pink. It seems like a cliche, but it's what she wants. So. Okay, I'm being I'm being really serious here. Um, I want to ask you about Dave Chappelle saying gender is a fact. In a second, I want to find out what exactly is the definition of gender. But I also want to tell you what was one of the most shocking things of being a parent. I don't know if you know this, but in the traditional sense, the wrong sense, but it was what I heard when I was growing up, you know, being a masculine role model, which is a terrible term. Right. But I heard that growing up and 
and I always said that I don't think of myself as a masculine role model. I don't have, uh, my tastes are not masculine. I don't watch football. I don't hunt, you know, I, I just read and, you know, and the minute my sons came out of the womb, they were aggressive and everything was a gun. I, I, it blew me away. Uh, their drawings were, were of explosions and guns. Uh, usually there was a, a pompous, arrogant Hebrew with bad hair plugs who the guns were aimed at. I don't know who that, his initials were David Feldman. I don't know who has the initials David Feldman. No, but, the, and, and when he played, he would pick up, it would, he would pick up a branch, pow, 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 everything was a gun. It doesn't need an actual plastic gun. Right. He'd pick up a stick, and that will become his gun, because he's playing in his imagination. Not my daughter. Right. Okay. So, is that, a pen is that the penis? Let me ask Ethan, your colleague. Does that get down to a penis? If your penis is a stick, you have to see a urologist immediately. <laughs> Especially if the bark is coming off. <laughs> that could be serious. But, you know, the good thing is if your penis is a stick, you can tell how old you are by the rings around your penis. That is correct. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know what that meant. Um, so how much of that is I, I I don't have kids. I have puppies. I have dogs. Well, I what's the data? I mean, I didn't, if you were to look at, I, I think the question you're getting at is, is the the fact that girls, on average, let's say, aren't picking up sticks and shooting each other to play, but boys are. Does this suggest that there's something innate about gender beyond the physical? That right? That's what we're getting at here. That's I'm just no. I'm asking whether or not I should cancel my Netflix subscription this is what it gets down to that's all i'm asking i wouldn't i wouldn't do it mostly because of the swedish dramas and the the, the, the central american crime show so if you go deep if you go, if you go deep into the netflix netflix catalog and you have even a scintilla of interest in exotic languages you can you could spend the rest of your days as a breathing mammal in a state of bliss it's incredible what's out there i watched a thing about a woman in Stockholm, it's called uh, it's called Snubba Cash. I don't know what Snubba is, but it's like it, this is a story about a woman. By day, she's an entrepreneur. She's got a startup going. She has investors. She's and by night, her brother-in-law is a gangster. So she's she's um, she's got one foot in both of these worlds. It's it's incredible. It's fantastic. And the subtitles. Then I'm watching one that that's called um, Cartel de las Sopas, which is Cartel of Snitches or the Rat Cartel. It's like a terrible soap opera, but it's fantastic. It's it's in Medellin and this family and the drugs and the Americans. And, and when they cut to New York for these one scenes, it's hilarious. They cut to New York, but they don't have the production values to go to New York. They use the same establishing shot over 
over and over. It's around sunset over the Ed Koch Bridge in every single episode. It's that shot. And when they talk to the American cops, they're wearing what looks like cop uniforms from the high school musical. It's like brown with like a star that someone cut out with her. And they're speaking English occasionally, but mostly Spanish. It doesn't make any sense, but it's fantastic. Anyway, do not cancel Netflix. Under no circumstances, do not cancel that. That is that so great. That is yeah. so great. Even don't you have to divulge that you're a major share owner in Netflix? I don't. I don't think I. I have. No, I don't think I own. Oh, no, I think. No, no, but I mean, oh, but I'm in a movie that's coming out on Netflix in a couple of weeks. Right there's that. That's so. But this was. That's full disclosure. Thank you. You know, if you got up, I was watching the the people who walked out yesterday in Los Angeles and they were great and and real I thought they made a great case if they <clears throat> if you got up and said what you just said they would have walked back in no no they, no they would have they would have you know made you they, you, you would be the most beloved employee at Netflix just to. Oh, oh, in, in response. To the even the people who were walking out would have would have loved that. So. Um, also, Icelandic ones. Anytime there's a show in Iceland and there's a volcano and then there are people coming back from the dead because they were buried in coal. It's incredible. <laughs> I love all that shit. Just bring get more. I want more. So so gender is not a fact is what you're saying. I, I am not even going to get into this whole thing. I, I literally know nothing about it. I know nothing about it. And I'm I, I'm half a century into existing here on the planet in one one particular gender. But I, I honestly believe here's what I think about gender. I think it's the same about New Yorkers. People say, oh, are you a New Yorker? Is he a New Yorker? And, and oh, he's only oh, I've been here 10 years. I'm a New Yorker. Oh, he just got here. He's a New Yorker. No. Here's what I've always said to people, because I grew up in New York. I say, if you say you're a New Yorker, you're a New Yorker. That's it. The minute, the minute I don't go in front of the snobbery, you, the minute you say you're part of the group, you're oh in the group. God. It's the same thing with gender. If you say, I'm, I'm female, fine, you're female. Great. I'm a male, I'm not a male, I'm half male, I'm a, you know, whatever you are, that's fine. Whatever you right. say you are, you are. Who am I to say? I don't know what you, I mean. Go, guys, Zygazint. Go, enjoy it. Do your thing. That's what I say. Oh, my God. He's right. He's absolutely. So, all right, hang on for. I have to hang on for one second. Let me just gather. That's unbelievable. When you're doing stand, you, I, I'm going to send you a transcript of this stuff. You have to do. I, I'm just. That is some of the. That is unbelievable. I, I hate to kill. I hate to kill the moment, but that is one of the most brilliant things I've heard said about this. Seriously, okay, I'm sticking it. I'm sticking it in my act. <laughs> Thank you. Oh my god. Um, I didn't want to weigh in on it because I'm really trying to focus this next album on animals, on the animal <laughs> kingdom, and then this would require me to talk about humans. But I guess well, I, I could. There's a together. transcript to the show. I'm going to send it to you. That was. And the okay, other thing. You. Go ahead, doctor. You keep threatening that you're going to hire somebody, which I think means pay them to go through all our old right. rips and take out the best of them 
and make something out of it. I know. I'm going to do that. We talked because I talked to the record company. They like the idea. So I'm going to I'm going to go back and do that. It's very easy to do. You, you look at the old episode and you click ahead every five seconds and you see when everyone's smiling and then you stop and you listen when there's life right. moments. It's, it's, yeah, yeah. It's, cool. it, it's I. I anyway, this I, is going to be this is my only chance to make it. <laughs> what would you do if without without let me ask Ethan. Mm-hmm. If your father were to suddenly become yeah, have, a, have a higher, a low, like a, a sexier IMDb rating than me, <laughs> if, if he became a celebrity for the wrong reasons, yeah, this would be the wrong re- like you know this is this is not the right. He should not be famous for, for this. What would he do? What would he do with the fame? How do you think? I, I mean, he's a guy, I've known him my whole He'd life. He'd buy a nicer um, scythe, right? scythe, scythe. I feel like this is a this is a guy who very quickly, you're going to see him on the cover of TMZ and <laughs> under, a, um, under a mountain of coke and whores. <laughs> but he's not, but he's not, he won't, he won't give vent to those propensities until... Until the yeah the, the fame the fame will be the gateway drug for him to those other drugs. Well, I, I'm afraid to ask. Would would you be at this point in your life, Doctor Hershenfeld? We all want to be. It's human nature to want to just be famous, even infamous, just for the. Yeah. What would you do with it? Or would you be afraid of it? No, I'm a bit. What the hell do you think I'm doing on this show? I'm a bit, <laughs> I'm a bit of an exhibitionist. So I like this sort of thing. I still remember how it felt when I made my bar mitzvah speech at age 13. And all these people were looking at me and listening to me. I loved it. So, what did you? How much money did you make at your bar mitzvah? That's another story. Um, Did you send thank you notes? I still haven't sent the thank you notes. <laughs> my mother almost killed me. The fact that I'm here is just an accident <laughs> because people would hand me an envelope. I take out the cash, stuff in my pocket. <laughs> oh, she never knew who gave what. <laughs> In those days, it was 5 or 10 or $20. That was the whole range. But when that person's kid got permission, how do you know what to give them if you don't know what they gave you? <laughs> to this day, to this day, my mother, if, if, I, if she has a drink and there's a lull in the conversation, did you thank the Sobels? Did you ever thank the Sobels? I'm not making that up. This is like she... No, thank you, notes. Um, yeah, I still want to be famous, right, Ethan? Don't well, that's you? a funny thing. A, a no, thank you note. <laughs> no, thank you. No, thank you. Here, I'm sending it back. No, thank you. My aunt Mimi, until she p- passed away, would send me on my birthday five dollars, and okay. right, like I'm married, um, I've got kids, and every <laughs> every birthday a card with five dollars would come and then my mother or 
they were sisters, would say, did you get the $5 from Aunt Mamie? You didn't send her a thank you note for $5. Mm-hmm. Now, there was a time when I was perceived as a successful comedy writer. And my mother would say to me, would call me at the office and say, you didn't send your Aunt Mimi a thank you note. And I said, "For five, I'm going to write a thank you note for five dollars? Yes, you are. So I wrote my Aunt Mimi <laughs> telling her to stop sending me five dollars. It's prohibitive. The time I'm spending right now thanking you for the five dollars, I'm losing way more money thanking you. But you just spent at least three minutes talking about Aunt Mimi, which leads me to believe that you appreciated it. I thought it was a hostile gesture. I said there was no cost of living adjustment. I'm getting the same $5 that I got 20 years ago. Okay. So I think I thought it was a hostile gesture on Aunt Mimi's part. Sending me. Mara, I think this is uh, one of the things that's great about Venmo or PayPal. Like, then it would have been really easy. You could have just clicked on like a heart. <laughs> we have to wrap it up. Did we hear the anecdote? Did we hear the well, anecdote? The anecdote was just the gun. It was just the gun in the in the in the photo. That's all. Right. And we'll we'll, we'll I would like to continue the conversation about gender uh, next week. Oh, um, can I make a plug? Yeah, um, I just want to say something. Don't listen. Don't listen. Oh yeah. Okay. Doctor Hershenfeld. Why? What do we do with him? Yeah, just let him be. He's he's a genius. He's a genius. That's right. What do we do with him? He really is. Right. I watched the. You really are. Watch. Well, everybody should watch Thug Thug Jew. God, plugging it. I really appreciate it. Um, I'm. I've been doing the math. We're. we're uh, it's. It's really getting some views now, and it's very exciting, especially during this damn pandemic, which is still going on and, and wreaks such havoc on the performing arts. Um, but I do want to say, speaking of the performing arts, November fourth, which is a, a mere two weeks away now, please come to Stand Up New York. I think it's a seven o'clock show, but send me a note. It's Stand Up New York on West Seventy Eighth Street, and it's going to be a really fun show, really fun lineup, and I'm doing a, a half hour of new material. And um, some of it might not be new if you've been watching this show, because maybe I'll uh, steal from us. But um, fun show. It's a beautiful. It's a it's one of the best one of the two or three best rooms in New York. Stand up New York, West 78th, right off of Broadway. And one guy who I'm friendly with named Dave from California, who I met just through Instagram live stuff during the pandemic. He's flying in New York for the first time to see the show. That's so people are coming. Yeah, people are coming to see it. So stand up New York, November 4th, 7 p.m. show. Very funny lineup with uh, Becky DeVaduccio and Steve Cohen and Michaela Fagan. Come to the show, please. Great, great. Thank you. The Hershenfelds. Thank you. Thank you. Amazing. Amazing. It was amazing. And go uh, download or stream Thug Thug Jew on YouTube. I promise you uh, it's as it's even better than, I know it's hard to believe, but it's even better than his appearances on this show. We'll be back with Emil Guillermo right after this. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics 
a comedy too. Now tell a dirty joke if you want him to. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for writing. Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show To get your ears on right, buckle in real tight He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way Welcome back. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Thank you so much, Professor Mike Steinel. Office hours this Friday night at 8 p.m. Go to davidfeldmanshow.com, hit office hours button. It'll take you right into the the portal. And we start at 8. I hold court, if that's what you want to call it, until about 9.30. And then... Everybody else <clears throat> takes over, and it's great. You, you meet a much better class of people at office hours, like our next guest. He is the host of the PETA podcast, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. He's a columnist for ALDEF, the Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund. And I watch you, I guess you stream to all platforms, but I watch you on Twitter. You you stream Emil Amok, Emil's Takeout for about an hour, and I, I watch it on Twitter. Unmute yourself, sir. You have to unmute yourself. Oh, oh yeah. David, thank you for, for uh, mentioning that. It's great. Uh, the- you talk, you're, you're very uh, entertaining to watch. You talk very f- fluidly. Glibly. Yeah, glib, glib. Although that's an insult. Isn't glib an insult? Uh, it's one syllable, and it usually it, uh, it indicates a facility, a facility. No, I've heard uh, glib, like you're being glib as a put down. It can be. But Why? It also, it, could, it, it shouldn't be, though. Glib just means, hey, you know, you're you're able to talk easily about stuff, important stuff, and maybe even make a point. So, so glib. Um, oh, so the because re- I've been accused in a writing room of being glib, like uh, you're just being glib. So you're saying things that appear to be funnier than they they won't end up in the script. 
Right. You know, it's a kind of a weird Schadenfreude put down. If you're glib, it's people who haven't thought of it putting you down for you thinking about it and saying it sort of off the top of your head, right? Mm -hmm. And so it, it's a kind of a weird, sometimes glib can be a positive thing, but I think a lot of times you're right. A lot of people put down, oh, you're so glib. You're so, yeah. you know, you're just saying things and you're not like really meaning right. anything. Yeah, but you laughed at it or whatever. Anyway. Yeah. So, but I Why, think now let me ask you a question. You're a, yeah. a world class vegan. <laughs> well, I wouldn't say world class, but I do eat bitter melon, and that's an international world type of, uh, uh, you know, bitter gourd. Have you? When was the last time you had bitter gourd? I, I don't know Not what bitter. I don't know what bitter gourd is. I, I don't mean bitter gourd done. Some guy you met the other day. No, bitter gourd. It's a, it's a green furrowed warty looking cucumber looking thing and it's a uh, bitter melon is what it's called but it has nothing it's not nothing like a honeydew but it's it's an asian asians love bitter melon and it has medicinal purposes and so i eat that so you know i it, i'm going off track a little bit but you said well i'm looking at you i'm looking at the monitor yeah and i'm looking at you and i'm looking yeah. at me yes yes you uh now granted i haven't had any sleep yeah uh, you look you look kind of tired there David. yes i am i'm incredible yeah. i'm not getting any sleep now do you CPAP sleep machine is it a cpap you know, they're, they're recalling all the cpap machines so i hope you you know how much sleep do you get machine. how much what how much sleep do you get you know it's funny you mention this because i only get about uh Usually I get about four or five hours, unfortunately. I used I had a CPAP machine because I was part of that trend where they try to put you on, oh, take a sleep test and then we'll give you a CPAP machine. And I was sleeping well through the night. Little do it, did I know that there's they're recalling all the CPAP machines now because they've got little particles that could kill you, essentially. I thought CPAP was for people who choke in the while they're sleeping. Yeah, it's uh, it's a C it's it's a, a sleep apnea device that that blows air into you. Uh, I used to say that it was, uh, you know, you get a CPAP machine and it's a guaranteed blowjob every night. But, uh, okay. But it works right. to keep the I'm airflow. pretending I didn't get that. Huh? I'm pretending I didn't get yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's the, way, that's the way you bully in a writer's room when... No one laughs. That's the old, uh, the, the Jews in the jelly, or the, the Jews in the jelly, the Jews in the deli, the writers, you know, just looking at each other and just nodding, saying, yeah, that's funny. No, there are, I have other, no, the way you bully in a writing room it's is it. you laugh at their bad stuff and <sighs> not laugh at their good stuff. So you ah, condition them. Yeah, and you condition them to be yeah. bad so you look better. That is and deep. then you can and if somebody says, "What are you doing?" I, I want to I want to support this person. I'm being support, but you're only laughing at the bad stuff. I know I don't want to humiliate him, but what I'm really doing it's like training a dog. Yeah, you're you're rewarding bad behavior, so you're the funniest one in the room. These are tricks. I teach this at my comedy writing master's class. Yeah, how to. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm glad I, I, I just picked that up. All right, so now you're trying to get at the fact that 
You were looking at you. And, and you look, you. you're handsome. And I look like I'm ready for Halloween. <laughs> I look like, like, I look like, hey, hey, dial it back a little. You know, we don't want to be too scary on Halloween, Feldman. Just... <laughs> Now, David, look. I thank you for for calling me handsome. Uh, I, I compared look, to I, me. Compared to me. Oh, compa- oh, compa- oh by comparison. Oh, yeah. You just took it down. You took the compliment. Yes. Down. You made it more realistic. Right. Okay. Yeah. True. Now okay, you you right. as and, a on. I first met you. You were on television every day. That's right. Are you able to watch yourself on television without uh, being people- hypercritical? The old things that I did on VHS <laughs> back when we, when I when I first met you, uh, no, I was I never liked to watch myself. And actually, I heard what you're saying to the, the uh, you know in the earlier segment about fame. Local TV fame is about a good level of fame. Yes, it's a good. It's, a good, it's not too much. It's not too little. People will uh, except when you're a local TV reporter and you're brown, they'll stop you and say. Geraldo, I love everything you did. <laughs> Willow Brook, I love that. You know, <laughs> that, but that's true. You're a brown guy on television, a local reporter, and they think, can, can you show me how you knocked on that door and you got that bad guy on TV right. admitting that he stole money from the old people? You know, that's a kind I of I pitched a show 20 years ago to Comedy Central to Jim Sharp, and it was... <laughs> It was called Local Hero. And we the idea was you would, tr- Chekhov said, there is nothing more disgusting than a local celebrity. And so I thought it would be really funny to travel around the country and find local celebrities, but like, you know, in two, you know, in fourth tier markets. Yeah. Like and Sacramento, not even <laughs> lower, just go Fresno, Fresno, Fresno right? Fresno. So Chico, Chico, you Ray. know, the number one. We So I made a fake one uh, of, of the, we made up a fake DJ who had the number one morning show in Bakersfield. Ah, yeah. And he, we interviewed him <laughs> talking about the burden of local celebrity. And uh, they thought it was real. Anyway, uh it's tough. It's sort but of you like, leave uh, a twenty-five like mile radius, and nobody yeah. knows who you are. Yeah, I mean, you can just there's like a line that you step over, and you're completely anonymous. <laughs> right, right. But within the within the limits of right. fame, the city limits of fame. Right. You, you people will buy you drinks. They'll give you donuts. They'll let you, you know, you know. They'll give you a free bag of potato chips. That's what you get. You know, at the convenience store. Now, right? did That's you have your eight by tens in pizzerias? Oh, I did better than that. I had a caricature of myself. The, the Palm Restaurant was a chain. Yeah. And yeah. They, would, they would put caricatures of local celebrities. And in San Francisco, the Palm, before before it went under, uh, they had my, my, my caricature up on the wall. And I, my, my current wife, which is my wife of the last 30 something. It's always good to call, to refer to her as your current wife. The implications <laughs> really lead. Uh, it's going to be for a great night tonight when you. She's the wife of the. She, she is the breaking news wife. Uh-huh. 
<laughs> so we, our first day, we went to the Palm, and I, they sat us underneath my caricature, and I could say, see that. That's character. This is a real me. This is a real me. Right. Anyway, uh, but lo- that kind of local fame is kind of cool. But because it's not awesome. overwhelming, it's manageable. But it, but remember, in the eighties, it was a three network universe, no social media, and it was Intense. it was overwhelming at, at that point. Now I don't know what it would be like doing local news because who watches it? And there's so many different things pulling at people's attention. In it's social it's media. funny. When I, my first job when I went to San Francisco was working in the newsroom at KRON. This is the early to mid 80s. And I didn't watch that much local news. But when it was you, Udell and Rita Ch- Shannon? Rita Channing. Rita Channing. Shannon. Yeah. Oh, Channon, right. Channon. Who Channon. is it? I, was just b- both of them, by the way, you would just they look like, you know, something out of a Ralph Lauren catalog. Uh, and you you couldn't take your eyes off them just because they're and I noticed then I got used to all you people. Yeah. But I noticed that if you would go to a, like a diner, people would just they're, they're so accustomed to staring at you. There's a guy named Ernie Anastas who's been on oh, local, yeah. local, ABC, right? Here in New York. I mean, yeah, I grew no, up. ABC. Yeah. And yeah. his eight by 10 is on in every pizzeria everywhere. And I was at a Mexican restaurant about five years ago. And, and there's Ernie Anastas. And I thought, well, there it makes sense because every restaurant I go to in New York City has an eight by 10 of Ernie Anastas. And I couldn't take my eyes off him. Just because I'm yeah. so accustomed to watching him on television. And did you find that where people just couldn't take their eyes off you? Not because they're just, it's a habit of just staring at you. Well, it's, yeah, they think they know you. And so you have all the worst things about fame, say, if I were a big Hollywood star, which, you know, I'm not. But, uh, you know, you have all the worst of that, but you have the, you know, the, but then when they recognize you, they, you know, they'll usually try to do something nice. I, it did happen. Look, one thing they don't do now that they did then, they asked for your autograph because writing something and having your right now, they asked for selfies. And now it's less and less because I'm not on tell. Who's television. the most famous person you've met? Oh, God, I don't know. This is a. You know, uh, from my kid days, I would say Will, Willie Mays. I would say right. it'd have to be meeting Willie Mays. Wow. And uh, and who is famous- Willie Mays? Who's Willie Mays? I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, he was a black guy. I know. I, I, I was part of. We had a Willie club when I was growing up, and it wasn't the kind of. It was Willie Star? It was Willie Stargell, Willie McCovey, and Willie Mays. And depending on how you played in Little League, you got to be. Really? Yeah, we were we loved our willies and we the willies. We yeah, played the hard to go yeah. ahead. Well, well, just Willie Mays. I mean, you know, you asked me for a famous person, I couldn't think of anything but Willie Mays. But mine was, was Willie Clinton. I met well, Willie Clinton. <laughs> I met Willie Clinton. I mean, boy, you know, he has really soft. He got out of the hospital uh this week and yes. I thought, you know, the thing that I remember most about meeting uh, Willie Clinton was how soft his hands were. Well, he he's got a lot of moisturizer. 
a lot of a lot of lotion on that man's yeah. hands. Yeah. Hey, hey, listen, David. I I listen to your show. I'm sorry. Can I, can, can I confess that? I apologize. I listen, and, and you know, I I've discovered meditation. I've always wanted to say, hey, look, I, let me help you a little bit. You know, you went on. I in my column this week. I I'll say two names, and I know what kind of reaction because I've listened to your show. I said some things about Colin Powell and Dave Chappelle. Right. And I I just know I heard your show and you know I it was unnecessary the level of animus that you showed uh, during your show. And you know I I think there's a way to be equanimous about Colin Powell and about Dave Chappelle. I mean I I share some feelings that you have about both those guys, but you know I I wrote my column on the ALDEF blog, the Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund dot org slash blog this week, praising Powell. And I, I know there's that point of contention about 2003 and about the speech and the blot on his, his history. But, David, that was 2003. It's over. You're, are you being are you putting me on? No, I'm being serious. I, I I heard the show. I know well, I know what you mean. I, I, and you're right. You have the right to, to go off on Powell. He he wasn't a good guy in general. He wasn't he, he wasn't a good guy for that particular moment, which is a big effing moment, right? Mm-hmm. We know that. He called it a blot on his on his not just resume. It's his entire life. Yeah. I mean, but, are you going to measure Hitler? By well, the entire I, 15 years of his rule? I mean, the, right? I mean, he was a vegan. I he think. was a vegan and his watercolors were pretty good. Why should you just judge? Why does everything have to come down to one moment in your life? Like OJ. Well, see, see, this is what OJ I, had a I, I bad was, night with Nicole. Are, are you going to forget how night. great he was? And look, and the gloves, the gloves didn't fit. So I'm, I'm just saying. I'm just saying I heard you and I thought, well, tell me the good. Okay, so, well, first of all, thank you for being one of the few people who listens to my show. That's always good. I I just thought I you asked me earlier, do I, uh, you know, get some sleep? Sometimes I put I'll put my my podcast thing on and I'll go to sleep and randomly it'll come up. On the David Feldman show uh, on the queue. And there it was. You're going off on Colin Powell. And I had just written this glowing article about, you know, what the lessons we can learn from Colin Powell. Because, look, here's the thing. As a BIPOC, right, black indigenous person of color, I have a different view about Powell. Powell. You know, he's not the sharp, elbowy uh, elitist. He didn't go to West Point, went to City College, got C's and D's, was ROTC, and he rose. Right. Now, we know you don't rise without having those sharp elbows. You we do, you don't rise without having, you know, a fair amount of ambition. Same problem right. with Obama, right? But the fact is, for a person of color, you look at him and you say, "Guy from the Bronx, look how 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 high he rose," and you have to admire him. And for Asian Americans, I write primarily for an Asian American audience. He's the kind of guy who can unite. Not more than 90% of the Asian Americans, because we're talking about Vietnamese people, like the guy who runs, who's the general counsel for Fox, right? Who's a Vietnamese American guy, Harvard Law. 
the whole bit. Uh, he can unite, you know, liberals and progressives. You say, see a an African American who is risen. I just think from a different perspective and also from a mindful perspective because i meditate now i can i think you have to approach powell now with a certain amount of forgiveness i, I think now maybe you're not there yet clearly you're not there why but well i think 2003 is a long time ago number one number two but it's still going yeah. on it's it's still yeah, but he I didn't mean, he didn't apologize he didn't apologize for you know, the war. I mean, I've talked to Lawrence, Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson. Yeah. And I asked him why he was his chief of staff. And I said, you've apologized. You've almost echoed the sentiment of Smedley Butler. Why isn't Colin Powell apologizing? And he said, I do not know. I do not know. Well, I, if you if you, you can't know, even apologize for yeah. Iraq the things if you that can't seen, if you can't write a book warning future generations of how you got it wrong yep. you're uh, a bad guy i think i think look i i see your point i just think that for him the in in subsequent things that have been written about him in that speech in 2003 and what he said i mean the blot quote is like about as far as it goes maybe not far enough but I think at some point, as people looking at the man's life, we have to be somewhat. I think I think he deserves a little a little forgiveness at this point. For, I mean, I'm I'm willing to do that for him. Why? I was I, I was just well, I was shocked. But we're not a forgiving one, country. This is not certainly somebody the least forgiving people. Yeah are chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. The people who, well, you know, his famous speech, we're going to find the enemy, we're going to cut the enemy off at the head, no. and then we're going to kill it. Well, it, yeah, I mean, that's well, Colin Powell, not too forgiving, Colin well, the, Powell. Yeah, the, the Powell doctrine is not a forgiving doctrine, right? So <laughs> why, does he, why does he get to be forgiven if he I, wasn't forgiving? I, I just think that at some point, and I'm not trying to revise history because I acknowledge what did, you know he he did wrong 2003, but I think at some point you have to say okay, let's go into the present and let's look at the bad guys now. I mean, save your ire for people like Bannon today. Steve you know? Bannon, Steve Bannon, never kept. If anything, Steve Bannon. I'm no fan of Steve Bannon, but he was an isolationist. Well, well, I'm just saying that he was a racist. He's a racist. He's a bigot. Yes. He's he's a crypto fascist. But you know, so don't he defend him. Well, he was an isolationist, the way Lindbergh was. An, you know, he, yeah, yeah. But compared to Powell, Powell, and you brought this up in in your in your you know when you excoriated Powell, you said, "Well, oh, yeah, we know about Obama. He backed him. We know that he's an ever Trumper. We know." I, I just think at Who this cares? point where we are. Why is that well, important? I, I, I think at this point in our in our country's history, as we see democracy kind of slowly disintegrate, we need more of the type of people who he represented in now the the never Trumper. We need more of those kind of people than than the Trumper Bannon types who seem to be 
I don't know what's going to well, happen. Well, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you. Uh, this is, let me address that. We yep. need to hear all voices. And yes. so somebody has to denigrate the memory of Colin Powell. And somebody, I, if everybody were doing it, if Colin yeah. Powell were, if everybody was holding him accountable for the speech before the UN, his not, you know, he didn't resign, he could have stopped the war. If everybody were remembering him for that, then we would all have an obligation to present the other side. But nobody... You read these hagiographies, which, you know, they say are obituaries. Nobody makes any mention of his lies that, you know, and, and then his lie that I, I got faulty intelligence. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff got faulty intelligence. He was at Langley before he gave yeah. that speech. He was at Langley. He knew how to pour over intelligence reports. Well, he didn't David, get fake I, intelligence. I the CIA knew. There were people I, in the CIA who knew there were no weapons of mass destruction. He knew. I, I he lied. I, I don't forgive him for that. I and I, but I don't also. Uh, I I think one of the things that I have learned as I become, I, I I've tried to be a little more mindful about these things is I'm willing to forgive. Right at this point, now you you may not think okay. You know, th th you're not at that point. I think I'm willing at this point for Powell. He's now dead. He's gone. Uh, let's let the historians write. And so are so are no so are a million Iraqis because of his lie. Yeah. Well, you know that that is part of his. No, it isn't. Is part, no, well, it isn't. I think I think people people know that he made a mistake. No, they don't. No, no, they don't. People. People do not know. If you ask your kids, if well, Colin Powell, everything, everything I've seen, even even when I praise him, I mentioned two thousand three. I mentioned his speech. I mentioned he was wrong. I, I just think he was normalized. He was a war criminal who, in preventive wars, are yeah. illegal. Right. I I, I heard he, you. I heard he you. waged a pre preventive war which violates international law. He's a war criminal, but he's an American, and we are not signatories to the ICC, the International Criminal Court, so nobody has tried him. He, if he were an African leader, the mm -hmm. ICC seems to be only for African leaders. We only, and, and maybe some, maybe some, The, the Hague puts... Uh, uh, Milosevic on trial, people from the, the Serbian genocide. But for the most part, it's, Afri it's African generals who get tried in the ICC. Not, and we're not but even, I, he would be tried. Yeah, uh, look, I, and I it's think worse, and Iraq is worse than anything any African warlord got locked up for. I think you're right. He did. He was spared what he he should have received. But I think that look, I when I heard the news that he that he died, I was I was I was pretty surprised. And as I went over his life and I saw these things, why I I was willing I w I was willing to give him not a pass. I I recognize it. I mentioned it. I talked about it. But 
I you know how much of a better what, world what do you this do would now? be? Well, well, let's do this. What do you do now going forward? You, you, you remember, just, if you can remember that Christopher Columbus only discovered the new world. Yeah. You should only remember that Colin Powell yeah. had the political capital to stop an illegal war. Only Colin Powell. He was the only person who could have stopped the invasion. He could have resigned and said, this is wrong. I can't be a part of it. Mm -hmm. He was the most trusted politician in America in 2003. And he kept his mouth shut. And evil occurs when people don't speak up. He He was evil for what he said at the U.N., and then he was evil for not stopping the war and saying this is a lie, including Afghanistan, which was a lie. I, yeah, I'm not saying I'm not I'm not forgiving Powell for for the things that he did, but I'm willing to at least in death, in his death, look at him and say what looking at some of the more admirable things that he did in his life from a black, you know, from a BIPOC perspective. But I, I do not forgive him for the error he made in 2003. And I think that from what I've seen, he call, calling it a blot is not insignificant. I, it's not, but it may not be enough to satisfy you and some others. And certainly it's not enough to, to justify the deaths of, you know, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. How much of a better world would this be? And then we'll wrap it up. And then we'll, I want to, uh, before we bring in the Reverend Barry W. Lynn, uh, how much of a better world would this be if our climate czar, John Kerry, mm. were arrested for, you know, there, there are, there's talk that John Kerry should be brought before the ICC for selling arms to Saudi Arabia, which were then turned into barrel bombs that were used on the Houthis in Yemen, causing the largest cholera breakout in the world. What's going on with the Houthis, the war that the Saudi Arabians are fighting? As Secretary of State, John Kerry authorized arms sales that resulted in war crimes, according to international law, mm-hmm. he should be brought up on charges. It's, a, it's against the law. How much of a better country would it be if, better country and a better world, if when John Kerry goes off to Glasgow to fight his failing campaign against climate change, he got arrested the way uh, they arrested. What's his name? Uh, who's the, the guy, in the, the former president of France? What's his name? Just got is doing time for, uh, under house arrest. Not Macron. The uh, I've had no sleep. Uh, Fujimoro. Lock him oh, up. That's Peru. That's Peru, right? I'm saying, yeah, lock these people up. It's good for the country. They have us convinced, no, it's not good for the country if we, you know, we have to forgive these people because it wouldn't be good to arrest. You think Donald Trump is really going to prison? You yeah, think? No, I know. But, of course but look, not. It, it wouldn't be good for look, the country, they say. 
David, you make a point, but why is it that there aren't more people calling for whatever, you know, the ICC to take or the ICC to, to or for people to take action? Because uh, we're not signatory. ICC. America is not a signatory to the ICC. Well, then, or the international uh, folks. I, I'm just saying that uh, it's worth talking about. It's worth bringing it up. I think it's great that you are bringing it up. But uh, right, let me ask the Reverend Barry W. Lynn joins us. I don't want to eat into his time. We'll do. A, oh, yeah. I just want to bleed a little. We'll do a little stigmata into your time, if you don't mind, the Reverend Barry W. Lynn. Okay, That's fine. You are you are a an ordained minister in the United yes. Church of Christ. This is you are a and and you are you believe in Christ and forgiveness. Yeah. And yep. I'm going to assume that you believe that you're also a lawyer. Yes. A member of the Supreme Court Bar. Right. So you, uh, I'm going to guess that you think <laughs> Colin Powell. I know. <laughs> what do you think? I know your answer. What do you think of Colin Powell? Not very much. And it's not just uh, because of 2003. And as I was waiting to come on here, I was reading the chat room and someone said, what about his cover up of the My Lai massacre? And that to me is at least as problematic, although there were fewer fatalities that he covered up for than his lying about weapons of mass destruction. So if I had to choose who's a little bit more right than the other between you and Emil in assessing Colin Powell, I'd have to go with David Feldman. And I, I want that's, to suggest And that's that painful. People, Believe me, that's but, painful. <laughs> it's, but, you know, I don't think it's up to the, any of the three of us or all of the people on television who are talking about it's not up to us to make determinations about who is forgiven i wonder just to go back on me life for a minute that the, the current thinking is that although there were somewhere like 22 people actually convicted for war crimes and 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 then led and pardoned yeah cali got off 347 people probably were killed, murdered at My Lai. And of course, Colin Powell was an investigator at Chulai. And uh, I think it's safe to say, and if people want to get the details, David Korn, who's back in the news again today, wrote an article on May, May of 2001 for the Nation magazine that does a marvelously sad, because it is sad, look at just how inept and probably deliberately he covered up that massacre. Because it wouldn't be good. It wouldn't be good for the country. We ha we're protecting. We're not yeah. just protecting Cali and funky cold Medina. Wasn't that one of the funky cold yep. Medina, I yep. believe, was one of the. People Correct. Who was put on? I think his name was Funky Cold Medina, uh, something like that. Uh, <laughs> I think it was another hit, right? Uh, but it, it's good. It's always good for the country when we like the our parting shot in Afghanistan, where we kill ten civilians. Mm -hmm. We've decided to pay reparations on this one, on this one because sure. we killed what seven kids 
So we're going to pay reparations. What am I wrong? Uh, It seems to me when you order a drone strike, there's a lawyer in the room. Yes, there is. Who was the lawyer who said this is legal? This drone strike is legal. Why isn't he being put before us? Or would yeah, that wouldn't be good for the country? Yeah, and I mean, maybe there's some part of what Colin Powell was doing in Vietnam that he, he thought, well, it's not good. If this gets exposed, it'll be terrible. But it's also really good for his military career that he was on the same page as the killers. He was right. on the same page. So, But I don't think people get to, that have no direct connection to this, have any business deciding whether to forgive someone or not to forgive them. But Let's talk. Barry, I, I appreciate you bringing this up. A lot of these things, you know, what David Korn wrote uh, about Eli and whatnot, uh, you know, I, I did not consider. Uh, but I, I just want to see, just as, you know, a human being uh, reacting to the news this week where I see that Colin Powell is dead. Uh, I can't relitigate the past. I I don't know everything that happened, but just as a human being, I have compassion for the man, his family, what happened to him, Uh, you know, vaccination, vaccinated. There's a breakthrough. He dies. I just, you know, from that perspective, all right, it may not, be enough to satisfy the uh, uh, the nerd um, you know factions that want to look at well what did he what did Colin Powell do in 2003 what did he do during the Vienna War I have already acknowledged that you do not rise to the the level of four star general without being somewhat compromised I I, I know that but I'm just I'm just telling you my reaction just as a human being and as another person of color. But, but, I, someone like, like Powell. Yeah, I, but, and, and I'm not having an argument with you about that. I think it's reasonable for people to be disturbed about anybody's death, about the relationship between that death and the, the remaining members of the family. But what bothers me about all of the discussion, with the exception of what David said the other day on the show, um, nobody even brings up Milai. Nobody even explains what this so-called error in 2003 was. Yeah. There was a widespread belief in Washington. And I was, uh, you know, I used to do this show with Oliver North, and occasionally he'd be sick or something and he had somebody else come in. And this guy, I had asked him about weapons of mass destruction. He, he had been a former pretty high-ranking military officer. He pulled out a napkin. You're talking about Oliver drew, North? For, yeah, this is a friend of Ollie's, oh. a friend of North's. He p- pulls out a napkin, and at a commercial break, he starts to make a drawing of where the weapons of mass destruction were, what specific parts of the city they were located in. It all turned out to be, of course, a lie, right. but lots of people. But he didn't have the kind of connections that that uh, Powell had to know what in the hell was really going on. So um, there are lots of misinformation, lots of people spewing forth this nonsense, but there's a certain level of responsibility that you get if you are a Colin Powell to be more than just generally 
more or less convinced that weapons of mass destruction exist before you go to the United Nations. I just didn't hear any of this conversation. All the people on CNN who were saying, well, when I interviewed him, he did this and he was so nice and he that's fine. You you don't have to be the worst person in the world, but you have to be measured by all of the things and the, the decisions that you made. And that's what was missing over the last 48 hours you thank know, you Barry it's probably it's just it's just it's a, a complex history and a few people can pick apart you know pick it apart with with any kind of credibility I, I was in Washington when Nixon died and look at what happened hardly anyone mentioned Watergate when Nixon died. Yeah, but he paid a price here's the difference Nixon paid a price for Watergate he paid a price few other leaders in our country ever paid. He, he resigned and he was disgraced. So then you can take a look at the totality, totality of the person. One of the rules in this country is if you do time, if you do prison time, then you say, hire this murderer, no, hire this, per- he did time. That's the compact we have. Yes, he did time for murder, but now he did his time. He's He's been released. It's a clean slate. Nixon, to some degree, as horrible as he was, Cambodia, he was going to bomb the dikes in North Vietnam. This guy, you know, he and you know, Kissinger is worse because Kissinger never paid a price. Nixon paid a price. He resigned. So he deserves a little more sympathy than Colin Powell. Well, I, I just remember Colin Powell Washington. didn't pay a price for his crimes. You don't you don't think I mean, he didn't. Where, where did he go after? I mean, what did he do after? I mean, Made 50 billion. His estate was worth about 60 billion dollars. <laughs> that's what that's what he did after. Well, he was giving motivational man. speeches. Yeah, that's usually with Dennis Prager. He and Dennis Prager <laughs> were doing these, uh, you know, Conservacon. Right. He didn't oh, pay Prager. a price. Yeah. Watch. Well, uh, we'll wrap it up. Uh, I may not agree with what you're saying, Emil, but I will fight to the death of me to take away your right to say it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe Dave Chappelle. Uh, look, uh, one thing he said on that show is right. There's going to be a ton of trans, uh, trans, transsexual uh, comedians coming out in there, and there should be, and there should be. And look, I'll offer an Asian American transsexual, Robin Tran. Do you know Robin Tran? Funny, funny guy. Was he bo- I, I'm just thinking the doors are open for people like him. Born with that name, Tran. I think I think he he was Robin Robin Tran, and you know you you were talking to uh, uh, to Breslin, Mark Breslin. He said, "Oh, you know, it was going to be like a uh, I could could have been like a, a a Tootsie thing." And this is this was my fantasy in in the eighties when I met you that with that because that's when that movie came out. That when if I were going to be an anchor, I would have to put on a dress. That that was. <laughs> So that was my my uh, my trans. I'm making this confession here. That would be my my trans right. fantasy. Right. But anyway, look, I I think that this shows that your show is uh, it's good that 
that we have these open discussions. I, right. Look, I, I did not have access to the, the tre- treasure trove of information that, that that Colin Powell took to his grave. Uh, but I think as Reverend Barry points out, there's a ton out there that's still open, that still needs to be investigated, that still needs to be gone over. Uh, I was just being responsive as a human being to the death of Powell. Okay, so let me offer up some advice to you. Look at the way you look and look at the way I look, okay? Yes. All right? Oh, yeah. Okay, look at the dark rings underneath my eyes, how haggard and broken I look. Uh, Nevertheless, I believe a well-lived life is one of holding grudges, never forgiving, and never letting go. Never letting go of the even the any slight inflicted upon you. Don't be forgiving. Keep a list, an enemy's list. Refer to it. Read the enemy's list out loud before you go to bed. Always keep track of the people you hate and you will have the rings underneath your eyes that I have. Sleepless nights. Thank, thank yeah. you, thank you, David. But Reverend Barry, give me give me a little amen. For, for, okay, I'll give you an amen for that. Yes. Yeah, so David is, of course, wrong about keeping the enemies list. Oh, which I think he possibly well, just just who but, moved up a couple of notches on my enemies list, Reverend. <laughs> well, thank um, you. We we stigmated into we, the Reverend we, Barry W. We, and, or bled into. We bled I mean, into. Bled into it. Bled, bled into, into it. No, no stigmata here. No. Yeah. But, uh, thank you, Emil Guillermo. Uh, Guillermo, read him over at ALDEF, the Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund. Listen to the PETA podcast, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, and. Emil's takeout. I watch you on Twitter. How do people watch this? They can go to amok.com and see replays. They can go on YouTube, my fledgling YouTube channel. There's no one there, but you can see it. Emil Guillermo. And stay away from pig kidneys. What, 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 I, I'm all excited about growing pigs to use as for transplants. You're against this? Stay away from them. No. the best The best advice is... Go vegan. You won't have diabetes. You won't need dialysis. You won't have renal failure. Don't rely on pig kidneys to take you through old age. Thanks, David. But but it is a positive. Bye. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Joining us. So, David. Yes, sir. Thank um, you, Emil. So, David, I know you wanted uh, me to help you form the Church of Feldman. Yes. And, um, And, of course, I failed at that, although I've told you, many, many times what you need to do in order to do this, to set up a church, not another charity, but a religious charity like a church. You write to the commissioner of the Internal Revenue Service. You say, I'm interested in doing this. I'm interested in not paying paying taxes. (laughs) No. Can you help me out? But then here's what you got to do. I noticed that uh, just today, our former president, Donald Trump, has announced that he's forming his own social media platform. It's called Truth. Truth. 
And this is a, something I'd suggest you do once we get the Church of Feldman formed. You, too, set up a platform, a social platform, because when you think about it, uh, conservative social platforms have not been doing that well since he was kicked off of Twitter for a while. Hundreds of thousands of people every month would join a, a, a platform called Parler. Mm -hmm. And in the last couple of months, that's reduced to a dribble like he eight ten thousand new members remember jason miller the the offensive jason miller he too started an alternative conservative platform called getter g-e-t-t-r and for a while it was popular and it was so popular with hackers that uh, within about a week of having Getter get started, there had already been a hacker who breached it and released the emails of 85,000 people who had signed up for Getter. So this whole, um, the conservative platform thing, we don't need any more. I think Donald Trump's is unlikely to be successful. And, but you, you could set up and think of this, the money you would make, it's very carefully, you have to do this right. You have to form it as a separate piece of the ministry of the Church of Feldman. And the reason that's important, I remember when I was at Americans United, I think right before we I got there, we had successfully sued a church in New Jersey that was trying to claim that a canning factory that it owned was part of its ministry. And that was you know, ridiculous. <laughs> and, and they lost the tax exemption for their canning factory. And Lord knows how many fish were saved because of it. But those are the kinds of things you have to be careful the way you treat it. And I think you can be careful because you are a careful man. I am very careful. Yes, very. And I care about not paying taxes. Tax Wait a second. Do, do churches ever lose their tax-free status? Uh, there are very few ways you can do it. One one is to be directly engaged in political, partisan political activity. And you and I, I think when we first met, you had a, a somewhat confused, if I might use that word, understanding of what the tax law was. The Johnson the tax Amendment. Law, yeah, the so-called Johnson Amendment. Lyndon Johnson was upset because an organization had formed in Texas whose sole purpose was to defeat Lyndon Johnson in his next uh, attempt at, at getting in the Senate. So um, he got upset, rightfully so, and uh, passed this provision in the tax code that said you cannot engage in partisan political activity against or in favor of any candidate for any public office. And a few people, uh, thanks mainly to the stuff we used to do, uh, a, a couple of people actually lost their tax exemption. The other thing you can't do is something called self inurement. In other words, you cannot uh, decide to hire for the purposes of doing nothing uh, your former wives and children in a in a religious in a religion but it's very hard to prove that this is something called self-enormous self-benefit very rarely is that used but those are the only two things you can do to lose your tax exemption. You, you don't have to report anything. You don't have to report where your money comes from. You don't have to report where your money goes. This is unlike any other charitable endeavor. You don't need to file 
anything except the name and address so people can write to you that Tax people can, can say, yes, you've been granted a tax exemption, but you don't have to file anything and you don't have to report anything. You can essentially operate like a political action committee if nobody discovers it because the IRS has no interest in actually investigating these things. And even when they're told, as we used to tell people, these blatant violations of the law where people would put up on their church uh, drive down the street, you see the church sign that usually says, come worship with me, uh, with us, uh, Sunday at 10 o'clock. If you put something like, don't vote for baby killers like, and then fill in the blank of somebody who supports abortion, you can send them photographs. And this is Democrats and Republicans. And you can give them the evidence. You can piece it all together, package it up, and they still ignore it. And of course, when Trump got in, he said he was going to do away with it. He never technically did away with it. But uh, but you got it. That's the only stuff you have to be careful about. Only yeah. stuff. Well, looking back at the the transfer of wealth that has gone on since Reagan. Yep. How much of it is just people don't have to pay their taxes if they're rich. That if we just, they used to say, the argument was, sure, go ahead and raise taxes on the wealthy, but that's not going to pay for the entitlements. If we collected what was owed, we're, we're talking sure. like, like there's a trillion dollars that we just leave on the table that we know of each year just because Correct. the IRS is on understaffed right there's a trillion dollars you spend 60 billion on the irs and you'll get a trillion dollars yep and then start rewriting what you this this idea of entire the like why is there a south dakota or a delaware why why does south dakota exist well i mean it's a tax haven it, of course, it's a tax haven. And South Dakota and Delaware are both tax havens. The only but, reason there's a, there's a, and it doesn't benefit. It's not like people in South Dakota make any money. It's not like the government makes any money off these these trusts that are set up in South. People aren't living well in South. Nobody benefits because South Dakota charges usurious interest rates on the money it lends. Nobody benefits other no, than the criminals. Of course. And I think one of the biggest challenges that's coming in the next couple of days, perhaps, is what in the hell do we do once people... I know that as we're taping this, I believe uh, President Biden is doing a uh, some kind of a town hall on CNN, and he wanted to announce some kind of a breakthrough over the social kind of the, the social spending bill that used to be three and a half trillion dollars over ten years. The breakthrough and is we broke it. Yeah, we broke it. And, and you know, there are things that are obviously not going to happen. There's not going to be free community college. There's not going to be uh, extensive new programs on climate change. Uh, and they're probably going to just take the tax, the child uh, tax credit and extend it for a year or two instead of five years. 
But the other thing that's going to happen is somebody has to figure out how to pay for this. And now we know not only that Joe Manchin's nervous about it, but that Kristen Cinema has now said as of today that she will not increase taxes on corporations and she will not increase taxes on the wealthiest of Americans, which not only is a def- defiance of her roots within the Green Party, but also completely in opposition to the very vote she cast in 2017 in the House when she was a House member against the Trump tax cuts. So this is like the 750th reason she isn't even a Democrat. And she has to be kowtowed to, to some degree, because she's the only hope of passing anything with the 50 Democrats in the Senate, a tie to be broken by, uh, if this is done through reconciliation, a tie would, of course, be broken by, by the vice president. But that, to me, is the biggest question that progressives need to face when it looks like this. Can you live without a free community college? Can you live with just uh, cutting some more uh, time out of the, the, the child care credits? Or the, but what, do you, what are you going to do if there is no tax increase on the wealthiest corporations in America now, which pay nothing, zero? dollars what do you do what does a progressive person in congress do when faced with the prospect of getting a fraction of what we should be getting a fraction of it and then no payment from corporations of the wealthiest americans i mean i think that's a huge moral question that needs to be addressed by all people who consider themselves progressives in the united states house and senate right it's an issue of it's it's not justice. It's not fair that Bezos privately forget Amazon not paying taxes. But there were years, I think there have been two years in the past eight where Jeff Bezos paid zero in taxes. Somebody would say, yeah, but yeah. is that really going to pay for entitlements? I'll tell you what it's going to pay for. Yes, because if he pays taxes, that's fewer lobbyists. There's something like 1,500 lobbyists fighting Medicare negotiating drug prices. 1,500 lobbyists. You take money away from the pharmaceutical industry, they can't afford lobbyists. We have to take their money and... I don't understand why people are so forgiving. I don't I love Emil. And there is a part of me that hears Emil talking about Colin Powell. And I can hear my parents' voice saying, Emil's right. He's Emil's right. But I hear my voice and I'm, I'm thinking, why are we so forgiving of these people and what? Why aren't we getting it down? Why, where is the, the rage, as Bob Dole, he said the outrage. Uh, where yeah. is the rage? Where are the, it, you know, our memories of the 60s, what we see on television is angry lefties marching and blowing things up, not killing anybody, really, just blowing up buildings. 
So we, we now we have to be reasonable. We have no demagogues. We have no nobody on the left pounding the podium and getting people revved up and ready to, uh, you know, put heads on sticks. I'm not saying put heads on sticks. That's right. I'm not saying that, but there should no. be somebody who's getting people worked up and angry at the wealthiest 1%. Getting, we need to hate them with the, the same virulence that they hate us. Where is yeah, that? Well, well, they do hate us. I mean, I think there is an argument that says, though, when you start hating people, not just hating ideas, hating movements, hating parties, when you start hating individuals, you do risk completely falling into a trap where you hate you end up making yourself sick by the hate that you feel toward individuals. But I understand your point. But even in the illustration I just get, I think it's very difficult. If you are AOC and you're confronted with the possibility of getting a fraction of what you wanted, because this didn't start at 3.5 trillion, it started to double that, that's what Bernie wanted. Then it got cut to 3.5. Now it'll probably end up at like 1.8 trillion. Do you give up the good stuff even even if they can find, and I'm not sure, I don't know how you find that much money to make up if you don't raise taxes on these wealthiest people and wealthiest corporations. But if you, if you don't, do you, do you take the half a loaf, or in this case, I don't know, what, an eighth of a loaf, and say, well, maybe we'll raise taxes next year? I don't think it's an easy moral question, but I think it's one that needs to be raised. And I would like to think in these negotiations that are still going on that um, you're going to see progressive people raising with not just with Cinnamon Mansion, but with the president and with Chuck Schumer, the fact that this is unacceptable. You cannot have people with this vast wealth who are paying next to nothing. You can't keep doing this or we all slip further and further and further below the wealthiest 1%. It's, there's no moral construct that allows this to be a part of the American experience. Absolutely none. Reverend, you've been in Washington most of your adult life. Yes. Is there political hay for any politician, I'm not, I'm not saying every politician. I just like somebody other than the squad and Bernie, and they don't even go this far. Is there any political hay to be made by a politician saying, uh, I want to punish the wealthy? They, they need to be punished for being wealthy. Is there political? It seems to me in a country that is so uh, delights in the tearing down of celebrities and the rich and powerful. Is is there political hay for one or two firebrands like Huey Long? Yeah. Can we have one? Can we get one Huey Long? Can I have one politician in long? I know there. Uh, I know most of them come in short, but give me one in long. 
Yeah, I don't know if there is. I, I remember when I first came to Washington, there was a member of Congress from from uh, Massachusetts who had the same name as the author of uh, of the other America, Michael Harrington. And the first time I met him, he said, you know, Barry, my my purpose here is to be a bomb thrower. And Ron Dellums, the great African-American congressman from Berkeley, Berkeley. I was talking to him one day after a conference and he said, you know, I can take these positions about wealth, about peace because of where I represent. He said, I'd like to think if I represented some other congressional district, I'd do the same thing. But he said, I honestly can't stand here and say that I would. Maxine Waters is what is she? She's chairman of the finance House Finance Committee, right? Exactly, exactly, and and she does this some of the time. Yeah, um, and I don't expect you know I don't expect that people are going to be a perfect because, Lord knows, I'm not. But I do think that they ought to be a time. I I don't think I've mentioned this. I remember Senator Philip Hart of Michigan. He and his wife Jane were incredibly important opponents of the Vietnam War. And I testified in the Senate Judiciary Committee once, and Joanne was with me, and we went up to see Phil Hart afterwards. You were naming names, I believe, right? I was naming names. I was saying, and these are the people. And you did, we, would you like them alphabetically? Yeah. <laughs> so, so Joanne goes up and says, Senator, you're always you're fighting so many battles at the same time. How how do you do this? And he looked at her and said, there are just some times when you have to do what is right. There are some times you have to do what is right. And he just found a lot of times to do that. But I can't think of a member of the Senate today, um, maybe Bernie. I, you know, I don't, as I've said before, I, I don't know him personally. But but I can't think of a member of the Senate who uh, would make a statement like that today, much less somebody who would say, and by the way, there's greed and there's super wealthy people and they shouldn't be allowed to get away with what they're doing. That, I can't imagine anyone saying that. It's all these conditional clauses like, I have nothing against six. I even do that. I even catch myself saying I have nothing against people being successful. Bullshit. Like, if you're successful, you should uh, have to pay a price for it. You should cut a check. You have to pay some money for it. Of course. But no, but the the discussion in the last couple of weeks, you know, I was watching the other night the documentary about Anthony Fauci, okay? And here's this man who has done extraordinary things. Remember, he is a guy who was vilified by the gay community when he first started working on AIDS because they said he doesn't understand us. And he, Fauci, actually went to ACT UP meetings in New York City and other places and became a friend with Larry Kramer and some of the most active anti-AIDS activists. Right. And he became kind of a hero of that movement. And now he's getting similar blowback, but not from people who are decent people, but from these idiots like Tucker Carlson. And in this documentary, there are a couple of clips of Tucker and Laura Ingram. And and I was sitting there with Joanne watching this thing. And at the end, I said, if you ask Tucker Carlson 
what did you ever do that was good? He might say, he, he, and it was like, he would say something like, I, I know one of the books he wrote, he gave the proceeds to some charity. And even Stephen Colbert praised him for doing that. And Laura Ingram would say, I adopted three children. They, they will come up with something, but it is nothing like what Fauci did has done and will continue to do unless, as uh, Madison uh, Cawthorn suggested uh, just earlier this week, uh, he should be arrested and tried. Why uh, is Laura Ingram allowed to adopt children if she's not married? She's, a, she's an <laughs> unmarried single mom. Yep. She wouldn't approve of that. Why does she get to adopt three children? And she, because she's really a good mother. I, I remember I was on Laura's show a lot until I just, you know, thought she was the incarnation of Eva Braun. And, I, and her brother I, would um, agree with you. Yeah, I know he would. Um, and, and when she adopted her first kid, I was on. And after the segment was over and she told me about this adoption, I thought, because I am, I try to be a non-hateful person. I thought maybe, just maybe, this will change Laura Ingram. And it did. It turned her from just a kind of moderate nitwit uh, into a fascist. Well, here's, I'm going to call an audible because Mark Savasco is here and he's early. And I, okay. and I would like you, and I, I, I thought if it's okay with you and Mark to do his you and I would talk to Mark Sabasco, who was chief of staff to Congressman Ted Lieu. I know you are following the build back better. Would you stick around and sure and, and help? I'd be happy with, to. Yeah, thank you. So yeah, what, course, what is on before we bring in Mark Sabasco? What is on your mind? What is pressing that? Well, the, the one thing I really I have been talking to some people in the pro-choice movement about a variety of things, including something that uh, I first talked to you about year, years ago, maybe jury nullification. Yes. This is the idea that if there is a criminalization of abortion, that what you do is you publicize the power of juries to ignore the facts, ignore the law if they think the law is unjust. And uh, I can't say that anybody's dying to do this, but I, I remember uh, I took out, I was ahead of this coalition of about 50 groups fighting the return of the draft. And when we knew that it was gonna pass, um, because uh, Jimmy Carter decided it was important to register people to prove that, that we were tough. Mm -hmm. um, and we took out ads on billboards and in buses in San Diego, reminding people of what jury nullification was. And it got a lot of publicity, but it turned out that the one person who was actually prosecuted out there did not have a jury trial. But it did, in a sense, it didn't matter because this is what happens with uh, uh, drug offenses in some communities with things like uh, trying to prosecute people for obscenity the, the jurors just look at this and go why is this even a criminal offense why can't people just make up their own mind and do what they want but i think that jury nullification in the mo most serious way ought to be considered in the event that we have bad decisions in mississippi which i'm, I'm 
I'm literally convinced we, we can't have anything but a bad decision there or whatever happens in Texas. And it irritates me no end that as all these cases are coming up from Texas, once again, uh, the Chief Justice John Roberts will be able to, in, in his best of all possible worlds, he will go along with the Mississippi 15-week cutoff of legal abortions, but he will pr- try to find, and he might find a way to say, but let's hold this issue of the Texas case in abeyance. We won't resolve it yet. And then people will say, well, see, he's not that, he's, he's just kind of a moderate. People forget, speaking of the past that gets forgotten, like the Milai massacre, um, John Roberts' wife was and possibly still is the head of something uh, called Feminists for Life. And I do remember when Roberts was being touted as the uh, the next chief justice, there was a, a kind of a split in progressive organizations. Some said we, we need to study his record more. And then there were a few of us like Ali Smeal from the Feminist Majority Foundation, the National Council of Jewish Women now, myself, who, who would sit around and go, wait a minute, we know enough about this guy. And one issue that came up was this issue of his wife. And I know Ellie and a lot of other people said, you know, we can't do this differently than we would do it if this if we were talking about a woman and then the connections to her husband and we would say that's inappropriate and we we spent no time at all everybody agreed and i think that was the right decision don't even bring this up then i found out several years later that when the right wingers used to have monday meetings on the telephone when they came up the first time to look at the record of john roberts one of them said well look her um you know, his wife is the head of Feminists for Life. We don't have to worry about the abortion issue. And everybody on the phone call said, yeah, that's right. Let's go on to something else. So, but but that's part of the history. And I mean, I, I remember jokingly saying, well, yeah, I mean, I don't think we should mention this, but I I think we could project that in the event that he all of a sudden turns pro-choice on abortion, he'll be sleeping on the sofa in the living room right. a lot of nights. Right, right. Which is uh, Republican contraception, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, You're a member of the Supreme Court bar, are you not? Yes. Jerome Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, announced that there are going to be some new ethics. Apparently, people were upset that the chairman of the Federal Reserve traded about five million dollars worth of stocks in October of 2020. And there have been some other uh, presidents of the Federal Reserve who have been trading stocks. We would think if you are the chairman of the Federal Reserve, you sit on the Federal Reserve, you have inside information, you kind of have an idea as to whether or not interest rates are going to go up or down and how that will affect the bond market and what affects the bond market affects stocks. So you it's inside information by its very nature, correct? I'd say so. So yeah. so is it is it fair to say that if you sit on the Federal Reserve, your money should be in a blind trust? 
Oh, I think at a minimum, that's what you should do. Right. And you would you, think you can't, you can't be allowed to make decisions. In fact, if you're if you're in the Senate, if you're in the House, if you're in, of the president, you should be dealing only through blind trusts when it comes to investments. No and the, and, the, and no if you want to own stocks, it should only be in a total stock market index like Vanguard, not individual stocks. Correct. I don't I don't know if I'd go that far. Well, I, I think would. if you had a blind trust that where that all the trades were done by someone else and you had no connections. Remember, blind trust. One of the things that, that's problematic about blind trust is those phone calls that get made to the trustees by the politician. Uh, how's it going? Uh, hey, I heard about this new stock. <laughs> it's very difficult to to not have conversations so, so with if, people about it. So if, if you want to go into politics, if you want to serve our country, if you want to be part of the administrative state, if you want to play, and I do mean play the stock market, you can only buy S&P index funds so that you're not, so you have, you're not going to miss out on any, upside or downside of the stock market, but you're not allowed to trade any individual stocks. Why is that so hard to say, at the very least, you're not allowed to own stock in a specific company? Well, the Supreme Court, what are the ethics? I, I know that at one time folded, it was, it was the HR1, which we'll talk to Mark Savasco right. about, they were going to introduce ethics for the Supreme Court. Right. As a member of the bar of the Supreme Court, do they have an ethics office? If you have a problem no. with the wonderful Ginny Thomas, Clarence yeah. Thomas's lovely bride, if, yeah. if she is off working for Dick Army and Prosperity for America, and inviting her husband Clarence to Palm Springs because the Koch brothers are throwing a big yep. party and they fund Americans for Prosperity. Are there any ethics laws regarding the Supreme Court? No, no they, there's no code of ethics to, specific to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court, if uh, the clerk of the court was here, he would say or she would say, I think it's he, still he would say but they do look to the rules there's a whole entity i'm gonna probably butcher the name of this um but uh, uh it, it's kind of an administrative office of u.s courts i think it's called and they they among other things have a responsibility to come up with some kind of judicial guidelines for the lower federal courts so if a, the clerk of the Supreme Court were here, he'd say, but but our people look at those. But there's no requirement. And and the stuff is outrageous. I mean, I remember I did file a, one complaint against Clarence Thomas for this very thing. I mean, for being 
brought to a place where he was going to be talking directly to and taking questions and getting information from some right wing group. And and I, I mean, I'm really a rigid person about this. I don't even think that Supreme Court justices ought to make public appearances because they're always doing what we've seen Breyer and Alito and Thomas himself do over the last few weeks. Excuse the inexcusable. Explain stuff. Try to con us into believing that there's no politicization of the United States Supreme Court. So then you have Breyer, even Breyer, uh, who, who acts like if he left the court, I thought the whole thing would fall apart. It, but he's uh, <laughs> very few of us are irreplaceable. And Justice Breyer isn't irreplaceable. And what we see now, and of course, we were talking about David Korn earlier. You know, you know my David famous Korn. statement, what I said to my kids. God, this that was is, famous. No. Hang on. For what? This, what? I have, this, ahead, this, this is so horrible. This is, <laughs> this is so horrible. And I don't know. I'm trying to figure out. I, you know, I, I turned to my kids and I said, you know, this cemetery is filled with irreplaceable relatives. You know, that's I knew, of course, the Charles de Gaulle. What is it that the the cemeteries are filled with irreplaceable men? Men, men. Yeah. I turned to my kids and said, these cemeteries are filled with irreplaceable (laughs) relatives. You can all be replaced. What a horrible reverend. I I apologize to Mark Savasco for the reverend's uh, irreverence. Finish your thought and then we'll bring the great Mark Savasco in. This is great. Yeah. So. No, I do. I mean, we clearly there needs to be standards, ethical standards. And, um, you know, I sometimes think because there are uh, canons of ethics for lawyers, any profession that actually needs a written uh, canon of ethics really needs a written canon of ethics. But sometimes I just go. "Eh." Right. So you're going to stick around, Reverend, and we're going to stick around. We're going to talk to Mark Savasco. Anything Mark Savasco says is the opinion of the David Feldman show, but not Mm -hmm. necessarily that of Congressman Ted Lieu. I will say that Congressman Ted Lieu is Howie Klein's favorite congressperson, Mm -hmm. but we won't say that. Welcome, Mark Savasco, chief of staff to Congressman Ted Lieu. It is an honor to have you with us. Um, honors all mine. Thank you, David and, and uh, Reverend Lynn. Good to see you again. Uh, my apologies. I, I, I know I'm, I was a little bit early, so I only came early so I could listen to uh, Reverend uh, Lynn here. So I didn't mean to cut it on his time. No, no, no. I so, saw no it problem. and I thought no I thought there there's so much going on and you, you're generous to be here. Let's I have some questions and I know the Reverend has some questions. We'll talk about Build Back Better, what you can share with us what you know, and of course, Jamie Raskin and Matt Gates and the January 6 hearings. I'm going to do I'm going to break one of my laws on the show. I always say, let's talk about what's in Build Back Better and not talk about horse racing. But we've been talking about what is actually in Build Back Better all day. And I, and I want to ask you what you think is in Build Back Better. But let's start off with an easier question. In six months, when we're in the, the thick of the midterms, what will we be discussing more politically? The January 6 hearings 
what are the Democrats going to run on the January 6 hearings or build back better? What what will the congressman who's running for reelection and everybody should support him? Politically speaking, what will be more important, what we learn in the, these January 6 hearings or what finally Build Back Better became? Yeah, it's a, you're you're defining the um, you know the, the 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 quintessential question here that we're that we're always sort of faced with, um, and, and Ted actually deals with a lot as as a member of the Democratic Policy and Communications Committee, uh, which is which is what our party's messaging is like and what what we're going to talk about. And the, I mean, the short answer is both. We're going to be talking about we need to have a positive message, um, a record that we're going to be running on. Um, and promises for what would come with a, you know, with a sustained majority and with, with more authority. Um, and we're going to be defining our opponents and we're going to be talking about um, who they are, what they stand for. Um, and uh, they've certainly given us a lot of uh, a lot of material to work with um, in many ways, uh, you know, the defining characteristic of, of the Trump era and what the, what the GOP has become is really um is really the, the greatest challenge for us is, is figuring out which terrible things that they do to focus on right. and which things will resonate the most with people. And believe me, there are, there are focus groups and polling that happens all the time for us to figure that exact thing out, right? What are the things that annoy people the most? Uh, what are the things people are most uh, worried about when it comes to uh, what Republicans are doing to this country? Because it's not, a, you know, you'd think it would be easy, but you can very quickly overwhelm them uh, to the point where it just sounds like, oh, they're just Democrats and they're just whining again. They, Of course, they disagree with Republicans. There's a difference between that, you know, sort of your standard disagreement um, and, uh, and and truly dangerous things for democracy and for our country that that, that Republicans seem to be, um, right. uh, so seem I, to be coalescing around. But I think, look, the truth is, and I don't like this, the truth is that people are generally more motivated by fear than by... Um, you know, than by promises of, of, of good things or even by a good solid record of what we've done. We all like to think that we'll evaluate things based on, you know, facts and on the records. Um, but the truth is fear is a powerful motivator in elections. And um, Donald Trump understood that. He motivated people through right. fear. Uh, 2018, which was a big wave election for us, was in many, you know, was, was very much driven by fear of him. Right. So fear is a powerful motivator. And so characterizing Republicans as radical and dangerous is going to be very important to our, right. our strategy in 2022. So it's, you either have to vote what, for what we've delivered for you or vote for things to get a lot worse. Let me ask one question, then I want to share you with the Reverend Barry W. Lynn. Pork earmarks. We had Michael Cohn, the journalist, on earlier, and I asked him a question, and and he said these days are over. So I'm going to assume we all wish Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema would get out of the way and let Build Back Better be passed at 3.5 trillion dollars. And what I asked Michael Cohn was. I know they've gotten rid of earmarks, but if Lyndon Johnson were president, he would call Kirsten Cinema into his office and then he'd call Joe Manchin in and he would say, you know, I was looking at West Virginia, Joe, and you need a world class university. You need 
your 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 kids there barefoot walking around West Virginia. They need a, a, a science and medical school. And, you know, I would love your legacy to be that these kids are walking through the doors of this brand new university and every day they look up and they see a portrait of Joe Manchin and they're going to Senator Joe Manchin University, the Senator Joe Manchin School of Medicine. I would love that to happen because I think you're, let me just throw up in my mouth a little, a great man. And suddenly Joe Manchin would say, yes, Mr. President, what do you need? That's the way I, I fantasize about the, the filthy sausage getting made. And I think most lefties like me would say, yeah, give Joe Manchin, name a medical school, after, whatever it takes to get him on board. And Michael Cohn said, those days are over. Uh, the earmark. I don't know if it's an earmark. I think the president, I think you can bribe. Can you bribe Joe Manchin, pardon the expression, with a medical school in his name to get him on board Bernie's Build Back Better? Um, I, you know, I, I think you could only bribe him with something that he wants. And um, so I don't I don't know what what motivates but is that uh, illegal? Is that a, is that a, I, again? I don't want to create an ethics issue. So you feel free to not answer this. Sure. But we all I mean, just us regular mouth breathing, knuckle dragon citizens think that's how things get done. It's you want this bill. What's make it worth my while? Do something for where's my pork? Where's my name? Where's the post office named after my mother? Isn't that how it gets done? Uh, not really, or at least not 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 in my experience. I I, I can't speak for obviously every um, uh, every negotiation that's ever happened on on Capitol Hill, and, and has that happened in the past? I, I'm sure there there are, there are good examples of that. Um, but in the nearly 20 years I've been doing this, I haven't really been exposed to anything uh, anything as transactional quite as transactional as that um you know i i think one thing that does get discounted a lot i, I we, we do tend to try to um uh, ascribe the worst possible motives of people that we we happen to disagree with um my former boss used to say a lot it is possible for patriotic intelligent people of goodwill and intelligence to simply disagree on something and that is true and I, and I have found that to be true whether that's you know between parties or or even what we're currently going through which is an intramural thing an intraparty um you know a, a conflict of ideas but um look do i think joe manchin maybe likes being sort of the center of attention here uh, uh, yeah probably i mean you, you don't get into this line of work unless you've got a, a fairly healthy ego uh, they all do um and just the way it worked out for him with the division of the senate being exactly 50 50 um every single one of them is a it has a veto power over anything uh, anything the party wants to do so he's uh, he's certainly maximizing this but i i think that's also a good reason though to believe that we will get something done right because it's one thing to hold out and to look like you twisted some people's arms and you shaped this massive thing into your image and you had some power and control over it. Um, 
it's a, quite another to completely kill, you know, kill the whole thing and uh, and just be seen as the scapegoat for your entire party and everybody who, you right. know, who, who, who you care about. Uh, so, I, I, you know, it's difficult. What about this? this? Is a, it's, what it's what if Joe huge... Biden, what if Joe Biden said, you know, you have a beautiful houseboat, almost heaven, seven hundred fifty thousand dollars. You live on it alone. You're here with me. I'm commander in chief of the world's largest army, Homeland Security. I have at my disposal three world class nuclear submarines that are patrolling the Potomac and accidents happen. Accidents. I would hate anything bad to happen to almost heaven. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn, you. Oh, yeah, I think that happened in the latest James Bond film, but I uh, I only saw it twice, so I'm not sure. Here's what this, David, here, if this were Lyndon Baines Johnson, who I also didn't know, he was a little before my time, but he, um, this is what you might do, a variation on what you just said. You talk to Manchin and you say, look, I just want to find a way. This is not, by the way, my idea. I saw this on the Internet yesterday. We want to find a way to make sure that everyone in West Virginia who is in the coal industry ends up with a grant of $100,000. How can we do that? Because then if you found a way to do that in the transition from coal, which would be the phrase it would be used, how's he going to vote against something that gives his own coal interested people a hundred thousand dollars next year? That's what Lyndon Johnson would have figured out. He wouldn't have been as blunt as uh, your two examples, I suspect, but you could do that. Um, if you really want Mark. Well, yeah, but I mean, Mark, I, I don't think that's bribery. I think we do that all the time. You, you see a need in a community and people say it's a good thing. I mean, one of the things cinema likes about the physical infrastructure bill is all of the work, because she at least claims to have negotiated a lot of it. Um, she knows it's going to help the roads and the bridges in Arizona. She's very proud of that. How about my idea? Find a way to help people who are coal miners transition with a chunk of money in this Build Back Better bill. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I've heard that that kicked around, not that exact idea kicked around, but this, um, the idea of coal, I think there was something like, um, and, and, and you'll have to pardon me if the numbers are screwed up, but it's something like less than 30,000 people who actually work in the coal industry. In What's West that Virginia. number? What is it? It's like 30,000. That's it? I'd, I'd, have to, I'd have to look it up. It's right. It, it, it was extraordinarily low compared to and, and, and much lower, I think, even than than just solar alone um, in West Virginia. Uh, and so, it, you know, it, it does sort of strike you that, hey, it's yeah, at some point, couldn't we just offer them all jobs doing something else, um, you know, to move away from this? Uh, uh, and the senator would still get five hundred thousand dollars a year in dividends from his son's coal company. Sure. <laughs> yeah. What are the uh, go ahead, Reverend? I'm sorry. <laughs> no, what I mean, it's just 
it is difficult for me to understand Senator Sinema. Uh, I don't understand it. I know there's a member of the House who two weeks ago from Arizona, uh, um, trying to think of his name. Uh, Ruben Gallego. Ru- Ruben Gallego. He, a couple of weeks ago, he would have said, when asked, are, are you going to possibly be a primary challenger? He poo-pooed the idea. No, I'm not interested in that. But in the last couple of days, he doesn't give that kind of answer. And I did see one test poll where in a race with him, she only gets 26% of Democratic votes. So I think her tenure as a member of the legislature in Arizona, of Arizona in Congress, is is over. So what is she trying to do? I suspect she is really unhappy with the modest amount that she gets paid as a senator and would much prefer to get a million dollars to become a pharmaceutical lobby. That's what I said, exactly what I said to Michael Cohen earlier, Mm -hmm. that she's, she's looking for her exit, her golden parachute. Uh, what is so with the what do we know about Build Back Better, Mark Savasco? What how do and how do we know what's in it? How, how can anybody you know, I read Politico and roll and they tell us they think that HUD is going to get billions of dollars and we're going to start building low income housing. Uh, what do we know or do we have any idea what's in it? I mean, the, the the basic answer is no. The, the whole thing is still open, which means, you know, that the, the bill text is not set and negotiations are still ongoing. I mean, they're, they're still ongoing at a very basic level of we're talking top line numbers here before we even get down to the, you know, the sort of granular level of filling everything in. Um, although my understanding is that even with this latest news um, uh, today about 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 cinema objecting to some of the, the, the pay fors, the tax increases, that they do have some um, some agreements on, on some some buckets that she can kind of agree with. Uh, she's agreed to enough various different uh, spending streams that it gets us in the two trillion dollar neighborhood, which is what the top line was that we were looking at. The irony is, unfortunately, uh, between Cinema and Mansion, they they disagree with different parts, right? So Cinema's fine with the climate stuff, <laughs> but Mansion objects to that. Mansion's fine with the, the the tax increases on the wealthy and corporations, and Cinema's is opposed to that. So between the two of them, unfortunately, it it it, it sort of creates this perfect storm of um of a lot of priorities being endangered. But um. Look, I'd be a fool to start giving you guesses on what what exactly will end up in a final package. Um, I think everything is still very much up in the air. But um, well, like, what uh, about dental care? What about dental care, hearing aid, hearing aids and eyeglasses for for Medicare recipients? I was actually just talking to somebody about this today. I think there's a good chance that audiology um, and optometry stay in. Uh, dental is more difficult. It's more expensive. And uh, there's a chance that that moves to more of like a voucher program, uh, you know, whatever, a couple thousand bucks a year to get your dental work done as opposed to setting up a, a true, you know, Medicare style benefit. Um, so one of the benefits you give of us, that hold your is, thought. I, I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah. But I, uh, what's great. It's an honor to have you here. You do appropriations. You have a background. This is your expertise. Do we so. 
each facet of the bill is in the hands of a specific committee chairperson. And so we get an idea of what's in the bill. Like we know, I think Manchin is in charge of the energy committee. Is that correct? So we get an idea of what he's going to put up with in terms of climate. So is that where we get an idea of it, it, with the committees who are marking up or writing the bill kind of indicate what the specific chairman or chairperson is willing to keep in the bill? Is, is it is that how it works? I, in general, yes. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, the House has already sort of undertaken this task of of of, um, of having our committees go out and, and we've all marked up and a markup is essentially the, the passing it out of committee. Um, there's an amendment process and we sort of move through, move through it. But that was at the old three point five trillion dollar number. And we sort of moved forward with that because we, we weren't getting answers from the Senate on what they were going to be willing to, um, you know, to come around to that. That is kind of this is a this is an. Um, uh, this is an exception to that sort of what we would call sort of, you know, uh, standard operating procedure, if you will, um, because is, it's a reconciliation uh, bill that's being wagged by Bernie in the Senate. That's right. It's, so because we're using and, and because there's so little room for error, uh, meaning it has to have essentially unanimous support among Democrats in the Senate and, and near unanimous in the House, it's a very leadership you know, top down driven thing. So normally you'd have the committee level working on bills. They bring it up to the House floor, it goes to the Senate. You know, you work a process up from the ground up from the committee level up. Um, this is sort of, a, 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 you know, an inverse of that process where um, it's it's a leadership driven down um, and, and everybody's going to sort of end up at the end with a take it or leave it, you know, sort of um, uh, sort of bill on the floor, um, which, you know, Normally, we wouldn't be supportive of and normally wouldn't fly, probably. But because of the just the scope and scale of what we're trying to do and the, the slim margins we've got, I think everybody recognizes this is pretty much the only way you can you can accomplish it. Um, so when uh, you hear and, I, and I'm hearing that. I care for Medicare is being considered. That's still rumor, right? Absolutely. Nothing. There is no. Yeah. The, the, the ink is not even wet on these, you know, on these conversations. And um, yeah, this is just this. These are just things that are being bantered around. Um, and, and what's definitely uh, off the table is dreamers. Right. That's that's been stripped completely. Well, yeah. So that was something that the Senate parliamentarian has already, you know, has already ruled on that 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 um, uh, she decided that that wouldn't be germane to to a budget reconciliation uh, uh, measure, you know, uh, again, people of goodwill and intelligence can disagree, but, um, I certainly think, um, you know, giving a legal pathway to citizenship to all those folks would have an impact on our, on our budget, uh, on our GDP. Um, but so yes, but the short answer to your question is yes, that's already sort of been determined. And, and that's, is it, that's not it's, it's turning out that universal preschool is not that heavy a lift that, a lot of states already, even I think Joe Manchin, I think West Virginia is, a pro, I think they're approaching universal preschool. So yeah, the fact that it's a 40-60 split between the state and the federal, how hard is that to finance and pull off? I thought it was going to be a lot harder, but it doesn't 
doesn't seem that hard. Yeah, I, I, I haven't heard of that sort of being on the, um, you know, sort of the chopping block, if you will, um, universal pre-kindergarten. Um, unfortunately, it looks like the community college, the two years of free tuition to community college may come out. Uh, but again, this is, I'm just speculating now, full full disclosure to everybody. I mean, these, these are, you know, I'm reading the same press reports you guys are, talking to some people, um, but nobody truly, anybody tries to pretend like they know exactly what's going to be in there, uh, you know, is, is, isn't being truthful because there's a lot of, uh, a lot of room to, to maneuver still in this. So, so. You think Manchel, can I, let me, can I just do a bad yeah. joke that will offend yeah, Mark Savasco? No, yeah, offend and it's offend me too. You would I, think I Manchin would be Mark. for, <laughs> they have, aren't universal preschool and community college in West Virginia the same thing? That's just to, just to piss off, yeah. just to come across as a coastal elitist and that's a dig, not at the people of West Virginia, but to Joe Manchin. Hey, Mark, Sorry. I, got a I apologize. <laughs> I can't control myself. No, it was it was a, a really w- wonderful joke. Um, it, the this has been going on since as long as I've been working for progressive groups attempting to lobby Congress. These extraordinary pieces of legislation, um, including the tax bill. I went to uh, law school with uh, Chris Matthews, who was at the time uh, possibly the chief of staff of Tip O'Neill, but certainly high up there. And uh, uh, Tip O'Neill used to come in in December with, uh, they had spent months working on these tax revisions, hundreds of pages, he'd give the Democrats three pages. He'd say, this is a summary of everything that's in the bill, vote for it. And in general, because it was getting close to holidays, they would go, sure, and they'd vote on it. But now we're finding something that happens that's more pernicious than that. During the debates over the COVID loan programs, a lot, lots of people that in my judgment should never have gotten any money, uh, got a lot of money. And I, today I just learned about another one. The last few days there have been a lot of news broadcasts about a place called the Centner Academy in Miami, Florida. And this is the school that says, if you give your child a vaccination, you have to keep the kid out of school for 30 days because, says the management of the school, it could be possible for virus to shed and infect other students. Now, that's theoretically possible if you are developing a vaccine that uses live virus, but none of these vaccines use live virus. So it's completely ridiculous. So today I found out that they had gotten a loan, one of those loans that if you give it to the right people, becomes a grant of $800,000. And so I was griping during much of last year about the failure of Congress to be clear enough about what is and is not permissible, rather than to give it to the Trump administration to figure out who gets these money, what the rules and regulations are, it should be statutory. And I still think that, because then I think it'd be hard to figure out why you should pay religious teachers $800,000 in the first place. Am I wrong? Or maybe Congress... (laughs) No, I don't. I don't think you are wrong. Uh, and and I've heard, you know, I, I did hear about that school, actually. And I've, I've heard about other, you know, there were other examples. Um, you probably all remember them from 
uh, from right when this stuff was happening. Sure. Or th- there were some large corporations that got sort of named and shamed over receiving really large PPP loans and some of the other programs. Look, this was something that that we we did talk about at the time. Um, uh, and it was it's a ba- it was a balance. Right. This was a, a period where we needed to move uh, quickly um, to get money into people's pockets. And so you had this, this decision to make, do we take our time and, and try to come up with all of the exceptions and rules and, and, and regulations as you're, as you're pointing out, Reverend Lynn, which would obviously I think make it better and make, certainly make it more equitable and just, or do we move because this is an emergency and move quickly and try to get, get money out there. I think on balance, the, the, people might still argue, look, it was still better, even though some money got into the hands of some people who may not deserve it, the vast majority of the money got into the hands of people who who desperately needed it and needed it then, right? They didn't need it in three months when we finished writing the bill. They needed it right then because the COVID was wreaking havoc on the economy and a lot of people were struggling. So uh, it's always a tough call. We we, we deal with these sort of public policy um, and, 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 and sort of political decisions all the time. At the time, it was an imperfect situation from our perspective too, right? We were dealing with an administration sure. that didn't have a very good track record on on good governance, let's just say. So um, so those were challenges. But um, but I think by and large, uh, you know, the argument that that cares and the Rescue Act have been enormously successful in uh, in keeping the country from going into a tailspin um, uh, during the pandemic. So um, it, but it does mean there's going to be examples like like you're bringing bringing up uh, and then they'll continue to exist. We're going to continue to hear about them. But um you know, the difference between look at another just to, as a point of reference or another example, um, you remember the um, uh, the Recovery Act. So this is ARA, the American Rescue and Re- or American Reinvestment and Recovery Act after the 08 crisis. That took us a long time to pass. There's a lot of haggling in the Senate. Um but but that bill, uh, which Joe Biden, to his credit, oversaw as vice president of the United States, oversaw the implementation of it. Not very many examples of, of wasted money with, with ARA. We, we did a pretty darn good job of getting that money into the hands of shovel-ready projects that needed it. But you could argue, look, it was too little. One, the, the bill was too small. Two, it took too long to do. By then, a lot of permanent damage had already been done to the economy, and it was hard to pull us out from where we were at. And, the, you know, the, the, the recovery struggled because of that, right? It wasn't enough and it was, it was too little too late. Um, so while it was, it was perfect in many ways because there weren't examples of this, this waste, fraud, abuse, um, it also didn't quite get the job done in terms of you know, staving off a really bad uh, recession. Um, Let me so ask you a follow-up it's, question. It's we were talking with Michael Cohen earlier today and I asked him about the popularity of Build Back Better. And he kind of said it doesn't matter. Uh, is it is Jim Banks, the Republican, is he head of the Republican study group? Uh, maybe I'm wrong, but I think I read somewhere that the Republicans were really worried about how popular Build Back Better is. That seems to be, I think, it, just from my perspective, 10 percent of Americans don't know what's in Build Back Better. So. If if you're looking for the three, I mean, Professor Lee, I'm going to turn your video off if you don't mind temporarily. Thank you. Um, how important is it? Uh, how important is the popularity? Is it, is it is it more important what Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema think? Then I mean, what 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 about what the American people 
do, do you read? Do they read the polls? Do they care what we want? Um, look, I think uh, Abraham Lincoln said it best. The public sentiment is everything. Uh, without it, nothing can succeed. And, and with it, uh, everything can succeed. So, I mean, you um, or, or something like that, right. paraphrasing. Um, uh, of, of course, the fact that the specific elements of, of the Build Back Better plan are extraordinarily popular when you poll them individually is is a good thing for us. And it is important. And um, it means that as when we pass this um, and as we talk about what good policies are being implemented that should hopefully have a good, you know, a good impact on, on, on how people see, uh, you know, see the president and see, see the democratic Congress and see what we've done. Um, and more importantly, of course, it will actually help people. Uh, but the political reality is the political reality. What, what mansion and cinema think of course matters. They are two of the essential votes that we need to, to pass right. the package. So without their view, um, you know, or without their approval of uh, of what we're working on, um, it doesn't get done. And um, you know, look, I don't believe me. I, I understand that you're you probably have many listeners that are extraordinarily frustrated by that reality. Um, believe me when I say that I share that frustration every day. Right. Um, I, I work in it. Do. I deal with it. Um, it, 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 but it, it sort of is what it is. I, I didn't, you know, I, I didn't control, nor did any of us control the, how the makeup of the Senate uh, was going to be, uh, except for the fact that we all worked extraordinarily hard to win those two races in Georgia and to, to try to pick off some of the other seats that we did in, in 2020. And um, I think every once in a while, just in terms of perspective, it is important to, to just sort of um, look back from where, you know, from whence we came and, and to sort of consider all the other options that were out there Um there's a lot of good things that we can do with a majority in the Senate. Um, we would have never gotten the Rescue Act through if, right. if Mitch McConnell were the Senate majority leader. We wouldn't be, you know, Joe Biden wouldn't be appointing all kinds of judges like he is right now, uh, federal judges with without um, without our majority in the Senate. So there are important things that need to get done, you know, aside from even build back better. And uh, we're going to get the best bill we can get. I think we. Uh, set expectations really high and that may they come back to bite us a little bit with the progressive base who might be frustrated because we don't get everything we wanted but i think if you look at that compared to for example what happened during the obama administration where my number one criticism would have been that they usually started negotiations in the middle and then got pushed to the right um joe biden to his credit and I, you know credit where credit is due the, the biden administration sided with bernie sanders and, and yes. nancy pelosi and have Chuck you Schumer. ever seen anything the, the congressional progress the progressive caucus it's about a hundred congress people who are have you ever seen the progressives this powerful in in your career have you ever seen somebody like pramila jayapal crushing it seems like she's making you know godheimer the problem solver look like he's on the fringes have you ever seen that before well one of the big differences um is that uh is sort of what i was just saying I, I, the, the, one of the big differences is we had the the majority of the party and party leadership on our side right the speaker of the house is on our side on this, the Progressive Caucus's side on this. The Senate Majority Leader is on our side. The President of the United States is on our side. All those those elements want the same thing. So this the Progressive Caucus doesn't have to do, I mean, they're, they're holding firm, and I think we've been incredibly smart about the way that we um, 
you know, about the way that we've approached this. You haven't seen a lot of bomb throwing and a lot of insults. It's, it's not. Well, I mean, it's right pretty now. amazing. Um, there, I, I, you know, bomb throwing. The progressives are saying you you like that nice little bipartisan bill and all the goodies that would, you know, there are things in there that would help America. And the progressives are saying you're not getting we're going to we're going to it's pretty menacing to say you either pass build back better or there's no reckon, there's no uh, bipartisan infrastructure. infrastructure. I mean, well, that I've never again, seen anything means, like that before. That reality doesn't doesn't happen without House leadership essentially sharing the progressive position on this. Um, Have you ever seen something I mean, like that before? I just have another question. Okay. And then we should let Mark go. Yeah. Uh, Nancy Pelosi had a, a, I thought, a very good uh, press conference this morning. I'm not a huge fan of her press conferences, but I think she did a good job. And one of the things she did was to talk to the press and tell them it was their responsibility to spend more time explaining what is in this bill. And I mean, when you think about it, and I know uh, Congresswoman Jayapal was on something the other day saying the same thing, like people don't know, as David mentioned, 10 percent of people in one CBS poll had any real idea about what was in the bill or what might be in the bill. They don't think it's going to help them. Most Americans no, don't I, think no, they're going to be affected but, by it. No, but that's because nobody spends any time telling right. them what the possibilities are. If you talk about daycare, if you talk about elder care, if you explain what the range of options are, and if CNN would do that for a half an hour instead of, well, trying to figure out what the remains of uh, whose remains are in Florida. If they, if they spent time on this stuff, and I know what the networks would say, well, that stuff's boring, but it's not boring. It's important. You can have people who care passionately about these explain it. Members of of the of uh, of Congress who say this is this is why elder care is so important to me. This is why daycare is so important. This is not boring stuff. And I think the media has an enormous responsibility that it is not undertaking to do the right thing by explaining what these issues are and why it makes a difference to those average voters. Mark Savasco, let me let me I, I'm going to. Could you stick around for 10 more minutes? Yeah, really, because I would like to share you with Professor Ann Lee and Professor Jonathan Bick and Professor Marianne Cummings, because we do a, a segment called The Professors and Marianne, which I know you're familiar with because you listen to the show. Uh, and I would like to see if they have any questions for you. And the Reverend Barry W. Lynn, you're, you're welcome to stick around as well. But I want to share I, more. I do have to I do have to leave. Oh. But I've enjoyed this. Yes. And, uh, I'll yeah. see you next week. Yes. And and let me, let's do our traditional sign off. OK. The absolutely. Reverend. Well, the Reverend Barry W. Lynn for nearly a quarter of a century <laughs> ran Americans United for separation of church and state. And every day that mission of yours becomes more and more important. And uh, besides being an attorney, a lawyer, you're also an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ. And uh, thank you. 
This is our sign-off. Stay out of trouble, Reverend. Only good trouble. Right. I just love that. Thank you. Keep it clean. Keep it clean, Reverend. Let me bring in Professor Jonathan Bick, Professor Ann Lee, and Professor Marianne Cummings. And while I have you here, and I know this is crunch time, and this is the most important we, you have, you're, this is one of the most important times to be in the House of Representatives in American history. So if Professor Bick, Lee, or Professor Cummings ha- have any questions, uh, or Mark can actually fix your parking tickets, um, not, not through the congressional office. He's just good at hack. I'm kidding. I was going to say he hacks. Uh, I'll ask you a question to get the ball rolling. Ralph Nader just started Congress Club. And he wants to create more citizen lobbyists. And we had a meeting on Zoom uh, Sunday, and it was really remarkable. And, and Ralph believes that the only solution to this, to where we're at, is, is the House of Representatives. He says if 1% of Americans lobby peacefully Congress hard enough, we can accomplish anything we want. And we give out phone numbers on this show for people to call Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin and be polite and leave messages and write uh, those offices. Cinema's office, not only does she not have a button to press if you speak Spanish, and she's from Arizona, her answering machine is full. What is the best way to to lobby your 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 Congress people. Um, well, constituents matter more than just you know. No offense to, to, to your listeners, but if you're Joe Manchin's office and you're getting calls from California and New York, it's probably not going to have too much of an impact. Um, but if he's getting a lot of calls from folks in West Virginia, that 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 may change the way they think about things. Um, so constituents matter in the house, obviously pe- people from, from the district um, and, and in the Senate, your, your state, um, but calls, emails um, nowadays, social media, you know, is, is important. So getting that sort of echo chamber out there on, you know, on a Facebook or, or a, uh, a Twitter account or something, although you know, those are, those are somewhat sus unless they're verified, you know, or unless, unless people are sort of using their real names and stuff, it's, right. it's a little bit harder, but uh, maybe in, in that case, Facebook's a little better than, than Twitter in that respect. But, um, but no call, calls and emails absolutely impact. We, we have a, um, a, a biweekly staff meeting uh, and I have my frontline folks, the entry level position and the interns who are answering the phones, they give us, what are the top, top three topics? What, what, what's the, what was the worst call you had yesterday? Uh, you know, tell us, tell us about it. Um, Cause I believe it's important for my staff to know what people are talking about uh, when they, when they call up and, and talk to our district uh, yeah. office. So I have found um, uh, that I'll, I'm hogging you. I apologize. Uh, I've found if calling your Congress people as an advocate for somebody else, calling constituent services. I I, uh, had a friend when I was living in L.A. who couldn't get uh, Medicaid. They called something, Cal, I can't remember. Medi-Cal. And I called his Congress person and said, I need help navigating and 
I found that was a great way to message the congressperson that we have a problem with health care. And, you know, and I was well-intentioned. I was genuinely trying to get this guy medical treatment. Uh, sure. uh, it, you know, making your voice heard is important, but also asking if, if you're legitimate, asking for help to navigate the bureaucracy does that register? I would think that appeals to your better angels within the congressional office where you're you do want to help the constituent service. You sure. do want to help your constituents, right? Absolutely. Half of my staff is uh, the, the staff that's in Los Angeles. Um, uh, they are they do casework. So essentially they are social workers who are um, helping constituents, um, you know, just navigate uh, the federal government. So whether it's a problem with veterans benefits or, you know, your Medicare screwed up or your Social Security check isn't coming or you're having a problem with the post office, you need to rush on a passport, all of those things, you know, anything that touches the federal government, we can help with. And, and we do. And, and casework during you know, the last couple of years has really spiked. Um, and so is a couple more people to do that. This is exciting to me because we're I'm part of Congress Club and lobbying uh, Congress to pass bills. If you're well intentioned, if you're if you're like a malignant narcissist and you're and you're, you're, call, you're calling the office to you're going to be you're going to be treated, you're going to be dismissed. You're not important. Uh, if you're a pain in the neck, they, they, you probably think, well, he doesn't even vote. Probably this guy's a fraud. But if you genuinely ask for help. You're pointing out a problem and that eventually, if you're well intentioned, it it goes upriver to the congressperson, right? Yeah, sure. I mean, to, to the extent that the congressman himself would need um, you know, would need to be involved in it. We handle most of the casework um, at the staff level, hopefully, uh, unless there's a real problem. But would it, um, would it be I, I apologize. Would it in terms of lobbying Senator Manchin or Senator Kirsten Cinema To write a letter. Asking for help. On something, a legitimate letter explaining uh, universal preschool. I work. I'm a single mom. I, I you know, you you want uh, uh, you you want a means testing now for the three hundred dollars a month and uh, for children. Let me. Can you help me? Because I can't make my rent. Do you have any suggestions on how I can make my rent here? And in and to put it on them uh, and ask for help. And make it and make it real, not like you're part of some organization that's been, you know, lobby this. Sure. Yeah. D does that register more? Does that move the needle? Yeah, I, I, that would be that'll be a little bit harder only because um, that would probably that kind of a request would probably come to D.C. In, in my office, because that is more of a, it's a policy issue. You're you're right. you're expressing it in a very heartfelt, personal way. Right. I, I'm having trouble making ends meet, uh, making ends meet. Uh, I can't get you know, uh, I, I, I need 
universal pre-K and uh, I can't pay for my insulin somewhere. I I can't can't pay pay for my insulin, whatever, like drug prices, whatever the case is, you know, the the district office may look at that and see if there's some program or some way that we can help them. But most likely that's going to trickle its way to Washington where, um, You know, it's going to be sort of a policy response. Okay. But, you, but I, I agree with you. That's better than a big campaign with a thousand people saying, you know, I want universal pre-K. It, it, better to get a heartfelt letter from a constituent explaining in real terms what what that means to them. Right. Right. Uh, uh, right. At a personal at a granular level. Wow. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, I, again, uh, Professor Ann Lee, is there anything you would like to ask? Uh, Professor Bick, Professor Cummings. Yes. Um, so, so thank you very much, uh, Mark, for coming on the program. We enjoy hearing uh, you know, inside perspective. Um, I guess my um, one question is, you know, what, what should we do uh, about senators that not that don't seem to want to represent their constituents? I mean, the polling in West Virginia and in Arizona seems quite clear with regard to Build Back Better. It has support among Democrats and Republicans uh, in both of those states. And yet, the senators, uh, at least in terms of Manchin and um, Cinema, um, they just don't care. And, and in the case of cinema, she seems to be avoiding her constituents. And I, I don't even think uh, you can leave a message on her uh, congressional line. So she doesn't seem to, to care very much about the opinions of her own constituents, uh, never mind the rest of the country. Yeah, I mean, look, um, it's. it's a, it's a fair question. Certainly. Um, I'm afraid I probably don't have an answer that you haven't thought of already. Uh, but you know, in essence, I mean, there's, there is a remedy for removing ineffective members of Congress. Uh, they're called elections and we, you know, uh, and the the constituents of, of a state or a district, have to decide whether or not, I mean, look, I, I could give you a big long list of members of the house that I think do a piss poor job representing their constituents. Um, some of them win with such overwhelming majorities of the vote in, in their particular districts that it's, you know, we don't even run people against them. Um, uh, that is the reality. I mean, at a certain point, I can't dictate to the people of West Virginia or, you know, a rural district in, in, in Alabama or Georgia or wherever, um, who they get to send to Washington. Um, my job is fighting with them once they get here, <laughs> uh, and trying to convince a certain number of them that, you know, that, that our way is better than theirs, but we live in a really big, diverse country. Uh, I, you know, I, 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 I find myself saying this all the time to, I believe me, nobody speaks to more progressives that are infuriated by what's going on right now than I do. And I know probably every single one of you uh, listening thinks that that you do, but trust me that you don't. We, we have one of the most progressive districts in the country um, with a lot of well-educated activists and, and people who are engaged and fired up. And I, the, the refrain I think I say the most to people is, you know, the rest of the country isn't like Santa Monica. <laughs> they don't all see this the exact way that you do. And it's, it's true. Um, even in our own party, we don't have even close to near unanimity 
uh, when it comes to the way that we should approach the problems facing the country uh, moving forward. And in some ways, that's a, you know, that's a beautiful thing about democracy and 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 the way that we, you know, we're, we're going to uh, sort of hash these things out. In other ways, it can be extraordinarily frustrating, especially for people that have sincerely and deeply held beliefs about the way we should be doing things and, and things that are not just, you know, it's, it's, it's I, I mean, I understand. I understand that it's not just like a, a policy disagreement and it's not just about me being right and you being wrong. These are things that impact real people's lives. Um, you know, but I, I you know, as, as we're, um, you know, we're talking about this, the, 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 the terrible abortion law in Texas, you know, um, I can specifically remember in 2016, you know, being told by activists in our district that it didn't matter if it was Hillary or Trump, um, you know, none, none of that stuff was going to change. And um, uh, if we bring up justices or we bring up abortion or these other things, I was told that I was fear mongering uh, and that I should calm down and that, you know, this is, you know, about, you know, other things. Um, there, there, there are realities that we're facing here, folks. These are not, um, um, these are not all people that approach things the way that, that you or I do. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's a challenge every day. If you guys could listen to a caucus meeting, a democratic caucus meeting the way I have over the last several years, um, uh, it, it's remarkable. Some of the things that come out of the mouths of Democrats, the people that are in our own caucus, um, uh, and who ostensibly believe the same things that we, that, that we believe or we stand for. Um, there's a, I'll just put it this way. There is a wide, um, variety of thought, uh, in the democratic party. And, um, uh, the big tent is a, is a source of strength in, in some ways. Uh, but it, you, you're watching what you're seeing unfold over these last several weeks, months, even, uh, with, with, with these two proposals and, and what we're going to, you know, what we're going to ultimately settle on is, uh, is some of that ugly sausage making. But the hope is that even, even a, a bill that's not even close to what, what we'd all probably prefer uh, could still be very transformational for some people, uh, right? This, this child tax credit that's going out now is a big deal for a lot of people. Um, so it's, it's, it, it's not nothing, uh, I guess, to put it that way. Okay. Um, thank you. And Mark for coming on. Uh, I have to take issue with you on two things. Hang on for one second. She, Professor okay. Marianne Cummings is a physics professor, but more importantly, she is parks, a parks commissioner. She's an elected parks commissioner of Aurora, Illinois, in Aurora, Illinois. So All right. that she took the call from Bernie and ran. Mm -hmm. Didn't mean to interrupt you. Oh. Oh, uh, that's okay. Um, first of all, uh, progressives have gotten nothing of what we wanted in any legislation that's coming to the Congress, floor of the Congress. We have not gotten Medicare for all. We have not gotten Green New Deal, which is absolutely suicidal right now. I mean, the 3.5 trillion was a watered down version of the 6 trillion, which was an inadequate version of what the, uh, among other things, the uh, uh, environmental groups were saying was the absolute minimum we need to spend over 10 years to like turn this tide. And they're not doing it. I mean, I'm beginning to think that all the members of Congress to first order feel rich enough that they won't feel the consequences. They can just move. It's just the poor people that are going to die or suffer or whatever. 
But, you know, where there's no movement on the Black Lives Matter. I mean, Biden is moving to the right on on law enforcement. He's talking about ginning up the war on drugs again. I mean, we're not getting anything toward a decent housing uh policy we're not getting anything any movement on dreamers i mean they he's upping the ice budget there's no movement to get rid of ice ice is now i mean there there's slave there there's reports of slave labor going on like these inmates of these detention camps being forced to work it is like on almost every major issue and not to mention the uh forever wars. I mean, Afghanistan, they, yeah, we, we got out because the, the Taliban chased us out, but they're increasing the war budget every damn year. So let's just put it out. The Democrats are getting nothing of what they want. There were some sane things to help us all survive, sane steps like you know, uh, improving Medicare and negotiating drug prices and, you know, lowering the age to 60 and a whole bunch of reasonable, doable steps. And they're all getting shot down. And I'll tell you, that bipartisan bill is bad. Not only is it completely inadequate for the decades of backlog of infrastructure we need, it's a privatization bill. The only thing that would have made that bipartisan bill on the whole, a positive thing was it to be coupled to this $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill of Bernie Sanders. And I mean, the progressives, instead of, in, in, instead of still digging in their heels and, and calling the bluff of Manchin and Cinema, I mean, no Democrat is talking about just force these two knuckleheads to take a couple of very unpopular votes. You know, just force them to vote down Bernie's reconciliation bill. They want that bipartisan bill. Their donors want that bipartisan bill. God damn it, I am really even beginning to doubt the the sincerity of even some of the, quote, best progressives in Congress when they're talking to us. I wish Jayapal and Rokana would just not speak at all. Let Bernie Sanders do the speaking because they are such weak this poor, where, I mean, just listening to them, you get no confidence whatsoever. Even if you thought they were fighting for you, they inspire zero confidence, except on the side that wants to crush us. The other side is just high-fiving, like those guys, you know, they, they're winning. I just had a Chuck Todd moment. I, I'm, I'm going to... Oh, had, I'm sorry. No, no, no. I, I got insight into Jake Tapper and Chuck Todd, and this is... Uh, I want Mark to come back. I don't want to lose access to and right. and so I'm thinking, well, if we get if we get to this is this is this is exactly why it's so anodyne on Sunday. You like, but Mark is uh, uh, anyway. I, no, I no, thought, no, oh my I'm god, now I know why Jake Tapper doesn't go. Uh, go ahead, Mark. No, no. I, I, as I've, I, I don't. I mean, I don't. I don't. I don't take any of it personally. Uh, right. Certainly right. not. Professional. Um, uh, right. And, and like I've said before, I, there's nothing. This um, you would have had to throw in uh, way more expletives to, to match <laughs> many of the phone calls that I take uh, on a daily basis. So this right. is uh, this is nothing nothing new to me. Uh, look, I, I don't. Yeah. Well, I, I might take exception with some with some of those things, uh, but 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 overall, I. I I could certainly appreciate the uh, 
the level of frustration. The, the only thing I would say is I, I, I don't I don't really necessarily see um, uh, uh, see a, see a path where we could get. Uh, the, the things that you that you would like um, with the current political reality of, of, of what we've got now. So, um, you know, if the choice and, and if you're asking me if the choice is between getting a two trillion dollar uh, bill done, that doesn't even if, you know, to, to your point, doesn't even come close to meeting the challenge of what we're facing with climate and um, and, and and housing and, uh, you know, and education and all the other priorities that I think we share. Um if the choice is between getting that or getting nothing, I, I you know, I, I don't know. I, I, you know, I do this because I get, I, I get in the trenches and, 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 and have the fights and, and we, you know, it's, it's, it, I mean, I know we don't want to, you know, talk about incremental uh, uh, change. Right. But um, uh, if the choice is between incremental change and no change, um, I think your uh, I job, it, I, yeah. I appreciate it. I wish I could, you know, I, right. I, I, a part of me absolutely looks at, the ability of 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 the activist to be able to, you know, be on the outside and look in and, and say this is all terrible, um, and even the people that are fighting for me are terrible <laughs> because I don't think they're fighting hard enough. Um, that's fine. That's you, you're certainly entitled to the view and you're entitled to your frustration and 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 I don't um, in many ways I share it. Believe me. Um, I don't have that luxury. Yeah, you're not. Your job is not to be a flamethrower. Your job is to, when you're doing appropriations, which is your expertise, it's how much money do we have? How much can we spend? How much debt? I mean, it's the it's that's not. Anyway, you've been very. I'll give you the last word. Uh, no, I'm just going to say, I, I, and, and nobody's, you know, and and nobody even, you know, even if Bernie had been elected president. Um, he wouldn't be king, uh, right? I mean, he'd still have the realities of a Congress. He'd still have the realities of, um, you know, of a cabinet and of, you know, and of an executive brand. I mean, you're a physics professor. You understand inertia, uh, right? There are things that uh, that, that I are already- I understand leverage, sir. I understand leverage, leverage and power. And the, I understand, I know how to count, you know, one, two, three, four. Nancy Pelosi has a, has a margin of five. Democrats in the House. Right. Progressives, self-proclaimed progressives, are at least 10. Right. That means, as Ilan Omar said right before Christmas, it only takes five brave progressives to start setting policy. And why not have the public fight? They seem to have caved to cinema and mansion without forcing them to have the public fight. You know? They, they, they will refuse to just call their bluff, force them to take unpopular votes, as I said. Yeah. And then do, you know, they'll all have to come back to the negotiating table. Maybe they might have to spend, you know, part of their Christmas vacation working like a lot of us do. So it's just like they seem to be just accepting the premises of the most reactionary elements of the Democratic Party. And they're just back to, well, we just got to elect more Democrats. That won't do any good. <laughs> I mean, you, you have a margin. You have, a, you have an opportunity now to leverage your very small numbers because the margin for the Nancy Pelosi's is even smaller. And they won't do it. So whatever happens two and four years from now, the situation will not be more favorable for progressives. This was their opportunity. 
the structural disadvantage that progressives have is that ultimately they want to do things and the other side does not right so the the, the other but side well, is, I mean, the other side is happy with the status quo with these guys look they'll get nothing done it will be that if they have a really watered down reconciliation bill and they pass that damn bipartisan bill the net will probably be negative yeah i mean some donors are going to be happy some people are going to get some things but for the trajectory that we need to go on over the next five, even five years it may be negative at least one round call their bluff you know How Just, are, uh, where, you don't vote for 3.5 trillion we don't vote for the bipartisan see you back at the negotiating table at least have one round of that and see what happens see what the public response is i don't know that everybody shares the the sort of um gladiator style sort of uh this isn't gladi- <laughs> blood you're not sport there. you're not beating him if, over the head with an axe no no i'm I just saying like I, I, I think the the, the, the public, politics. The, the public perception power. of what's happening now is not very good. Joe, you know, the, Joe Biden's numbers. Oh, so what do you have to lose? Every, so, I mean, yeah. their their approval rate, Congress uh, approval rating is lower than Joe Biden's, which is now lower than Donald Trump's. For God's sake. So, and certainly the, the Republicans, okay, the Republicans are playing this as a blood sport. I'm getting a real lesson in why mainstream media is so. I I I I, no, I enjoy I enjoy it, Dave. Please don't. I don't you, want you to feel uh, bad at all. It's because we're going to ask you to sit in a dunking booth in a little. Bit. Well, I mean, I I, I should. Um, I have I have a question that's very insidery, so you know it, it, it'll it won't alarm you, David. Okay, because I my whole well, show is, is about access. You know that, right? If I don't get access, access, I'm nothing. <laughs> I I just was wondering about um, the ten years time span for this bill. I mean. American politics is changing so much. What's going to happen next election? You bring in a new Congress, a new president, they'll scrap. Look, they tried to get rid of Obama's, you know, kind of health care plan, etc. Why make such a long time horizon, which actually means that you're not you're spreading out what is increasingly meager amounts over such a long period of time. Why not? And also America has become fixated because for whatever reason, even though Professor Jonathan Bick explained what's in this, you know, in this bill two months ago, and that's the last time I heard anybody talk about what's actually in the bill, they're just obsessing about the number. So 3.5, no, 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 can't do 3.5, 1.75. Why not cut it to five years? Why not cut it to like three years as the time horizon, but keep that 1.75? So, you know, it sounds small, but, you know, what realistically uh, options do we have on that level to do that sort of jujitsu? Is anybody thinking about uh, if it's if it's all about the numbers, why don't we shift the numbers game to our advantage once you actually if you did pass that? you know, over a four or five year horizon and people saw the benefits of what they actually are getting, there might be real public, you know, support to continue this, extend it, increase it, et cetera. But nobody has seen any of these benefits. And it's always just this 
you know, political congressional talk and nobody feels like they're actually going to benefit from it. Yeah. But maybe if we showed rather than told and managed to slip it through by, you know, just uh, shortening the horizon, keep all those programs in um, by cutting by half. So, OK, you cut 3.5 down to half. Let's cut the time horizon down by half. Why not just try these kinds of things? I wonder, is that possible? Yeah. No, no. The, it, it, what you're talking about is 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 absolutely on the table. Some some of the time horizons have been have been talked about. You know, Pramila has been talking about this for for several weeks. And actually, I think the first time I heard it um, uh, w- was something that, uh, uh, that that Bernie Sanders had suggested. So, it, interestingly, I think some of the the, the ten year time frame, a lot of that actually comes from some of the environmental programs. They um, they just take longer to, to, to get going, right? You're talking about like electrifying the entire grid and doing, you know, or, or, uh, you know, uh, vehicle electrification and, um, you know, setting up a clean energy accelerator to, uh, to fund low-income housing tech, you know, there's all, there's all kinds of things that, that just, they just take time as some of the Medicare stuff, for example, I mean, the estimates on the, you know, getting that dental plan up and running is, is, is a couple of years, you know, so it, it, the, 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 the goal was give ourselves enough time to, um, uh, uh, to implement some of these, 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 these programs, but, um, but for the ones that can be implemented immediately. And one of the reasons child tax credits are very popular things because we've already done it, right. You could, you, you could do that pretty easily. You can get, you can get money into, into folks, bank accounts. Um, uh, but you know, when you're talking about like weatherizing, you know, uh, uh homes and, and, and these kinds of things, I mean, these are large scale programs that are going to take time to implement. Um, you're talking about j- just hiring enough people to do some of the things that, that we're talking about doing, um, uh, w- w- would be an incredible amount of time. So, um, uh, but I think I think that is, the short answer is that is on the table, and that is something I think that you're you're going to see. We may end up with a um, sort of a staggered timeline for some of these things. So you might see like child tax credits only extended for two years, but the the timeline on the electric fleet is you know is 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 a seven or eight year program, and um, you know we may end up with a little bit of a Frankenstein when it comes to uh, 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 how, how the uh, 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 how the outlays go, but. Um, uh, but no, it's a good, it's a great, it's a great point. And, and on the messaging piece, you're, you're hundred percent right. Um, and David pointed this out early at the, uh, at the top of my appearance, but, um, you know, uh, the, the, the news likes to cover the, 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 you know, the horse race. I mean, that's what we've, we've done here today, right? That's the interesting part. We all started to get that that's politics. That's, you know, they should force a vote. They should do this. They should do that. But that's, that's what people like. Nobody wants to hear me get into the details of the agriculture, conservation, drought and forestry programs, right? Those, those are, that's much less interesting to people. Which is a big payout to agribusiness. It's, it looks like it's not going to help the small family farms, right? Well, right, and there are exactly for all these programs, there are nuances to them. And right. there are I mean, look, one of the upsides to focusing to having so much of the public focus be on these top line numbers and not so many of the details, I suppose, is that um, at some point you can compromise on a number. So at some point we'll end up with a number here and we'll have a bill and then we can fill in the people and we can fill in the programs uh, and, and explain them to people once we have a, a, a final past bill. Uh, you know, part of the problem we've had now is expectation setting. Right. We've talked about these things. We've talked about, um, you know, two free years of, uh, uh, of community college. Well, if that doesn't get in there, that's a loss. Right. And for those keeping score at home, for those, those sort of like handicapping the horse race, it looks like, oh, you're you know, you're taking a hit. You're not getting what you wanted. Um, expectations management is the name of uh, is the name of the game here. It's the name of politics. But um, 
but again, the alternative is more of the Obama model, which was they started in the middle with what they thought was a reasonable approach and everything got jolted to the right. Uh, so to our credit, I think this time, uh, and well, I guess ultimately we'll see which which strategy works a little bit better. But um, but, you know, we uh, I think we had a you know, this was a, a pretty bold ask uh, to, to, to start, especially given that, um, you know, given that we knew the margins we had in the United States Senate. I mean, you could only afford to be as progressive as your most conservative Democrat in the United States Senate. I didn't make the rules. That's the reality of the, the politics we're dealing with. So, right. you know, we, we can try to cajole them. We can try to fight with them. We can try to convince them. Um, uh, but at the end of the day, um, uh, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema um, are going to decide a lot, uh, you know, for better or worse. Uh, I guess a lot of us will argue for worse. But um, but if we can get a bill that 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 Bernie Sanders and Joe Manchin sign off on, then, um, you know, a lot of this stuff will uh, uh, hopefully a lot of this drama and the sausage making from the last month or so um, will uh, will be replaced by us getting to explain a lot of good things that we were able to get out of a, you know, out of a bill that while not as, you know, bold and progressive as we would have liked is still pretty damn impressive when you consider it you know, on the historical scale of what uh, uh, what's been done, at least over the last, you know, decade or so. Right. You've been so generous with your time and I you didn't you it was usually you come on for a half hour and this is your busy season. I'm going to Professor Ann Lee, very do you have a and then then I promise you we'll, we'll but I'm I'm I have to keep pushing. So Professor Ann Lee I, you should have brought your Kevlar Mark. <laughs> no, not at all. I, he, yeah, it's, 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 no, I, I <laughs> if you could just briefly comment on uh, um, and maybe you did earlier. I came I came in late, but uh, uh, could shift gears a little bit. Uh, are you at least encouraged by the nine GOP members who voted for um, um, putting the squeeze on uh, Bannon? I mean, I, I realized that it's not really about putting him in jail so much as it is signaling our intent. If you could talk a little bit more about it, because it is an expectations management problem, you can tell us a little bit more about how you see that that playing out. Because I know that's a sweet uh, question. Your boss is going to do that. <laughs> that's sure. a gentle, no. sweet question. <laughs> yes, they know. We we actually didn't get to uh, to, to to the ban and stuff. We've been focused on uh, for 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 good reasons uh, on the bills here, but. Um, uh, yes, I was, I was somewhat encouraged. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, seven more re Republicans than I thought we sort of had in the bag. That's for sure. If you count, you know, Kinzinger and Cheney kind of on our side now. So, so you have to be a little bit encouraged by that. Of course, that still means that there were 202 Republicans who voted against, uh, holding, uh, Steve Bannon in contempt for blatantly disregarding a congressional subpoena, but, uh, you know, baby steps, right? Small victories. Um, uh, no, but this will be, you know, look, he he, he was held in contempt of Congress. Uh, this has been uh, been received by uh, by the state's attorney and, and they're you know, that they're they're likely going to prosecute him. Um, what that looks like is an interesting question. Um, uh, you know, it could, could take a lot of forms. I wouldn't, ex you know, don't expect him to be frog marched out of his house anytime soon. It's most likely going to lead to protracted, you know, sort of legal battles or what what have you. But. Um, it's one of the reasons why Congressman Liu actually is the sponsor of a resolution to change the House rules to assert uh, what's known as inherent contempt, which is 
the power of the House of Representatives to actually fine and or imprison people who defy congressional subpoenas. Um, article one is article one. It's it's, you know, arguably comes before article two. Uh, we have an inherent authority to uphold uh, a lawful subpoena, which is what what these were. Um, it's been done in the past. Congress has has imprisoned people. Um, and uh, we should, in, in my view, and certainly in Congressman Lee's view, change the rules of the House so that we can have a have a system set up because you do have to have some due process involved. But we should have a system set up where um, where we can start finding people, because then at least they've got some skin in the game. If you're Steve Bannon right now, you've got you've got no reason not to challenge this and, and fight it in court. I mean, sure, you'd have legal fees, I guess. But as long as you can get some poor MAGA suckers to pay your legal fees, which I'm sure he can with a couple of GoFundMe pages, uh, he's got no disincentive um, uh, to, uh, to 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 not challenge this as far as you can take it, because the very worst thing that can happen to him is the very first thing that we ask him to do, which is come and testify before Congress. Um, but if we were to if we were charging him a thousand dollars a day, he might think about it uh, or, or ten thousand dollars a day or whatever, uh, whatever fee sort of Congress thought was was right, because then if he loses at the end of the day, ultimately, he's on the hook for, you know, whatever, you know, whatever amount we sort of deem. Um, and, 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 you know, others have even suggested you know, uh, uh, having Capitol Police go go pick them up. That gets into a little bit more of a shaky ground where all of a sudden you got different branches of government arresting people. But um, but certainly the fines, I think, would at least put the onus back on the potential witness that they should be coming in and testifying because they're at least going to be on some sort of financial hook for it. Um, but it was it was, it, you know, um, uh, it was an important and essential step that, that we took today, that the House took today. It wasn't something that we wanted to do by any stretch of the imagination, um, but it was important uh, that we did it. And um, uh, we'll 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 see what the Justice Department does. I imagine there's unlike when, you know, the Trump administration was running the Justice Department. I, I imagine we'll move much more quickly here. Um, and uh, and it's just a, it's a basic sense of, uh, you know, fair. Nobody's above the law. Right. If an everyday American refused to cooperate with a lawful investigation, you'd face the consequences of that, uh, which could be jail time, which could, which would be fines. Uh, there's no reason that Steve Bannon uh, and his ludicrous claims of um, of some sort of executive privilege, even though he hadn't worked in the White House for three years, uh, should get to just ignore uh, a, a lawful subpoena from Congress. It's outrageous. Fantastic. And it is it's a slow process. That Cruz kid who allegedly shot up Parkland is his trial is going on now, three years after the yeah. fact. Is it? I think it's three years. So, uh, Mark Savasco, thank you so much. Mark Savasco is Congressman Ted Lou's chief of staff. And how do people follow you on Twitter? It's M Savasco on Twitter, right? Yep. At M. At M. Savasco. Yep. And uh, the views expressed by Mark Savasco are those of the David Feldman show, but not necessarily those of Congressman Ted Lieu. You That's are. Right. It's. Uh, Especially I if I said something that that annoyed you. That, that, that was, <laughs> that's all my view. That's all my views. That's not the congressman's views. Thank you so much. Really. Sure. Thank you. And I you didn't sign up for this. Uh, and uh, and I took advantage to of this moment in history. And uh, I don't. Uh, anyway, this is thank you very much. Great. Great. Great to talk to you all. Thank all you. Right. Thank that, you. That Appreciate it. Thanks, Mark. Thank okay. you. Thank you. Well, it's time for the professors and Marianne. Joining us is Professor Jonathan Bick, 
Professor Adnan Hussein, Professor Ann Lee, Professor Marianne Cummings. Professor Ann Lee, what's on your mind, please? Well, um, I, I'm quite amused by the uh, uh, the Trump empty grift network, the TMTG, the uh, uh, the latest scam by uh, by the previous guy, and uh, it it turns out that he's just <laughs> he's just trying to scam everybody. It, it's just uh, we discover that there's this new Truth, truth social, you know, Pravda. Uh, I, it can't be a coincidence, although they're stupid enough to not think about that. Uh, is that what Pravda means? Uh, Pravda is truth, yes. Oh, okay. Uh, that, 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 uh, <laughs> that he would name his, his new network finally only because he failed to take over Parler or Parler uh, in Parler. Uh, it, it uh, They've announced it uh, in such a weird way. They weren't really quite prepared, but they had to do it for whatever X number of reasons. It, it's just uh, it's such a scam when you think about it. But then you think, well, Trump was probably just sitting there going, oh, yeah, it, TMTG, that's that's a good thing. It'll it'll be as big as whatever CNN or or he claims it's going to be as big as Disney Plus. You know that that's what the, the the prospectus looks like, and but the reality is, of course, it's more vaporware. You know, it's not going to come out till twenty twenty two. It's it, it's it's financed as an SPAC, which is a special category, which essentially allows shell companies to be invested, um, sort of blindly. In other words, people in are were. And, and may still be, and particularly in China, because it's located in China, Wuhan of all places. Really? Um, yeah, one of the the primary people. To, you see, what it, it it's just a shell game, and with with respect to the pun or the, the coincidence, right? And 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 it, it it allows people to invest in this at a um, at a distance. So it, it's being routed through China. It. It's it's essentially an upscale penny stock when you when you think about it. it it's a it's truly a scam. It it has a limited length of time for operation and it's got to turn a profit quickly. So it it's the New York Times is talking about how it can potentially three hundred million dollars at the front end, and that's what that he'll you know he'll get a lot out of it if he can get far. The reality is, I think. It's mechanism for him to do his pay-per-view uh, uh, UFC uh, boxing things. I think he's going to try and, and and sort of move it in that direction so that it'll be the the mechanism to do global broadcasting of pay-per-view events. I think that's really where it's going to go. The other half of it is, of course, to try to create something that which is what he's wanted all along and failed multiple times at with the parlor. Are. Um, and that is to try and do some Facebook thing for his his cult, and, n- and none of those things are going to work because he doesn't have servers. He doesn't have a huge, you know, underlying network. Even though he claims he's going to compete with uh, Amazon Amazon Web Services, 
it's it's really vapor. It's it's the most amazing thing to watch, and and yet it a fair amount of money today. It's it's kind of weird. I mean, it's priceful now. I think it more than double certainly, uh, and it's uh, it's a very scary bit of uh, financialization. Anyway, yeah, I don't know why he doesn't do his own radio show, three hours a day. I would watch Donald Trump. I, Three hours. I could watch his rallies. Why doesn't he? I mean, unless he's doing all this to stay out of prison, I, wouldn't he prefer to be Rush Limbaugh? Didn't he talk about replacing Rush Limbaugh? I think that would make him happier, more powerful. I would listen to Donald Trump for three hours a day. Wouldn't you? He's a great entertainer. Uh, yeah, he could make you take a Limbaugh's spot for EIB. You know, had he had made a deal like that, he would have been. I find him compelling, uh, but Professor Bick, what is on your mind? Um, I just say that I, I could not watch Trump for three hours, but maybe I'm less of a masochist than you are. I don't know. I think he. The closest I get, I haven't smoked dope since 1988. I watch a Trump rally and I start giggling and I feel, I just, I see him and I go, oh my God, he was president of the United States. And it's like being stoned, especially now. And it, I get, I can't, remember, I don't know, when I used to get stoned, you'd see things like for the first time, something and and Trump is like you just every time I watch him I see him for the first time it's like I'm stoned anyway. Well, I, that's a I, bad I don't trip. Know. It's a bad trip. Yes. Yeah, that's for sure. Uh, I don't want to burst anyone's bubble, but uh, according to reporting from uh, Axios um, on the meeting yesterday. Uh, between Joe Manchin and Bernie Sanders behind closed doors. It doesn't look like they're making a lot of uh, progress in closing the distance between them. Uh, Senator John Tester, who's a Democrat from Montana, said that uh, Joe said, quote, I'm comfortable with nothing. While Bernie said, we need three and a half trillion dollars. Senator Chris Coons, who was also in this meeting, who's a Democrat from Delaware, said uh, Manchin argued that we, quote, we shouldn't do it all. We shouldn't do it at all. And that the $3.5 trillion proposal will contribute to inflation. As I mentioned to Mark Savasco, you know, the polls in West Virginia say a different thing. There is support for the full version of the Build Back Better bill. Um, and, you know, he just doesn't seem to care. I, I, that's why I, I don't think, you know, oh, people are saying because West Virginia is a red state, uh, he's trying to look moderate well there's nothing moderate about voting against the wishes of your own constituents which are pretty clear when it comes to this bill 
And also, it's popular across the entire United States. Even among Republicans, I think there's a bare, you know, slim majority support, most of what's in here. Um, Manchin said, we, we already passed the American Rescue Plan. We should just pass the infrastructure bill and, you know, pause for six months. That was Manchin's quote. He was referring to the $1.2 trillion bipartisan legislation passed by the Senate in August. Uh, among other things, that bill, as Professor Marion Cummings pointed out, um, would make fossil fuel companies eligible for at least $25 billion in new subsidies, in addition to privatizing. These would be the transition. Uh, that they, you'd be paying the oil companies money for transitioning off oil, even though they're not transitioning off oil. Right. That doesn't seem like a good plan. No. And they already they already own in, in some corporations cases a ton of renewable energy resources as well. All you're doing is just giving them money. It's just it's just insane. I mean, that that's what, you know, the part of West Texas is like that. So while uh, Senator Coons and Senator Tester both said that they remain hopeful that Democrats will agree on a top-line figure for this reconciliation package by the end of today, um, Manchin threw cold water on the notion saying, this is not going to happen anytime soon. So he does not seem like he's moving at all, which is very... Concerning. Is he going to divorce the Democratic Party? David Korn from Mother Jones had a piece that says he's prepared to leave the Democratic Party. But then Korn has been cagey as to whether or not Manchin is going to leave. I can't say. I mean, you know. He, There's uh, no reason to leave the party. He's getting everything he wants. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I mean, it, you know, the Democrats were reportedly uh, putting one deal in front of them uh, in exchange for accepting the White House's clean energy centerpiece, which is called the Clean Electricity Performance Program. Uh Democrats are not good at naming things. Uh, the overall spending package would deliver more dollars to existing tax credit programs that aim to promote carbon a carbon capture tax. But this tax credit, uh, known as 45Q, was recently exposed as a basically a scam. In 2020, the Treasury Department's Inspector General released a report that detailed the ways the fossil fuel industry had exploited the program. Of the $1 billion in credits that had already uh, been handed out, almost $900 million, right, so 90% of it, did not even meet the EPA monitoring and verification guidelines. Most of the carbon that was supposedly being sequestered was not properly accounted for. 
You'll get no argument for, from Professor Marianne Cummings on that one. Yeah, I mean, you know, carbon capture, carbon uh, capture credits, th this is not going to solve the problem. And it, it, it's not even going to contribute, I don't think, at all to uh, moving in the right direction. Boy, you know, I've asked, this is just so reminiscent of the Obama administration. I've asked for a month, forget what happened in the past. Right now, don't tell me we shouldn't have, you know, we should have, don't tell me about Swearingen versus Manchin. Don't tell me that you knew cinema was going to be a tr trouble in 2018 and it's all Chuck Schumer's fault because he ru runs the wrong candidates. All true. All true. But as I've said, and I've posed this for a month, the patient is on the table, flatlining. You can't say you shouldn't have smoked, you shouldn't eat the fatty foods. What do you do now, given the, the, the structural impediments to passing Build Back Better? And every idea that I think sounds good isn't. It, it just feels like there's, I don't know. I mean, if Biden put his entire presidency on the line for Build Back Better, would that work? If he displayed open his heart and said, folks, this is who I am. This bill is an existential gift to our nation. Uh, if he splayed himself wide open and say, please, that, uh, could he get it? I don't know how you, I, you know, I'm, what do I, I mean, know? If he explained that it was an existential threat and a slippery slope. Uh, <laughs> and, and it's not who we are. It's not who we are. Right. Or it is who we are. But I mean, what can, uh, you know, I, David Cobb, who ran for president, said, you punish cinema, you punish Joe, you play Harbaugh, you kick them off their committees and make them non-persons. Well, then they go become Republicans. Do you kick them out of the party? Well, then you lose the majority. Bernie wrote that piece for that West Virginia newspaper. Did that, you know, that's how he ran for president. I would go into your backyard and shame you. All right. Is that moving the needle? I mean. Well, he's got the population with him. But he's right. not up. But, but he but, doesn't have his Democratic leadership. Democratic leadership is not behaving as if this was an absolute essential for the survival of Joe Biden's presidency and their grip on power in Washington. They are not. I agree. They would be acting completely differently if that were the case. How? Yeah. I agree. Like, I, if they, I, I, if I they don't pass this, you know, I'll show up for the midterms because, you know, but they don't if they don't get, you know, the good stuff in this bill. Man, 
fool me 500 times. Well, how's it go? Oh. I won't get fooled Can't again. Fool again. <laughs> Don't get fooled again. <laughs> I mean, after 500 times, I'm sorry, Professor Bick. I, I just wanted to say, uh, you know, Professor Cummings uh, said that to, to Mark Savasco that the Democrats should hold a vote and force these people to show the American people where they stand. And his reply, I thought, was revealing when he said, uh, you know, he, he compared that tactic, holding a vote, to blood sport. I think this is the basis of the problem that the Republicans engage in political blood sport all the time. On each other. And they've been doing this is years. blood sport. Yeah. This would be blood sport. Right. And no, I can throw this thing. But, but they're they're willing to do whatever it takes to to obstruct the Democrats and to get back into power. When they're in power, they're willing to do whatever it takes to get their policies enacted into law. But the Democrats are not. And you, you have to ask you have to ask yourself, why is that? If well, I, and I think it comes down to the fact that both parties are funded by the same people, by the same tiny stratum of our society, the 0.1% that own unimaginable amounts of wealth and they control the political process. Yep. Yep. Go ahead, Professor Hussein. Well, I just, uh, those are important points. I mean, and he, I think part of his explanation is that, well, we're hamstrung because we actually do want to help people and accomplish some things. I understand that, but you're not and you're going to lose. So wake up. It seems to me you, you can't go. And th that idea also that it was blood sport. I mean, that's just this. That's just politics. You take votes, you force people into uncomfortable positions in public so that you can exploit that politically. I mean, you're not actually doing anything that crazy, but, uh, the, you know, there already is the discourse that there are such extremists. And this is the stuff that's coming from the corporate centrists, the Obamas, these people who are starting to put in this discourse that we're suffering from extreme partisanship with extremes of the left and the right. And why can't we you know, have a reasonable politics? And it's all on the right. There are no extremes on the left. The supposed progressives have capitulated, and yet they're still held up as a threat and a danger. I wish they were a threat and a danger. They are nothing, you know. But so if we're already dealing with the fact that we're being demonized because we're unreasonable far left extremists, then how about we get something for it? You know, then like actually act like it. Mm -hmm. We're not acting like it. You know, the other kind of direction, I would be more inclined to say, let's have some creative um, 
civil suits and so on, except that the federal judiciary really has been undermined. The Stephen Donzinger case is just absolutely outrageous. And, um, you know, why can't we, for when we're talking about the subsidies for these fossil fuel, you know, companies, that they're still getting their subsidies. They used to get subsidies to um, pollute and exploit, you know, fossil fuels on public lands. They would get subsidies to to do this. And now they're getting subsidies supposedly to, to, to go green. Why aren't we, you know, there's so much evidence that they knowingly, you know, understood the consequences of the greenhouse gases, of global warming three decades, four decades ago. Why aren't we suing for damages to get all of that back? Um, And the reason why we're not is because the federal judiciary will, you know, imprison the lawyers who win those cases. So this is just so, you know, underreported even on this show. Underreported. Underreported. Yeah, Yeah, that's an important story. Maybe we should try and bring him on. I've heard him. He was on the Nader show. Yeah. 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 Hey, um, very important to me. Thank you for Michael Clare. That was a great conversation about China. And I want to get your reaction to Thomas Friedman's piece in The New York Times the day after. It was the complete antithesis of everything you and Michael Clare said. He was Thomas Friedman has pivoted from the Middle East and now he's drumming up, beating the war drum against China. And I want to ask everybody's opinion on what Thomas Friedman said about Jack Ma. Now, Jack Ma is the founder of Alibaba. He is a multi-billionaire. And Thomas Friedman makes the case that she, the leader of China, is dangerous. Why? Because Jack Ma has disappeared, right? And he says this is a reason why we can't trust China because Jack Ma, an oligarch who runs what is it may even be bigger than Amazon or has the potential to be. Jack Ma is the Jeff Bezos of China. And he tried to make him seem like he's the Steve Jobs, like some great uh, innovator, mm-hmm. visionary. I mean, he's just a big businessman. Right. Uh, so uh, he asks, this is what Friedman writes. It was as if she, she said, you know, if I have to choose either having Alibaba, Tencent, Baidu, and all the other Chinese tech giants be global champions with their own massive financial and data resources, but growing beyond the grasp of the Chinese Communist Party or having them be second-tier companies under my control, I'll choose door number two. And so my question to you is, so he's saying that the Chinese Communist Party thinks Alibaba, Jack Ma, got too powerful. So we're reining them in. We'd rather have Alibaba be a second tier company than let them just go off and do whatever they want. And Thomas Friedman says that's a bad thing. 
what would, in all seriousness, how horrible would it be if Jeff Bezos disappeared? That Congress decided, you know, we're going to make Amazon a second tier company. Jeff Bezos has gotten too big. It's time for him to disappear for a couple of months. Would you have any objection to that? Speaking of Donziger being under house arrest? I don't think it would make uh, much difference if that's the only thing that happened. I mean, I, I think uh, the president of China is maybe uh, trying to rein in some of the uh, Know, most egregious excesses of some of these large companies and these very powerful uh, CEOs in China. Yeah, you got uh, bigger than the Communist Party. You're too rich. Take it down. We're going to put you down a cup. That's what we should be doing. It's so interesting that um, he thinks, Thomas Friedman thinks, that just saying that this is what uh, Xi Jinping is 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 doing, whether he's correct or not, but how he characterizes it, he thinks that's convincing enough, because his presumption is is that of course you would never ever want to restrict for a social purpose the expansion of these companies. They should be unrestricted to be able to pursue wealth as much as possible. And people should be, you know, and he thinks just saying that that, you know, this is the policy or the choice of Xi Jinping will convince his readers. I wonder if it does, because I think there's a lot of resentment, you know, to how especially even during the pandemic gross inequality has increased because uh, somebody like Jeff Bezos has made far more, far more money during the pandemic than at a higher rate than even before. I don't think people are that sympathetic. And, you know, I think the idea of regulating for a social purpose to make sure uh, inequality doesn't overrun your political system. I mean, that's the problem we have is that we have not regulated them, these companies, and now they control the government and control our policy. We don't have a democracy anymore. So they want to make this seem like it's an authoritarian country, which, okay, fair enough. There's plenty of things to criticize um, about China's political system. But I think it's actually responsible stewardship to say, you know, uh, you need to have some limits so that we have a society that still functions. Right. And what I love about Jack Ma disappearing is forget the institutions, go after the people. It, it, it's not Alibaba. It's it's Jack Ma. It's not Amazon. It's Jeff Bezos. There have Don't to be forget their kids and their kids. Reeducation camps for the kids. That I believe. I, I People ask Ma and Pa. Huh? Ma and Pa? Yeah. That's so I bad. I thought I should have said it. <laughs> That's so bad. That was pretty bad. Um, but I, it does not surprise me at all that Thomas Friedman uh, is so concerned about the welfare of an oligarch. He is like an oligarch. His wife is an oligarch. <laughs> That's correct. That's exactly. So he has. He has something in common with these with these people like Jack Ma. He can relate to them uh, as far as, you know, normal people that have jobs. Not so much. 
What's the wife? Is yeah, it a I, real estate fortune, Professor Lee? What did he marry into? Yeah, yeah, he married into money. But what's more amusing is that the New York Post uh, reports that Jack Ma uh, just anchored his yacht off of Mallorca. So I, I really don't think this matters. And, and it perhaps, uh, you know, Friedman needs to ride in a few more cabs in China or something. <laughs> this is, you know, What is on your mind, Professor? Do, do we have we've covered we have Professor Marianne and Professor Hussein, uh, and then we have Henry. I, I'm going to play Henry's uh, conversation. Uh, what is on your mind? Let's see, Professor Hussein. Since we didn't. Oh, have I was you. just going to talk about the Friedman article uh, oh, okay. because I knew you were interested in. It. And so we've had a chance to uh, dissect uh, Thomas Friedman. I think uh, Anne is correct. The only thing this was missing to be a totally classic Thomas Friedman piece was the ride from the airport <laughs> in, in the cab. That As though he ever is. His so, deep insights, you know, into into the society and the culture. But the last thing to say about it is he loves to boil these things down to one kind of very simple, abstract kind of uh, issue. So this one is about trust. He never really explained why. So, you know, he said the reason why. Um, uh, this isn't going to end well for China if they continue with, uh, uh, you know, these erratic ideas of constraining, you know, these companies. Uh, it's not going to work. Um, and uh, the evidence for this is the gap between um, Taiwan's semiconductor industry and China's. China has not been able to match, supposedly, according to him, the technical levels of this, this Taiwanese company. And the reason why is trust. And he never really explained how trust, you know, what is it that they don't trust about China that prevents this technical, you know, development in, in, in their industry? Um, but, you know, he puts that out there and um, it reaffirms all of our misunderstandings and misimpressions about about China, that they are untrustworthy. I see Anne is shaking her head about Friedman's uh, foolishness. So tell us more. And about about you know what he got wrong. Oh, I mean, it's just that Friedman is is picking up on the latest trend, you know, that we we need to spin against China because of the he's picking up on the supply chain problem, and 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 it's just an incredibly superficial take on on what what is clearly just simply. A minor, and, and I'm going to say it's a minor. I think it's a minor glitch in in the supply supply chain. That's all. And and yet, you know, he wants to be more relevant and sort of wave his arms because he's looking for the next big, uh, you know, metaphor. Right. By the way, Foxconn. Ten years ago, we were hearing about evil Foxconn in mainland China, where the people who make our iPhones, the women were jumping. They had to put in nets at Foxconn uh, to be caught. And it was presented to us as this evil alliance that Apple 
and all the other electronics firms and computer firms made with evil mainland China. Foxconn is headquartered in Taiwan, isn't it? That was conveniently left out. It, it, it was, we, we, that whole story was the demonization of mainland China and not a uh, Taiwanese company. Professor Marianne Cummings. Well, that's that's news to me. That that's very interesting. I all along thought it was you know, the the Chinese, the communist Chinese, and in their collectivist mentality, you know, and ten. I think I'm right. I think I'm right about. I'm pretty sure Foxconn is a somebody. Maybe somebody could look that up. But I, I'm pretty sure it's headquartered in Taiwan, and not mainland China. I'm pretty sure. Okay. They were supposed to be building a big a plant up in, in Milwaukee, in, in Wisconsin. Yeah, yeah I'll say they do that, that all I the time. Know, I don't know if that succeeded or no, not. No, it didn't. It's it's a yeah. it's a Potemkin ghost village. They do that all. They're notorious. They do that. They were trying to help Paul Ryan when he was running against Randy Bryce. So he came. They came in and announced that this big plant that they were going to build. And I remember reading, they do this all the time. They, there's no follow through and they do it all over the world. Yeah. Yeah. They are almost like in, it's, I'm sorry. They are based in New Taipei City, Taiwan. So I'm correct. Yes. All right. So sleep sleep deprived. I'm still correct. <laughs> well, it just, uh, goes to show you that, uh, you know, getting the narrative out there is just, you know, paramount. Yeah. And, um, you know, kind of speaking of which, you know, political has been sold. Yeah. Billion dollars. A billion dollars. A billion dollars for it's it's an online. It's basically some servers and a few reporters. Yeah, it's pretty. Politico's pretty good, though. Uh, Politico is, you know, I, I go, it's sort of a go-to sty- site because their beat is what's happening on Capitol Hill and all that yeah, kind of stuff. If you want, yeah. But who bought it? It's it's not, has, who bought it? Albatron or Alden Capital? Is that- no, it was uh, a German, the CEO of this German publisher. Oh, who um, got me too Springer. He got me too huh? right? Oh, this, I don't know about that. I think he got me too. This guy's name, I had it someplace. This guy's name is Matthias Dopfner, and I'm not pronouncing the German right. It's like the O has two little dots over it. So how is that pronounced? Any, you know, like educated person here? So anyway, so he bought, he buys it. Uh, he is the CEO of, of Axel Springer, uh, the German publishing company. Uh not related to Jerry Springer. Uh, yeah, uh, and they've got a constitution, this Axel Springer does. And and basically, uh, he says that um, the employees, which I assume will be all of the writers and the reporters that currently work for Politico, are required to support Israel and the capitalist world order. Why? What's this thing about world order, like the new order? I mean, like the Germans just cannot get away from that phrase. But um, anyway, 
So uh, support for United er, uh, Europe, Israel's right to exist in a free market economy. And and uh, so mm-hmm. I, I was reading it. I, I read Caitlin Johnstone uh, fairly regularly because she's such a fantastic writer. And she was just kind of writing about this. But her point in the article is how refreshing that a billionaire actually says what he's actually doing. Right. It's like he's not selling news. He's buying You know, he's buying support by putting out propaganda for issues he wants. So, uh, you know, it's like uh, and but, you know, I'm afraid that so much of media is like that. And that's why there is just this insane um, scramble uh, almost hysterical levels to demonize certain people who have YouTube channels, to ha- who have Facebooks as uses using Facebook or Twitter as their platforms, because you know that was the Wild West for a while. You couldn't control it, mm-hmm. and now Facebook and Twitter and and uh, and YouTube are now trying to be, and, and they're probably a bunch of thirty-something, you know, Silicon Valley types who are going to be the arbiters of what is considered news and what is considered misleading. Right. And I'm very, very upset though because two friends of mine on Facebook have gotten a warning from Facebook like this, you know, this person might be dangerous to listen to, and I haven't gotten any. How is that possible? I'm really. Well, what were they? Yeah. What what were they saying? I'm curious. Well, we did. You know, there was a friend of mine who is like part of the progressives of King County. And uh, we were all in front of uh, Lauren Underwood's office last Friday. We've been going around. There are several congressional um, offices not within driving distance of me because it's, it's the Chicago area. So it's fairly high dense. And we've been going to all the Democratic offices, and they're all Democratic offices, um, and, and basically protesting in favor of the Reconciliation Act and thanking them for so far standing, you know, standing firm on the $3.5 trillion. And we, we uh, presented a letter, and mostly to their staffers, because they're never there to receive us. But uh, we are getting a little publicity. I mean, we, uh, it's, it's astounding that uh, progressives of Kane County, there really aren't, there are about 12 of us that are kind of active and, and consistent. And yet everybody is at wanting our endorsement and everybody's wanting a statement from us. It's pretty cool. Um, anyway, so... But uh, we have to get the, the word out there. The other thing is that, uh, okay, so I was going to have something to say about our, our redistricting, but that all got mooted by uh, the judges uh, basically um, throwing out what they call the June maps, the one that the committees have been working on. And we sort of got leaked last week about what, as to what they are, the new congressional maps. And... Um, they, uh, they, they I, I don't know what the particular issue was, but they found basically what they were saying is this is like gerrymandered as all hell. You know, go back and at least try to like present something that isn't just outrageous. And uh, so they've got until the 8th of November to do that, the committee, and then people have until the 18th to appeal those maps. And there's like a whole set of 
uh, I mean, in principle, there was a whole set of guidelines that the committees, the bipartisan committees here were supposed to adhere to, compactness, representation. Of, and of course, those got all thrown out the window. And it appeared, though, which was good news for progressives in a way, because Marie Newman, not the most progressive, but certainly far more progressive Howie than Dan Lipinski. That Yes, and, and Howie was a big fan of. They basically, in the, the districts that were um, that, that were released last week, I mean, they seemed to screw her over. I mean, they carved they carved a big chunk of a Democratic population out of her district, and handed it over to Sean Caston, who is in the next district. Is over this bipartisan line. districting? Is this an example of? Well, in principle, there is a bipartisan committee, but the the Republicans have all, you know, like like protested it, and um, so it's going to end up in the they, courts. Well, it it did end up in the court, and the court has sent it back with a whole bunch of guidelines saying you flagrantly violated some of these principles here. And if you saw the map, you would just laugh. You know, I oh, ain't gerrymandered at all. But uh, but I think the biggest thing that stuck out was just uh, how Marie Newman's district was just carved into. And this was the, uh, yeah, the, the state Democrats do not like progressives. They were very pissed off that she launched twice an aggressive, uh, uh, primary challenge to Dan Lipisky, who, who they all kind of like for some reason, even though he's like basically a Republican. And uh, and Dan Lipinski kind of uh, made noise last week that he was thinking of running to get his old district back, which wouldn't be his old district. It would be a much more conservative, even more conservative than it was. And it was and, his father's uh, district before that, right? Yes, and it was his father's district. It was very much like that. Who was... Um, Lacey was his last name uh, that um, Cory Bush beat Cory Bush beat a like yeah. he beat a dynasty. It was like right. 52 year dynasty, like the mansions, man, not not quite. But the mansion family is a political dynasty. Oh, my goodness. Uh, uh, our own Harvey J.K. posted a video on the uh, on all the activities, extracurricular activities of the mansion family. I mean, it's right up there with Hunter and Jimmy Biden. I mean, it's it's pretty Jimmy scary. Biden, Jimmy Biden, <laughs> Jimmy Biden. Biden yeah, Jim sounds like a concert you're dragged to. I've been in business together on and off. Doesn't Jimmy time. Biden sound like a concert you're dragged to on your first date after your divorce? She wants to go see Jimmy Biden. Oh, yeah, uh, with a lot of line dancing. You know. <laughs> I, I got it. I haven't dated in 40 years. She wants to go. She bought tickets to see Jimmy Biden, I guess. Oh, well, I, I don't know. This is, this is, you know, life after COVID. Um, anyway, so I, I, I think that uh, anyway, getting back to the political sale, it's, it, it, it's pretty... <laughs> You know that corporate media has an agenda and that, as um, as Noam Chomsky, Chomsky famously said to this young twerp from the BBC that was interviewing him, like, nobody tells me what to write, blah, blah, mm -hmm. blah. And Noam Chomsky said, yeah, I'm sure that's true. But because you, you, you know what to write. Perspective on the word, world, you wouldn't be in that chair. Right. You know what to write. So, you don't need to be told what to write. Right. It's self-censorship. So how much would uh, the David Feldman show be worth? What if you, if you wanted to sell out for big money, what would be your price? Well, they figure it's 10 
years times earnings. So I could probably okay. get uh, off this show, I don't yeah. know, 10 times earnings, $20,000. Would you sell it for two? But what, what what price would you sell it for? That was, I would you say know, I make about price? two grand off this show. I mean, if, but you know, if you a year, two grand, I would say yeah. after costs, yeah, probably okay. less. So, so would I would I sell this for twenty grand? You'd sell it for twenty grand. Well, that's what it's worth. That's, I'm just figuring it. No, no, it doesn't matter. It's it's that famous line from "It's a Wonderful Life." He's not selling, he's buying, you know, in, in other words, you know, he's not getting a news outlet with Politico. He's getting a propaganda machine right. that he wants to use to sell, you know, to get the rest of the population to buy in. It was kind of a joke, but I'm sitting there going, well, you know, the owners of Politico, I don't know who they are. I don't know who the uh, founders of it, but uh, they had a pretty nice payday and this, uh, German CEO billionaire gets a propaganda mouthpiece that has, unfortunately, a brand name that is semi-legitimate. So right. just here on out, when you're reading articles in Politico, just remember that they do have effectively a constitution. They have to sign effectively a loyalty oath to the company. And there are certain things that uh, maybe they might be be doing good reporting in certain corners of the world, but anything having to do with global capitalism? Well, Politico was founded. I remember it was founded in the early aughts and it was a, I remember being told to be wary of Politico. It was owned by conservatives, but, oh, okay. but they do a pretty good, and this is the time to plug Mike Elk and Payday Report, because Mike Elk, who has never done this show, I wouldn't, you know, he's too busy. Uh, and he's got asthma and he's traveling all around the country. The uh, Mike Elk is the number one labor reporter in America. He unionized or tried to unionize the shop over Politico and they fought him, and I believe he got an NLRB settlement. And instead of pocketing his NLRB settlement, he set up Payday Report, which everybody should go to and support Mike Elk. He is reporting on 1,600 strikes this year that our very own Labor Department doesn't know about. We're being told that it's been a pretty quiet year for labor activists. But if you go to Payday Report, you will see that uh, now a lot of there's a lot of uh, labor activism in this country. So people should go to Payday Report. Um, well, I have Henry and he has an interview. Hannah and Leslie and I last night, I couldn't sleep. I'm going to torture the uh, the chat room. Uh, Facebook is renaming, wants to come up with a new name. So these are uh, some names we came up with. Uh, we'll, we'll start with mine, because it's the word schmivacy. You know, privacy, schmivacy, no. Facebutt, that was Hannah's Facebutt. For Halloween. I would have thought it was Facefart. <laughs> <laughs> 
She's off brand. <laughs> Although maybe she's going to instrument rather than product. Uh, for Halloween, I'm not going to deliver this properly. Facebook. Okay. Uh, because representation matters to corporate America. Face Booker T. Washington. <laughs> Zuck my face <laughs> and uh, these zucks. <laughs> that had to be Hannah. What? That must have been Hannah as well. <laughs> I think so. Uh, face down, ass up. I think uh, that was my mother's. I think my mother came up with face down, ass up. Uh, <laughs> This is so bad. Uh, and the other thing that he, he uh, the one with all the pictures, this is going to get for uh, you know, celebrating women who don't need a man. Spinstagram. All right. Well, I just wanted to taunt the chat room before we go to Henry's. By the way, if you've ever been to office hours, this is pretty much. <laughs> what, what did I leave? Did I leave? Oh. For Adam Driver, face beak. That's not nice. Who okay. can face beak? Yes. Did somebody want? Okay. Uh, thank you, Professor Adnan Hussein. Thank you, Professor Ann Lee. Uh, she left probably because of those horrible lines. Uh, who's on Mudgeless podcast and who's on Guerrilla History? Okay, well, on um, the Mudgeless uh, this week, we will be having uh, an episode come out um, with Dr. Shobana Xavier talking about um, her work on um, studying contemporary Sufism in North America as well as in Sri Lanka. She's a really great and innovative scholar. And um, on Guerrilla History, we just recorded um, uh, an episode with uh, Branko Marcetic uh, about his uh, article in Jacobin about uh, the Pandora Papers. And so we talked a little bit about that phenomenon and what to make of the, of the release and the politics of the release. It was a really exciting and good conversation with him. So look for that coming out uh, tomorrow. Fantastic. Professor Ann Lee, would you like to plug anything? No, I'm still at uh, Daily Coast. Yes. And and how do people what what is your title? Like what, My handle what, on uh, Daily Coast it, it is Annie Lee. I'm just a, a community member. But you're great. Daily Coast is amazing. Yeah. Thank Professor Marianne Cummings. Parks Commissioner, Aurora, Illinois. Anything you want to plug? No, but, you know, you can go over to uh, Twitter for amusement. Razor Girl. And, uh, mm -hmm. Razor and Girl. I need to get over to, I haven't been to Daily Coast for quite a long time. I'm amazed he has not blocked me uh, or my account. But uh, so I should go over there and, and, and read Anne's column. Professor Bick, I have a fake account over Getter. 
what? You know, the uh, Republican, I created a fake account. I'm a, uh, a fired law professor, female law professor from Harvard. I've created the Liberty Chick. And uh, so that's your account. That's my I'm Liberty Chick on Getter. Okay. Okay. And there's a <laughs> I'm going to get sued. I grabbed a woman. <laughs> I better shut up. OK, um, there there. I don't have the balls to to be a fake. Conservative on Getter, I've I've, I've been tempted to to say horrible. Th I just don't wanted anyway what would uh, professor jonathan pick are you going to be at office hours i am david and i'm, I'm planning to do a uh, another examination of a uh, twilight zone episode great i'm looking for it what, what and which episode is it uh it's called uh, long live walter jameson and the uh theme of the uh talk will be um aging and uh whether people become any wiser or better as they age okay thank you everybody you're listening to the david feldman show davidfeldmanshow.com join us for office hours every friday night starting at 8 p.m where you will see Professor Bick, Professor Lee, Professor Marianne Cummings, Professor Hussein, and the, what, what am I doing here? There we go. Let me do this. Uh, well, we were talking about guerrilla history, and Henry Huckamacki did an interview, and we had some playback problems, and we're going to play it uh as soon as i can find it uh dear lord uh well let's just keep hitting buttons to let me i think we're gonna do it okay uh we'll be back with henry huckamacki it's time right now of the david Feldman show he's talking politics a comedy too. To tell a dirty joke if you want him to. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for writing. Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show To get your ears on right, buckle in real tight He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way Thank you. 
great guest for you again today. We're going to be talking about something that we talk about on the show pretty frequently because it's something that's very important, which is the climate. I'm joined by my comrade, Chris Saltmarsh, who wrote the brand new book, Burnt, which is out from Pluto Press. Uh, hello, Chris. Nice to have you on the show. Thanks very much for having me. Absolutely. Why don't we start off by having you introduce yourself uh, to the listeners, give them a little bit of an idea of who you are before we get underway with the interview itself. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, as you said, my name is Chris Salmarsh. I'm a I'm an activist and a writer. Um, as you said, I've recently written this book, Burned, Fighting for Climate Justice. It's out now. Um, and that kind of gives a survey of the kind of roots of the climate crisis and capitalism, the kind of current state of the climate movement, and I guess my proposition for what the climate movement should do over the next couple of decades. Um, in terms of my organizing, I've been involved in lots of different climate activism. So I was involved in the fossil fuel investment movement. I've taken direct action against the fracking industry. I kind of worked for climate NGOs. And more recently, I've um, been involved in this uh, organization, this campaigning group called Labour for a Green New Deal. So really pushing a socialist Green New Deal within the Labour Party and the Labour movement in the UK. Yeah, and the reason that we brought you on today is that we want to talk about the upcoming COP26 because this is something that... You know, these these cops happen periodically, but they don't necessarily get the coverage that they should. Some some outlets like The Guardian does an okay job of covering uh, these cops. I think it's fair to say that they do okay, but most news outlets do a pretty pathetic job of covering what's going on at them, what the movements going on behind them are. So uh, we're bringing you on to talk about that a little bit. So let's start with this upcoming COP. What is COP26 for the listeners who are completely unaware of what's going on? Yeah, so COP26 is, I would kind of break down that term, it's the 26th COP, so you know, they, they happen annually, it didn't happen last year because of the pandemic, but, so it's almost, you know, almost the 26th consecutive one, and COP, C-O-P, it stands for Conference of the Parties, so it's an international conference, and the parties in this situation are member states, so nation states, and it's pretty much all, all of the nation states, um, obviously, so, you know, the US famously kind of withdrew temporarily under Trump, um, but it is pretty much all of them. Um, yeah, and it's basically the annual meeting of the UNFCCC, so the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. I hope I've got that right. And what this is, is basically the UN's kind of structure for international climate diplomacy and negotiations around climate mitigation. Um, so the 26th one is in the UK, it's in Glasgow, um, which is in Scotland. And the way it kind of works is every kind of five or so years, you have a major one of these conferences and say so the last kind of major conference was in Paris in 2015. So that was top 21 that produced the Paris agreement. And then you have kind of inter, you know, the ones in between will, will kind of do more technical bits of work. We'll kind of keep it ticking along. But then, yeah, as I say, this is the kind of next really big one um, where there's going to be kind of, yeah, we'll get onto it, but yeah, big revisions of, of targets and, and presumably an updated agreement of some kind. Yeah. So like you mentioned, this is one of the big ones, one of the big cops. Uh, can you tell us what the goals of this cop are? Because as you mentioned, there's a lot of things that are going into this conference and there's a lot of goals that are being talked about as things that might come out of it. What would you say are the major goals that are being pushed for within this conference? 
Yeah, so I think the goals, you know, of the conference itself um, will be, there's a number of them, you know, I think firstly to build on the Paris Agreement, you know, I think the Paris Agreement is kind of upheld as, um, as you know, the real achievement of climate diplomacy over the past few years and um, it will be, you know, this is a, the first really big COP conference since the Paris Agreement was signed, so it will be a kind of development offer. I think under that, you know, one of the mechanisms of the Paris Agreement was that countries submit their own kind of it's called nationally determined contribution so their contribution to an emission reduction it's kind of voluntary so a country will say well this is what we feel like we can achieve um over the next however many years or over you know, whether it's five years or well 20 or 30 or 40 um and so those targets will be revised and um obviously that's there's, there's, there's some complexity around that you know some countries haven't submitted um amended targets some have but the idea is that each of these major conferences those targets are ratcheted up so the kind of ambition is supposed to get more and more every time so there'll be a new round of those contributions you would have thought certainly not the aim and then i think there's some other as well as that kind of you know taking care of the the, uh, the overall ambition there'll be some discussion on kind of mechanisms so i think a big topic of conversation will be carbon markets you know maybe we'll come on to why this is a flawed concept but um you know how can we make carbon markets work for mitigation globally of emissions um i think a big theme will be around funding loss and damage so this idea of loss and damage is basically that climate change has already or will continue to cause both people and nations to you know, lose value, property, whatever it is, and or, or damage to that property. And so there's a recognition that poorer countries maybe face that disproportionately, and there needs to be some funding to, um, to mitigate for that. So, you know, that'll be an element of discussion. There, I think a big area of discussion similarly will be around delivering on the kind of targets that um, COP has around finance and financing the transition globally. And so I think there's a target of around a hundred billion um, dollars or pounds. I can never remember which one, but I think, yeah, there'll be some work towards, you know, can we meet that kind of collective target? You know, can we get wealthier countries to contribute towards that target? I mean, the target itself is woefully inadequate, but you know, it's what they have. Um, and then I guess, you know, maybe one of the final things will be around nature-based solutions. I think that'll be quite a big element of this year's conference. So, you know, how can we, um, how can we kind of tie in work around nature Um and integrate into the Paris implementation strategy. I think that's the language they use um, a bit more effectively. So I think, yeah, they, they will be the kind of stated aims of, of conference. And I think it's certainly to be seen how much progress has made. Um, but I think that's, that's roughly the agenda as far as I know. Yeah, and so I've got two follow-ups based off of your answer that you gave there. And feel free to take as much or as little time on either of them as you would like. Um, the first is I, I would like you to expound a little bit on the flawed, uh, the flawed idea of carbon markets, which is something that we see bandied about in uh, kind of mainstream press as a potential solution. But as you mentioned, has many flaws that, you know, perhaps you can articulate a few of them for the audience. And then the other thing that you mentioned is that they're they're likely to be trying to ratchet up the the goals from the Paris agreements. Can you tell the listeners of how countries have actually been doing it, reaching their aims from the Paris Agreement? Because I think that this is another thing that if you look at news sources that focus on the climate, you'll see you know how far off of the projections or the goals each of the countries are from what they were trying to achieve based on the Paris Agreement. But I, I think a lot of the listeners are probably unaware of that. So how far away from achieving what they set out to achieve uh, in Paris are the countries that signed on to the Paris Agreement? And is ratcheting up the goals even more, is that even sensible where, where we stand as things are? 
Yeah, I mean, I'll take that last question first because I think it's really important context. And, you know, there was a lot of people will have seen there was a lot of triumphalism around the Paris Agreement when that was signed. You know, you mentioned before The Guardian being one of the only kind of mainstream um, outlets that reports on this in any real depth. But, you know, my, what really struck me about the reporting around the Paris Agreement was it really The Guardian really lined up behind the kind of leaders of these nation states with that real triumphalism around the Paris Agreement. And there was actually, certainly at the time, very, very little analysis of the really deep, quite profound flaws in the Paris Agreement. And one of one of the flaws, yeah, is that countries essentially get to determine their own contributions. And so there's kind of a twofold levels of failing to, to this, you know, mechanism or this process. So on the one hand, if you kind of aggregate all of the um, all of the member states' emission reduction targets together, you know, if they were to be achieved, the warming we would get to would be between 2.9 degrees and about 3.2 degrees, depending on kind of how you calculate it. Um, so compare that to the aim of the Paris Agreement, which is to limit warming to 1.5 degrees, you know, ideally. And so you're looking at close to double the warming, um, you know, since pre-industrial temperatures or whatever the baseline is. Um, the, you know, if, if, if the Paris Agreement was successful, that's what you would get to. So what that looks like in practice is, you know, quite significant devastation um, to very many people and livelihoods, um, et cetera. Um, the kind of second tier to it is, yeah, so obviously that's a pretty bleak picture if those targets are achieved. And actually, most countries are really not close to achieving those targets as it is. And so there's this kind of thing of like, yeah, you know, this conference will look to ratchet up those targets and kind of increase ambition. But there's a kind of, and this comes onto the carbon markets, I suppose, there's this kind of fundamental flaw, which isn't being grappled with, of the mechanisms being used to achieve these targets just aren't adequate. And so is there any, is there much point in you know ratcheting up your ambition if actually you're not going to have an associated you know ratcheting up almost of of your of what you're going to do about it you know who's, who's to say but you know the thing with carbon markets i think this is an indicative example of the the kind of quite foundational failings of the cop process um it's a you know um, there's a, there's a, there's an interesting book called Climate Leviathan written by um, Mann and Wainwright, um, Jeff Mann and Joel Wainwright, and the kind of point they make in it is that COP is, COP treats capitalism not as a cause of climate change or not as a barrier to climate action, but as a solution, as the framework through which we resolve um, the climate crisis. And, you know, as a socialist and anti-capitalist, I think that's, you know, profoundly wrong. Um, you know, clearly the profit motive and the, the imperative of capital accumulation that capitalism has, you know, is the biggest barrier to, to, um, to mitigating climate change as well as a kind of cause of climate injustice. And so, you know, carbon, mar carbon markets is an example of this, where it's really an attempt to create yet new markets, yet new, yet more spheres of profit, more spheres of accumulation, more opportunities for trade and exchange. Um, essentially, yeah, to, to make more capitalism, if you like, out of this crisis that the system has caused. Um, and so, you know, the specifics of it would be, you would, you know, a, a wealthy country would be able to uh, almost pay a poorer country to uh, kind of take some of its obligations for emissions reduction. So again, it's kind of, you know, these wealthy countries which have caused the crisis continue to profit from it, further passing the book and kind of, you know, this is all in the context of a of a kind of deeply unequal global, you know, political economy, right? Um, so, you know, it's not about resolving those fundamental underlying structures which are causing this crisis or, or as I say, blocking us from doing anything about it. it it's really about, you know, using them to, um, to uphold the system rather than um, rather than kind of take it on. 
Yeah. So turning back towards this this upcoming conference again, then um, perhaps the listeners have forgotten, but we're still in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, you know, surprise, surprise. Uh, can you talk about how the pandemic has affected this conference already? As you mentioned, it was scheduled to take place last year. Um, and didn't because of the pandemic, but how is the pandemic also affecting the proceedings for this upcoming conference, if at all? Yeah. So as you said, the, you know, the conference was supposed to take place around the same time last year. It was delayed. I think that was, you know, certainly the right decision um, in terms of allowing people to access the conference. Um, it's obvious, you know, you're right to say, you know, I, I very much hope we're not in the middle, but you know, it, it, probably is the case, you know, I, I'd have hoped we were more towards the end of the pandemic, but we probably are in the middle of the grand scheme of things. Um, so yeah, we're still in the middle of this pandemic. Um, that's obviously having an impact on the conference. I mean, it's kind of, you know, the pandemic is like an added logistical challenge for, for a British government. For those of you who are unaccustomed to the British government, it's kind of deeply incompetent as well as being like ideologically callous and kind of sickening combination of those two things. So, you know, it's a kind of a government that would have had a pretty challenge, you know, a pretty difficult time of organizing a conference at this level anyway, obviously has like the whole pandemic thrown in the mix to, to make it even more difficult for themselves. So, and, you know, and that has been really, it's been really poorly managed. And, you know, I speak to people who, you know, engage and organize through the process much more intimately than myself, or, you know, work with people, um, delegates who will be coming over from poorer countries or, you know, delegations from civil society in countries most impacted. And, you know, what they tell me is that it's been incredibly difficult, incredibly disruptive. It's been a real challenge for those people who actually will gain most from being represented at the conference and may be able to extract, you know, marginal gains um, from the conference. It's been, you know, an even stronger barrier than ordinarily would be the case um, for their engagement. And, you know, this manifested around the travel restrictions, which, you know, the UK has imposed. And my, my view is that the travel restrictions have been relatively arbitrary. And you, you'd probably say racist in terms of, you know, um, which countries have been, you know, allowed to enter the UK and which countries are put on the kind of red list that we have. Um, and then, you know, this is also in the context of a kind of, you know, we were speaking about global inequality before, the kind of global vaccine apartheid that we're seeing where, the, the global access to vaccinations is so unequal um, that, again, if you're saying vaccines as a precondition for entering the country or coming to the conference, again, you're, you're seriously limiting who's able to do that. I think the last few weeks has seen a relative relaxation of the UK government in terms of some of those restrictions. So um, a friend who's involved in this was tweeting yesterday, I think, that the UK is like removing quarantine restrictions for all, I think, about nine countries that are now on the red list, which is good. Um, but what this means is that with very short notice, delegates uh, from former red list countries, which are obviously mostly in the global south, um, are kind of on the hook for changing flights, changing accommodation, all of that logistical stuff. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm sure, well, I'm not, I say I'm sure, I, I think, I, you know, I imagine that the conference itself will kind of functionally happen, you know, just about. But I think what we will see is a, a real legacy of this government's kind of callous disorganization is of a, of a real inequality of engagement with the conference. And I'm sure that will have an effect on, on actually the outcome as well. Yeah, and just as an aside, this is completely unrelated to the conversation that we're having, but since you mentioned red lists, uh, this is for David. Uh, maybe next time we have a conversation, David, I can tell you about how I got to Russia, because Russia also has a list of uh, red list countries, and the first time I tried to enter, I unwittingly came through one, was denied entry, was sent back to that other country, uh, 
But to get into Russia, all I had to do was take a flight through a different country that was on the green list. You know, there was like no additional quarantine or anything. I was able to go from a red list country to a green list country into Russia unimpeded. But because the first time I tried to come directly from a red list country to Russia, uh, I got to Moscow and they said, you can't come in. And they put me on the flight back to uh, it was the Netherlands. Uh, so that was an interesting experience and just figured I'd throw it out there as a, you know, perhaps something that we can talk about in the future, but uh, let's get back to the topic at hand, Chris, because this is not Henry's story time. Um, I'm going to give you another two part question. Feel free to take it however you want it. So with this upcoming conference, what would you say has to be accomplished for the conference to be considered a success when it all is said and done uh, in terms of things that are actually done at the conference? And what would you say are the biggest obstacles standing in the way of getting kind of those, I don't want to say transformative changes, but the big, the big ticket things that we need to get done in order to make this a hospitable world for us going forward. Yeah, of course. I mean, I think there are two answers to this question. The first is a kind of from the perspective of the COP process, what would success be within that framework? And a second is from our perspective as people, you know, looking for climate justice, what would success be? And so, you know, I think to take the first one, you know, I think a successful COP on its own terms would be nationally determined contributions, which aggregate together to limit global average temperature rises to 1.5 degrees. You know, that's a stated ambition of the conference and it's not where they're at at the moment. Um, you would want, you know, associated mechanisms that are quite strict about enforcing those targets and you know, penalties, for example, for, for non-compliance, particularly for wealthier countries. Um, you'd want a, you know, a suite of mechanisms or processes that, that could realistically, you know, facilitate countries to achieve those targets. And I think significantly you would want um, finance from, you know, to mechanisms to transfer finance from the global north to the global south, um, from wealthier countries to poorer countries. Again, you know, in order to enable that, you know, I think these are things that without taking a particularly ideological view of it, you could at least imagine, you know, could happen within a cop. You know, I think we'll come on in a second to why that's probably unlikely. Um, I think in terms of, you know, from our perspective as people in the climate justice movement, even the labor movements globally, um, what would we want? Well, I think, you know, we'd be looking at, um, at an agreement that, you know, had very clear and ambitious aims to kind of wind down, you know, fossil fuel extraction globally, um, mechanisms for instituting a kind of just transition um, from, you know, fossil energy to, to clean energy globally. Um, you'd want not just a kind of transfer of finance, but really, you know, a reorganization of how um, international climate diplomacy or kind of, you know, institutions work to kind of rebalance the inequality between um, wealthy countries and poorer countries. And, you know, I think there was a book I was reading recently, um, also published by Pluto Press called A People's Green New Deal by Mac Dial. And, you know, that point he makes in that book is there's kind of, you know, there's one thing to try to kind of have reparations and, and transfer finance from, from richer countries to poorer countries, but ultimately, you know, in order for that to be effective, you need self-determination for those countries. You know, what, what point is there in transferring resources to Palestine if, if Palestine doesn't have any agency to do with that way? Well, same with Cuba or Venezuela or, or any other kind of country in a, in a kind of, yeah, a less than ideal situation in terms of, you know, it's, it's an autonomy. So I think, yeah, then the point I'm making there is there needs to be, you know, ideally we would see a reorganization of power relations internationally as well as within countries. And, and again, I think these are things that the COP process is unable to deliver and i think as activists like we shouldn't put our faith 
in the process to, to really give us a silver bullet on the climate crisis because you know i think iterations of the climate movement have done that in the past and it's not it's not been good for the climate movement it's obviously been misplaced um kind of optimism and so you know i really do think we need to understand you know i mentioned before and i'll reiterate it again about the kind of almost the foundational capitalism of the COP process um the it exists prior you know it more you know it's aim at more than climate mitigation is upholding capitalism in the context of a crisis that really calls for a, a transformation of, of the economic system that we have. Um, you know, I think we can look back at the history. I was reading something this week, actually, that was talking about the Rio Earth Summit, which was the kind of summit um, that preceded um, the COP and preceded the, the creation of the UNFCCC, preceded the Kyoto Agreement. And this was a time when George H.W. Bush, the first George Bush, was president in the United States. And, you know, he was saying around that time in this context that the, you know, the phrase he used was that the American way of life is not up for negotiation. And so he had a very almost early understanding of, well, what we're talking about in terms of mitigating climate change does have existential implications for capitalism. You know, he's obviously, he was a capitalist president. Um, he represented the ruling class um, from power. But, you know, he also very specifically, he was a Texan. He had very like deep familial ties um, to the Texas oil industry. And so, you know, I'm sure he saw the preservation of the Texas oil industry as one of his primary motives in his role as president. Um, and so what he's saying there when he says the American way of life is not for negotiation, he's kind of equating, you know, um, the everyday lives of, of ordinary Americans with the maintenance of American capitalism. Um, and, you know, these are provocations he's making when the architecture of this international climate diplomacy is on the table. And there was a real decision that was made at that time, of, you know, do we integrate the U.S. into this process so that we can have a kind of global you know, unity on in this, you know, so that everyone can be involved, but ultimately a less ambitious and, you know, necessarily less radical process. Or do you kind of say, okay, well, you know, you can be excluded if you're going to be obstructive. And obviously at that time they went for, I think there was a lot of anxiety around the process being seen to be legitimate. And so they went for uh, incorporating the US into it. And what that's meant is, yeah, as I say, we we have a COP process, we have a UNFCCC that just fundamentally treats capitalism as a solution rather than the problem, and, and is, I think, fundamentally ill-equipped for really tackling it um, on a structural level. So that's so kind of getting there into some of the, some of the obstacles um, where, you know, almost the COP process itself is the biggest ob obstacle for, a, a, you know, a climate justice perspective of success because, it, you know, it's reproducing a global political economy where the most powerful states, the wealthiest states, um, you know, and they get to be in charge. You know, I think a really good example of this was um, the, the the COP in Copenhagen in um, in 2015, where wealthy countries really derailed the process, they put something to the conference, and actually, you know, led by countries like Bolivia and others, it, it rejected it outright. Um, so there's you know there's resistance within it, but you know there's a kind of really clear hegemony of kind of capitalist powerful nations in that conference. Yeah, two things before we move on. So first, I'm glad that you mentioned uh, another comrade of mine, Max Eil, and A People's Green New Deal, really one of the best books that I've read in the last couple of years, really. And um, also, I've brought Max onto the program before. So if listeners are interested in that book and haven't read it yet, you can go back and watch that conversation that I had with Max. Uh, I co-hosted it with uh, Nemanja Lukic of Anti-Imperialist Net. Uh, very interesting conversation 
conversation. So just Google David Feldman, Max Isle, you'll be able to find it. Uh, or hit me up on Twitter at Huck1995 and I can get you a link for it. Uh, and also the other thing that I want to mention is when you mentioned that uh, George H.W. Bush always talked about this American way of life. People that live in America and in the global north more generally have to take sentiments like that. And instead of thinking of it as the American way of life, we really have to get into the mindset of thinking of it as the imperial mode of living. Yeah? It is not something that is sustainable on a global scale. So you have two options. You either want to lift people in the global south up to give them dignified lives, or you want to condemn us to climate catastrophe. You can't have uh, both. You can't have the uplifting of people in the global south while maintaining this imperial mode of living. We just don't have the resources for it. Uh, but moving on, we've got about six minutes left or so. So I'm going to combine the next two questions again to try to streamline us through this. So can you try to, and you know that I like history, you're a guerrilla history listener. So this is, uh, yeah, something that, you know, that I'm happy to talk about, but when we look back, uh, from this upcoming cop to previous cops, as well as the, the climate movement more generally, how does this upcoming cop fit into the historical narrative? And can you talk about how movements, uh, in, in terms of climate movements, uh, have impacted previous COPs and what's being pushed for by the movements in this upcoming COP. So that's, you know, it's a couple of huge questions, but let's see what you can do with that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I guess in terms of the history of it, I think that a lot of the spin around this COP in Glasgow will really be, you know, I imagine we'll see headlines of this is our last chance. This is, you know, this is, I mean, I think it, it is going to be, you know, one of the major moments in kind of climate diplomacy in terms of the history of it. I think this will be seen as um, a pivotal moment. I think it's unlikely to be a turning point, but it will be seen as a significant moment in terms of the history of it. You know, we're right at the beginning of a decade in which, you know, realistically it probably is our last chance to decarbonize while, you know, achieving anything that looks like justice. Um, so I think that's where it sits in, in the kind of the history of it. I think in, in many ways, you know, maybe it will be seen as a culmination of, as I was saying before, a history of international climate diplomacy and climate action that is, you know, fundamentally within, you know, a capitalist paradigm um, where, you know, a continuation of the trends of the Paris Agreement, which was of, of triumphalism, of very unjustified triumphalism, um, given the content of the agreement. Um, but in terms of, you know, I think, yeah, I'm particularly interested in the history of kind of these movements and how the climate movement has interacted with um, with this process. And, you know, I mentioned the COP in Copenhagen in 2009. I kind of wasn't really active then, but I was too, too young. But, um, but, you know, I know a lot of people who were. And, and my kind of reading about history is that there was really significant mobilizations around COP15. The climate movement put an awful lot of its energy and its hope into that conference. And also, as I said, ultimately it was a failure. It was quite a significant failure. Um, it was derailed by the Global North. Uh, and it was quite just that agreement that was put forward by the Global North was quite justifiably rejected by, um, by, by some states in the Global South. Um, but it was a real big kind of sink of energy. And I think it took a while for the climate movement really to get back on its feet after that. Um, and I think, you know, interestingly, similarly, the pa Paris COP in 2015, COP21, um, also saw a lot of mobilization. There was kind of less, I think, 
because, or less than it could have been, certainly because this was in the context of a state of emergency. Um, it was just after kind of terror, within the year of terror attacks. Um, so, so that state of emergency really kind of, you know, I remember I was there and I was, we were kind of planning to take direct action, but there were, you know, armed police basically on every street. It was, you know, quite scary. Um, there was a big kind of mobilization on the day after the, the agreement was signed. Um, which I have strategic qualms with myself, but you know, it's for another time. Um, but you know, there, we, we, we were wondering whether actually that mobilization would even be allowed to go ahead. And in the end, it was allowed to go ahead. Um, and, it was, and ultimately, I think the narrative of that was co opted by the ruling classes. Um, but I think, you know, the stories of these really are people mobilizing outside of the cop, but having a very limited impact on what goes on on the inside. And so, um, you know, I, I think what we have seen is, you know, civil societies, particularly delegations from the global south, have been able to claim very relative and very tentative victories. So I think, you know, the inclusion of 1.5 degree target is better than, you know, it would have been had there had been no strategy of non-engagement with this process. That said, I think original demands were a target of one degree. Um, so as I say, it's very relative um, and it's tentative because, you know, it, it's not looking like we'll even achieve it, but, you know, it's put that into the discourse. Um, and as I say, you know, I'm, I'm very pessimistic about the history and potential, both the history and potential of movements influencing COP. Um, it's not to say that we shouldn't engage with it. I think, you know, as, as socialists or, or radicals, you know, organizing from within capitalism, there needs to be a degree of engagement with the institutions that we have um, kind of on offer. Um, but there are certainly some very good organizers that, you know, are working very hard to, to make the best of this situation. Um, but yeah, I think, I think, you know, as I say, we need to understand this conference not as a pivotal moment, not as uh, a make or break situation, because it was never going to be. We were never going to, as I say, get a kind of silver bullet solution out of this conference. It was never going to be a, a major step change. You know, it's still ultimately going to be a conference of capitalist governments whose primary interest is to maintain that system rather than to kind of um, overthrow it. Yeah, so in the last minute, minute and a half, and again, this is way too much to fit into that time, but we'll see what you can do with that. What should the climate movement be looking to try to do going forwards from both going into this COP as well as moving out of it? What, what should we be looking to do? Yeah, so I think the climate movement should not invest all of our hopes in this COP, but it should, we should use it as a moment around which to organize. And I think most importantly, build robust coalitions that are capable of continuing to organize and continuing to um, build in the coming months and years. Um, I think, you know, my view, and this is the view that I kind of put forward in the book, Burned, is that we need to be bringing together the left, the labor movement with the climate movement and increasingly making those kind of two bits of progressive movements increasingly unified, both in politics and demands, but also the strategy, you know, with a diversity of tactics under that. Um, so I think, you know, ultimately, I think this kind of coherent movement, it needs to, we need to orient ourselves towards not just kind of influencing state power, but capturing it ourselves. I think that's going to be the only way we're going to institute the transformations we need. Um, and ultimately as well, you know, transforming these international processes, institutional architecture, global balances of power. Um, so we should have that clear aim. And, you know, I think that all the, you know, the, the kind of case I put forward is there needs to be a kind of triad um, of, of approaches or strategies within a kind of broader one. So one of the kind of electoral strategy to take state power, 
one of a kind of radical and militant labor movement to kind of buttress that and to organize, you know, workers and the working class towards this aim, and then kind of radical disruptive social movements as well, um, taking on fossil capital and other um, other institutions that, as I say, reproduce this crisis. So I think, you know, that's a, it's an incredibly ambitious strategy. It's what we need. It's still where we are right now, and it's going to be a difficult one to build, but it should certainly be our horizon. And I think this COP needs to be a jumping off point to, to move kind of closer towards that end point. Excellent. Again, my guest was Chris Saltmarsh. Chris, thanks for coming on the show. Can you tell the listeners how to find you and find your book before we close out? Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at Chris underscore Saltmarsh and you can buy the book from Pluto Press website or any bookstore that's worth its salt. There you go. Uh, We'll turn it back over to you now, David. I'll see you again very soon. Thank you, Henry. That's our show. I want to thank all our guests. I guess Dan Frankenberger bailed on me. I don't blame him. Okay, Dan's not here. That's our show. Oh, hang on. Yes, Rodrigo. Rodrigo. Okay. I'm going to thank all our guests. Michael Cohen. Thank you to Ben Burgess for not showing up. I just got a call from Professor Ben Burgess and uh, something came up. Something horrible happened? No, nothing. I, I made, he laughed so hard. I said, did anything? I, I said, I hope something horrible happened to you. I'd hate to think that you just forgot about it. He had a, uh, a minor issue with a cat. Uh, so he couldn't do it. The Hershenfelds, how funny were the Hershenfelds? Emil Guillermo, the Reverend Barry W. Lynn, Mark Savasco, Professor Adnan Hussein, Professor Ann Lee, Professor Marianne Cummings, Professor Jonathan Bick, Mr. Saltmarsh, Henry Huckamaki, and let's go to Mexico, where Rodrigo is standing by. How are you, sir? Hi, uh, I'll try to be quick uh, because I'm talking a little. Uh, why do we need to change the entire system? It's not because suddenly it's time for accelerationism. It's because the system is resilient. Maybe this system wasn't designed to heal itself from the beginning like conspiracy theorists believe the Illuminati to have done, but he has something else. When you push for the fund the police, all the liberals come out complaining that we need the police. When you talk about taking a little money from the Pentagon budget, the Republicans and Democrats start talking about the 1,400 jobs in their district that depend directly on the military-industrial complex, and they don't want to hear that if the Pentagon scrapped the F-35 project, which currently costs around $1 trillion per plane, you could retrain those 1,400 people as social workers and have plenty of money left over. 
this is the same all across modern society, whether spending on the prison industrial complex or trying to save public education, you can find millions of people who agree that we need to change everything except for this tiny section that they need to protect because their year-end bonuses depend on making sure that the change does not come to their tiny corner of the economy. And we definitely can talk about taxing the rich without conservatives automatically starting to write long speeches about why we already tax the rich too much. And that's why we need to change everything at the same time. David was talking earlier about how with age comes some critical thinking, but all people who sincerely uh, think that Facebook would not spread misinformation because someone paid them to are the greatest source of fake news. Thank you. The greatest source of fake news. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well said. I appreciate that. Yes. And uh, all right. Well, I see you at office hours. Yes, I'm going to play another video. Good. Uh, I think. Great. Well, this uh, tonight, 8 p.m., join us for office hours where you will meet better people. I promise you, you will meet a better class of person and they're all over the world and they do great things. So I cannot recommend enough. Go to davidfeldmanshow.com, hit office hours, and I'll send you a link. Well, you don't get a link. You go right to the portal and you're in. And we go from 8 p.m. Eastern till about 2 p.m. I'm there from 8 till 9.30. I make myself available to the listeners. If you have any compliments, any raves, uh, you want to thank me, or uh, tell me how great I am. No. Uh, or blame Hannah. Or blame Hannah. If you have any quite no, if you have any suggestions or you know complaints, I uh, I'm available from eight till nine thirty, and you can watch Rodrigo try to cancel me. He's been trying to cancel me. Uh, he hangs on my every word. So far, he has not succeeded in <laughs> in canceling me. Uh, that's our show. Thank you so much for listening. Please share this with your friends. We're a small little show. We have a small little audience. I'd like to grow it. So if you're listening to us on iTunes, Spotify, the Pandora Papers, uh, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you listen to this podcast, please give us a nice review and please copy the link and share it with people who you think might enjoy it. If you would like to sit in our virtual studio audience, please go to my website and hit attend a live taping. We tape this show every Monday and Thursday, and we do it in front of a virtual studio audience. They're very much a part of this show. So go to my website, sign up for the newsletter while you're over there. And we have a YouTube channel. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel. We have people watching us on YouTube. Uh, please subscribe and give us a, a thumbs up, please, 
on YouTube and uh, share us. That's a good way to share this show, actually, on YouTube. You can uh, type in the time code. That's our show. Remember to stay strong and protect the weak. It's time right now for the David Fetterman Show. He's talking politics and comedy, too. He'll tell a dirty joke if you want him to. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for writing. Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show To get your ears on right, buckle in real tight He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way